希望に命を預け運命が交わった震えるこの空で愛してたあと最後に言葉を残し微笑んだ幻が受け継いでくせに Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It is another Weekly Suit Gundam extravaganza as we finish talking about Mobile Suit Gundam Age, the 2011 anime, where we are talking about the second half of that very good series, very underrated series.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I am excited to talk about that today, Sean. That'll be our main topic. But before then, we actually have a pretty big batch of news. We've got some Doctor Who news. We've got more fallout from the Blizzard Activision、um, clusterfuck. I don't really know what to call it. It's bad. Disaster,、um, I think, is disaster. the word we use. Yeah,、um, dumpster fire. And、uh, a little bit of video game news, a little bit of movie news, and we will talk about all of that.、Uh, but before we get into any of that, Sean, how are you doing? Pretty good. You know, I've. I've... Been watching a lot of that Gundam and playing a lot of that Genshin Impact because、uh, I have not really done anything other than that with my free time this week.、Uh, it is, yeah, it has just been the two G's of my life Gundam and Genshin, and that's, that's what it's been. <laughs> two G's, yep. That's good. We're going to rename this podcast the Two G's Podcast Genshin、mm-hmm. and Gundam.、Um, that sounds like the baddest white boy thing to ever do. We're not doing <laughs>、yes. that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Genshin Impact.、Uh, I've been having a lot of fun. I've got Kamisato up to level 80.、Um, so I'm having fun with that. She's extraordinarily powerful now that I've got her like, all the way up there. I've got a level 90 weapon on her that I took from another character.、Uh, it's going very well.、Uh, I did in a random draw this week, Sean. I just got like, one of the blue wishes, like the normal like, non event wish.、Uh-huh. In, in, like, an, you know, I got it from, I think, leveling up a character. And so I just did the one. And I got Shishi,、uh, who I have never had.、Um, yes, the five star. The little star. zombie girl. Yes, who I know you love, but I have never had or, or used. So that was exciting. I have not used her yet because、um, I'm、yes. working on a cryo character right now, but she seems cool. Yeah, no, she's a very. Like, if you just need like, as much healing as possible, she's the most powerful healer in the game for sure, like, just in terms of recovering health.、Um, nice. So, yeah, she's a good, like, I particularly like her when you're just exploring and you don't want to have to like, worry about health or having an、like, optimal party or whatever.、Um, and you can just always switch to her and be like, hey, I'll make all my people have health again. And then she just does it. Nice. I might, I might have to start leveling her up a little bit. Because it was, I've seen it, because that, that's the main banner that's like, always there. She's、uh-huh. on it. And I've been working on that banner forever. And I've gotten a bunch of other good characters out of it, never any five stars. She's my first five star out of that banner.、Um, And I, I was happy to get Shishi because you've talked about her so much. So, anyway.、Yep. But yeah, I've just been cleaning up random stuff in Genshin, been watching Gundam, doing a couple other little things.、Uh, I did share something with you last night, Sean. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. But、uh, in my... I glanced at it, but I didn't watch through the, the、oh, whole、okay. thing. Because <laughs> you, you sent that to me like, right when I was about to watch、um, the OVAs for Gundam Age, and I kind of forgot that you had sent that out after I watched those. Well, let me tell, let me tell the people what it is.、Yes. I had to.、Um, Uh, for my Japanese sort of program, I've been doing this, this summer, this intensive thing.、Um, our final like, big project was we had to do like, a little cultural project、uh, that we shared with like, all the other classes. And、um, 
I was in the group that did like a that dubbed over an anime clip, and they really I I suggested a bunch of like classic anime like Dragon Ball and stuff stuff that I also knew that like would be easier to do because I know they talked a little slower and I knew everything they said. Um, but the group really wanted to do JoJo. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which I've never seen. I've I know of JoJo because you talk about it all the time, Sean. How could one famous. not know of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure? Yes, but they wanted to do a JoJo scene. They want to do a scene. I think it's from Stardust Crusaders. Yes, the, where, the, when I glance at it, it's from the end of Part Three, uh, yeah. Stardust Crusaders. Yeah, which is where uh, Grandpa Joe Star uh, mm-hmm. is Joseph. is Joseph is dead. Uh, and and uh, Joe Taro uh, wants to like transfer Dio's blood into Joseph and bring him back to life, and it's a funny little scene. And uh, they really wanted to do that scene, so I was like, oh, okay, we'll do that scene. Um, and they had me voice Joe Taro, and then I started looking at the scene, I'm like, oh my god, they talk incredibly fast on this yep. show because of course they do. Um, and so that took a lot of work, but it was very fun. And then I did all the editing for it, so it was like putting all the voices in, and then reconstructing the soundtrack so that it wasn't just like a bunch of like dead air with like voices over it um but it was very fun i think we had we presented everything last night i think we had by far the best clip um because also like we picked the most complicated thing (laughs) um yeah jojo is not an easy show to do that with (laughs) no i mean it is probably like among the hardest like i think that's probably one of the most demanding shows in terms of its voice actors because the nature of Jojo, it's such a like frenetic, high paced thing. And like and you picked like a pretty exposition y heavy scene, but even like, I didn't pick picked, shit. I want to make well, that clear. Your team, your team. That's why I mean the yeah. universal you. You know, we don't yes. have a second person plural proper pronoun in English. So you is, is my replacement for it. Um but if you had picked a fight scene, it wouldn't have even been any easier because you still would have had to talk at that like absurd pace where i to pick a jojo's clip i think i would have just picked a clip when jotaro and, and dio are fighting each other and they do their very like kind of famous thing where jotaro whenever he's fighting he goes is like oh, no, 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 while the, the guy punches super fast and then dio goes muda, 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 and they just do that at like for maybe like two minutes as their two stands are just punching each other at like impossible speeds and you just have to yell that as fast and as loud as possible for two minutes there's no Japanese in it, um, other than the word muda, which means, like, it's impossible or it's pointless. Um, that's what I would have picked, where I had to do a jo- JoJo scene and piss off the teacher, because it would have shown nothing about your <laughs> skills in Japanese. I did. There was a monologue in that scene where he says the word muda many, many times, so I had to do that. Uh, I did shred my voice absolutely on one session, doing just some several normal lines because I did it kind of in a low, like, you know, gravelly little kind of voice because that's mm-hmm. Joe Taro. And then uh, also there was one ora in that scene. Yes. Um, and if you watch the clip I made, Sean, uh, at the end of it, I just strung together a bunch of my ora takes in like one go. And it's very funny because it's me trying to figure out how I can do this and realizing I am not a Japanese, I'm not a Japanese voice actor. This is hard. I don't know how they do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, like, you gotta give mad pl- props to Ono Daisuke, who's the yes. voice of Wolf in Gundam Age, but also the voice of Jotaro in, in like, that has got to be, like, when he got that role, I imagine he went on, like, a month-long, like, uh, journey, like, a spiritual quest to sort of figure out, how the fuck do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you, <laughs> how do you do those line reads? Um, it just seems, like, impossible. 
you know, like Andy Serkis, when he played Gollum, did uh, what he called the Gollum juice, which was like lemon and cayenne pepper and honey and all this stuff that he would drink between takes because it would like go down and like kind of soothe the vocal cords. I assume a lot of Japanese voice actors have to do that. We just never, I just never, never heard about that. Um, yeah, especially when, yeah, you're in a show like a Judges or a Dragon Ball or something where you're yelling for like half yeah. of an episode. Yeah, I want to know what fucking uh, Masako Nozawa has been doing her whole life. Because she's in her like late 80s and can still do it. And like uh-huh. I feel like she has some secret to share with humanity. Because um, <laughs> Goku is not easy to do. She's a space alien. That's her secret. It's like She's, she's like a sense. Kryptonian or some shit. She's got yeah. super vocal cords. I would love that if Superman came to Earth, but but instead of like saving people, he just voiced Goku. I, I can mm-hmm. I can I can live with that. Anyway, uh, I have not put this clip online yet, and may, maybe one day if I get permission from the other people in my group, and I don't know, we hit a certain subscriber count or something, I will release it as a fun bonus. Um, but that was that was my week was putting that together. Um, anything else you've been up to, Sean? Nope, I've just been, you know, I've just been having fun with Aika in, in Genshin Impact. I have, I mean, I have, I think, done basically everything one can do in the 2.0 update at this point. Um, where, so they added the um, the last section of the event where you fight that, like, boss. Uh, yeah. They added that a day or two ago. And last night, I got very lucky in that I did a random matchmaking group. And it was with, like, three other people who know what the fuck they're doing in Genshin Impact. So we had this group... Where it was me, as I was playing as Ayaka. One of them was Hu Tao. So you have Cryo in, in Pyro. So you have that elemental um, reaction, which is really powerful. A dude who is jungly, who gives you a bunch of shields, but also reduces the resistance for enemies. So you do more damage. Um, and then Bennett, who can heal and also increase your attack power. And that is like an incredibly powerful team. And we like swamped that thing. We, we did, I think... I mean, we cleared the entire amount of currency you need to buy everything in the shop in maybe about 10 minutes. And it is like some of the most fun I've had in that game is just like, I've never had a more successful random matchmaking session in that game than than what I had last night. It's just like, fuck, it's over. Like, I just did it. Like, the vent's over. It's just, we, this boss did not stand a fucking chance. Ayaka is stupidly powerful with her elemental burst in a way that is uh, insanely fun. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what I've been doing is just ringing out every last drop of content from 2.0 that i can get nice i have never done random matchmaking in that game um but i did play a bunch of that boss last night and i got uh enough that i was able to call beto mm-hmm. who's like the event so i could get another thing in her constellation which i realized i've never drawn beto again but i got her in this event and then i think there was another event at one point where you could get her like yes, that I same thing so. so that's how i think i have two of her constellation points i know you have like all of her right because yes. you yeah, I had, yeah, because I, I got very lucky on getting, because Beto, I think, was one of the characters in the original Venti banner, which is probably the most I've ever pulled for the game, because that was when you have, like, all of the resources you get from playing the game early on and never fucking got Venti, and then they did a rerun for Venti, and I still haven't gotten Venti. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It, that's very annoying, but because Beto was one of the other characters on there, I got a shit ton of Betos, so I, yeah, so basically she just turned into five of those coins or whatever which is basically just the equivalent of getting one of the fates that you use to pull for characters um, right which is nice but yeah. yeah nice so anyway genshin's fun i have one thing i want to talk about sean i yesterday went to see one of the best american movies i have seen in years and that is david lowry's the green knight awesome. that is open in theaters this week um 
and it, uh, it's, it's it's David Lowry who made a ghost story. Uh, he did the the Disney Pete's Dragon remake, which I have not watched, but I should because I'm I haven't even seen it. I'm a hundred percent sure it's better than every other Disney live action remake combined. Like I've heard nothing but good things about it, uh, mm-hmm. and also it's David Lowry who's a just phenomenal director. But the Green Knight, if you haven't uh, heard of it, it's it stars Dev Patel and it is a adaptation of the classic poem, middle medieval poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, and it is a phenomenal film. It is like one of the most visually just astonishing movies you'll ever see. It is uh, an absolute visual masterpiece. It, uh, what it does in terms of the the sort of how it uses landscape and color and light. Like if this movie does not get a 4K Blu-ray release, I will be so mad because it, it needs it. This is like a movie that like I feel like if you didn't have HDR at home, you would not be able to like fully represent it the same like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is that way mm-hmm. where like if you watch like the normal Blu-ray it doesn't look right you have to have the HDR or it doesn't like really look like the movie um, but it is it's such a visually astonishing movie what it does with the poem so I also this week I went and bought because I realized they the Tolkien estate timed this very uh, purposefully I think they reissued J.R. Tolkien's translation of uh, Sir Gawain which is one of the more famous translations of the poem. He this is this is one of the first things that Tolkien's like estate published after he died. So it's been around forever. Um, but this is a new edition where they also included his big lecture on Sir Gawain, which is like a famous piece of Tolkien academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had never read the original poem. Um, so I bought this and I read this, and it's uh, you've you've read this several times, I assume, Sean, right? Yes, yeah, because Boulder was very hot on the medievalist stuff. So yes, yes. I think I read it maybe three times for three different classes nice did you read did they use the tolkien translation or did they use someone else i don't remember i think probably um i remember i read at least two different translations but i don't remember specifically who they were yeah nice well anyway um i read the the tolkien just because it's like i trust J.R. tolkien yes <laughs> i know that guy he fucking loved this poem uh he loved all things medieval literature basically um so anyway it's it's uh if you've never read the original poem it is worth reading it's very interesting i mm. And actually, I read like one half, and then later in the day, this was like at like 1 a.m., I was meaning to go to bed, and I just picked up the book to look at something, and I wound up reading like the entire last like 50 pages of it in one go, because it wound up being kind of a page-turner to me, because I realized I only knew the setup to this story. I didn't right. know what happened mm-hmm. in the rest of it. The setup is very famous, if you haven't um, read it, it's or, or heard it, it's you know an old myth, and it's, it's that Sir Gawain is like a young knight he's arthur's uh uh, nephew so he's sort of like there for nepotism it's christmas and they're having a big feast at the round table and this mysterious green knight comes in on a green horse and he offers to play a game which is he has this big axe and he will give the axe to whichever knight in the room will agree to lay one blow on the green knight but then one year hence the green knight will lay that same blow on that knight um, and so Gawain being kind of like the plucky young upstart is the one who agrees to do it, even though everyone else in the room is like, I'm not doing that. That's I'm going to die. Yeah. This is sketchy as fuck. Like, I yeah. feel like if a weird, like magic green man, cause, cause you know, the green knights typically like understood to be like, literally he's a green man. It's not just like he's wearing green armor. It's the like green dude yes. shows up at your castle. It's like, Hey, g- kill me with this ax. But if you do it, then I'll come back and kill you one year later. And you're like, ah, well, you will be dead if I cut your head off with this axe. So, of course, nothing would be able to happen to me. Fucking idiot. Yeah, so Gawain's an idiot, and he does it. 
Um, and he cuts off the Green Knight's head, and then the Green Knight just gets up and picks up the head, and the head mm-hmm. says, I'll see you in a year, bitch, and runs off. Um, it's, it, I was very surprised to, to see that in a medieval poem. I'll see you in a year, bitch. It's yeah. actually where the word originally comes from, yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So then, so but I knew that part. That's like the very famous setup to the Gawain myth. And then I kept reading, I'm like, oh, I for whatever reason, I have like never through cultural osmosis known the rest of this story. And so it became a huge page turner to me, Sean, because the bulk of the original poem is actually, so Gawain goes off to look for the Green Chapel a year later, and he winds up in the host of this this castle far away where there is a lord of the castle and his lady, and the lord is, like, very nice to Gawain because he thinks he's a cool knight and offers him, like, hey, stay here. The Green Chapel's only two miles that way. I'll take you there on Christmas Day. But until then, why don't you hang out in this castle with my cool wife? Meanwhile, I'm going to go out hunting every day. Whatever I get during the hunt, I'm going to give to you. But whatever you get here in the castle, you have to give to me during the day. And Gawain's like... I, what am I going to get in the castle? That's weird. Okay, we'll do this because Gawain's an idiot. Um, yep. And then the, the the Lord goes off and hunts. And the bulk of the poem is these three days, three hunts and then three days at home where the lady of the castle is super into Gawain and trying to seduce him. And he has to like sort of push her away. And so each day the Lord comes back and Gawain gives him a kiss because the only thing he accepted from the wife was a kiss. Um there's definitely some latent homoeroticism to this, which someone asked me about on Twitter. Like, does the movie address the latent homoeroticism to the poem? And I went, yes, it does. That's yeah. one thing that's good about this movie, just so you know. Um, anyway, and and then on the... the, the, the I, I, oh, I guess I won't spoil the ending of it. It's, it's If you've never seen it, well, why not? But um, that's 700-year-old kind of bul- spoilers. 700-year-old spoilers. I know it's stupid to say, call that a spoiler, but I don't want to like go in and explain the whole thing. But the point mm-hmm. is... This is, this is this sort of game between the two of them that then leads to Gawain going and meeting the Green Knight, and it becomes sort of a test of his chivalry. Um, you know, the, the poem is popularly known as a chivalric romance because that's um, sort yeah. of the theme of it is Gawain's chivalry and whether he will sort of stay true to it. Um, and it's a, it's a really, it's a great story. It's, a, it's really beautifully written. I, you know, I don't know which, like, translation is technically the best, but I do know the Tolkien one is extremely readable and beautiful. The thing about the poem that um, is its style is it's an alliterative verse. So it's all built on these long strings of alliteration that are just so good. This is from... I just want to read one part of the poem because it's so good I had to, like, note it. Um, I mean, I could read, like, any verse. A lot of them are really cool. But in terms of, like, the alliterative quality, this was the one that stuck out to me more than any other verse in the entire thing. This is when Gawain is leaving the the castle to go meet the Green Knight. Not Camelot, but the castle where he stayed with the Lord and Lady for three days. Um, So it says, He went on his way with the one man only to guide him as he goes to that grievous place where he is due to endure the dolorous blow. They go by banks and by braes where branches are bare. They climb along cliffs where clingeth the cold. The heavens are lifted high, but under them evilly. Mist hangs moist on the moor, melts on the mountains. Every hill has a hat, a mist mantle huge. Brooks break and boil on braes all about, bright bubbling on their banks where they bustle downwards. Very wild through the wood is the way they must take until soon comes the season when the sun rises that day. This is a fun poem to read. That's some damn good alliteration. Uh, also, if you read it, you will go, oh, this is where Tolkien got all of this. <laughs> because uh-huh. there's a bunch in this poem that's like clearly like hugely influential to J.R.R. Tolkien and a bunch of his liter- literary work. Um, particularly, I think a lot of the verse in Lord of the Rings um, draws on some of this tradition. So it's a very cool thing to read. 
Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is, is my favorite of any of, like, the original Arthurian cycle, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, like, if you, if you want a crash course in what that kind of whole genre of literature was, I think that that is, like, the poem to go to because it is, um, it, because I think it holds up really well. Like, I think it's still entertaining to a modern reader, even if you're not someone who's necessarily, like, always going out and checking out, like, the classics and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, Tolkien, you know, he was a professor. He was definitely an elite in this world, but I really like in some of, like, his notes that Christopher Tolkien included in this edition, part of Tolkien's whole goal with this was to make sure modern audiences could read it, and it wasn't just the, you know, the exclusive domain of scholars who read medieval English, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so he definitely had a kind of, like, uh, populist is the wrong word, but desire to, like, disseminate it. And so that's sort of one of the goals of the translation. Uh, but the movie, The Green Knight, that David Lowry has made is fascinating because it is very deeply engaged with the ideas and story of the poem, but it's not really quite a straight adaptation of it. Um, it is more like a reaction or critique. I think you could even argue it's a deconstruction of it in some ways because it very much becomes like... Like, it's very invested in the idea that we were just talking about, like, Gawain's a dumb idiot, <laughs> kind of, right? Like, the like I think part of the reason why the title is shortened in the David Lowry movie is because it becomes a double entendre. The Green Knight is the knight who is green and, like, causes mm -hmm. this whole event, and it's also Gawain. He is a green knight in that he is young and new and trying to prove himself and doesn't really know what he's doing in the world. Um, and it becomes, you know, sort of uh, about sort of the, the downsides of chivalry as well. Um, but the movie is fascinating. It has this, it, it adds quite a lot of incident to the original poem. Um, the poem has, between Gawain leaving Camelot and getting to that other castle, there's like basically one verse where the author says, you know, Gawain had a bunch of cool adventures, but I can't yeah. tell you them here. So they invent sort of some of those adventures that sort of thematically relate to what they're doing. The movie definitely does less of what I would say is the bulk of the poem, which is those three hunts and those three seductions. It condenses that quite a lot, but it is still very important to the film. And then it, it really heavily plays with the ending. The ending's very different. Um, but it, it's really transfixing, and I actually think I would, if you're going to see the movie, I would really recommend reading the poem like exactly because it's not a straight adaptation it's really cool to see what they're playing with and what ideas they have you by no means need to have read like the original medieval poem to enjoy the movie that would be that would make it kind of a bad movie i feel like if you did mm -hmm. um but it is really interesting if you do and it is just it is such a rapturous film it, it really has this quality of dream logic and a dreamlike atmosphere where really from the point the green knight shows up to the end of the movie it feels like you are in a very subjective dreamscape very I don't, it's not lynchian like david lynchian in how it feels but it has some of those qualities of like it operates on dream logic such that there's a lot of stuff in the movie where you can't like vocalize why this feels right it just does and it feels like it comes from some kind of id place and i think that's really fast i love movies like that get that like so many movies about dreams become so literalized and one of the reasons why David Lynch is the best to ever do dreams on movies is he lets it very much like flow from a place of like the unconscious and the id and like not fully understanding what we're seeing or what we're interpreting here. And I think The Green Knight does quite a bit of that as well. It's amazingly well performed. Dev Patel as the lead is is fantastic. It's the best work he's ever done. You've got Alicia Vikander is actually in a dual role in the movie and she is fantastic. 
Um, Joel Edgerton plays the Lord of the the Second Castle, who is great. Um, there's an actor named Sean Harris who plays King Arthur in this movie. Um, who listeners of this podcast might know, he's the villain in Mission Impossible Five and Six. The right. like guy who leads the the rogue nation basically, um, and he's so wonderfully creepy in those movies. I love that guy. He is a phenomenal King Arthur. They they play it as an old King Arthur who is like done all the adventures and he's sort of at the end of his career in this movie is how they play it. And as like an old King Arthur, Sean Harris is so good in this movie. It like kind of makes you want to see like a King Arthur solo story almost. He's such a good version of that character. Um, but yeah, it's a phenomenal movie. The music is hauntingly great. It's it's a movie that very much sort of sits in the head after you see it. I've been thinking about it nonstop. I really want to go see it again. Um, but I highly recommend it. And Sean, you should definitely see it just because yeah. I think it would be up your alley. I need I need to know where movie theaters are here. <laughs> then, well, like, find out for this one because this is yeah. this is a movie to see in a theater. This is this is definitely a movie to go see on a big screen if you have one. So it's good stuff. Cool. Yeah, it's. I, this is a movie I feel like I've been very excited for like two or three years because it's definitely one of those that got announced pre-COVID and then it just feels like, you know, time kind of stopped and you're like, when is this movie actually going to be a thing? Well, literally, um, because it was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest in 2020 and that was one of the first events canceled. Like it literally, South by Southwest was canceled days before it happened. So this movie was about to premiere to the world and then it got, um, everything got shut down. And David Lowry actually says, after South by Southwest got canceled, he just took the movie back and kept editing it for a year. Like he says, he he wound up feeling he wasn't satisfied with where it was, and just kept working on it. So this movie also changed because of the pandemic. And you know, I have no idea what it would have been before. It's really beautifully edited. It has a like I said, this very dreamlike quality. There's portions of it that feel very Terrence Malick esque in sort of how it like moves between times. Um, and so it's, 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 I think it's a masterpiece. I think it is a phenomenal movie. And if you haven't seen some of David Lowry's other stuff, I would recommend a ghost story. Most of all, that movie is tremendous. Um, but man, he is one of the best American filmmakers right now. So really cool stuff. Awesome. Yeah. You want to talk about some news, Sean? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Uh, first up, do you want to do some Doctor Who news? Yeah, we got, you know, I feel like I talked about last week on the podcast, we talked a little bit about the some of the stuff that came out of their Comic-Con panel where they said, hey, we're going to do like one continuous story. And I mentioned on that podcast that there had been some pretty like active rumors for a while that um, that uh, Jodie Whittaker was going to leave the role. Um, but I had not seen also the rumor being that Chris Chibnall was going to leave. But lo and behold, uh, a couple of days ago, the news has come out. Um, that after this next upcoming season, which is going to be season 13. 13. That, yeah, that's what we're on. Um, which also part of this came out that that season is actually going to be six episodes um, and that there's going to be three specials afterwards. Um, two of them being ones that like I think people assumed was going to be a part of an eight episode count for the upcoming season, but instead six episodes for the upcoming season and then three specials. And that sort of third special is going to be the sort of finale of Chris Chibnall's run on the show, including Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor will uh, be leaving the role. And the BBC then later confirmed that this is also not like, and then we're shutting down Doctor Who. They've said, hey, we're like moving on to a next generation or whatever. Um, so we'll be moving forward and there'll be more news on that front. But if you are like us and you're a fan of Doctor Who that has sort of languished 
in this what feels like both an incredibly short because there's not really that much Doctor Who to it because of the tiny episode counts, but an incredibly long in terms of the amount of time it has taken um, run of Chris Chibnall's era of Doctor Who. It is coming to a close, which I'm very happy about. And I, I felt a huge sense of relief that is going to make it a lot easier to watch the next like eight to nine episodes of Doctor Who, knowing that that's fucking it. I only got to do one more season with this fucker and then it's done. Yes. Um, and I got to say, I feel like if, if you are someone who's writing Doctor Who, you should have exactly one goal. And that goal should be that when you announce your departure, peop- the main reaction is not, oh, thank God, they're leaving. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because that was definitely my reaction. You know, I, I think there's something to be said about the, the Jodie Whittaker of it all in that, like, clearly she did resonate with a certain segment of the fandom. There's clearly there are some people who, like, are sad to see her go. And, you know, I, you and I did not warm to that character. I think it's also fair to say whatever she could have done, we're never going to know from this era of the show because the yeah. writing was just so bad. I, I think you and I are of the same mind that it seems like she was miscast. I don't think she had a particularly interesting take on the character. But I also, I will always feel like it's a little unfair to judge because Chibnall gave her nothing. Like, at all, at any point, there was no written take on the Doctor like... You know, you and I love Peter Capaldi. Well, Peter Capaldi happened to also have some of the best writing for that character ever. So, like, him being a great actor was also bolstered by what he was given, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jodie Whittaker doesn't have a heaven sent. She doesn't have any kind of episode that, like, would show off whatever she could do, theoretically. Um, so, it's a bummer. One day there will be big finish audios with Jodie Whittaker, and I look forward to those because then we'll see her in actual Doctor Who stories, and it'll be interesting to see what she does with it. Um, but for now, like, I'm, I'm glad it's done. I hope, I just, I hope they get a showrunner who, like, they interview and talk to, and is like, do you actually, like, like Doctor Who? <laughs> like, do you, do you know, this, is Doctor Who a, like, space god who's older than time itself? You think that, okay, no, you're, we're not hiring you. Um, we're going to interview someone else. Like, I really, I, I, I care so much less about who plays the character next than who fucking writes the show. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I'm like definitely, I think I'm feeling that at this point, like modern Doctor Who has gone on long enough that I really think we need to get away from having to have like Doctor Who super fans run the show from like the old days because that's been the situation with all three so far. Like Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat, and Chris Chibnall are all people who are like super active in the Doctor Who fan community from like the mid 80s on. Um, and they're like from that era, and that worked out great for RTD and Stephen Moffat. But I think there's like an undeniable quality of Chris Chibnall's thing, particularly his second season, um, season 12 where it feels like this is like really awful Doctor Who fan fiction in the sense of like, it is someone who feels like had like this like bad idea about the Doctor's origin when he was a kid and is trying to like write that into the show in some way. Um, I'm really hoping and I'm kind of expecting given like this kind of timeline that I think most of that Timeless Child stuff he's going to kind of do away with. There is like a pretty clear vector through the master um, and how that all was set up that you could very easily kind of write that out as not being like real um, or being slightly or like maybe pieces of it are somewhat real like the less objectionable pieces of it 
like they're be having existed pre-William Hartnell doctors, I think you can do that and have it be fine. But having the like, and she's been this immortal god from the beginning of time, and all of what Time Lords are actually comes from studying the Doctor. That's such an awful idea. Um, and I really want like a fresher take on Doctor Who that's a little bit unshackled from that stuff. Um, I think having someone who, obviously you want someone who's familiar with the show and likes the show to do it, but maybe not someone who has to be like they lived and breathed Doctor Who from when they were like one years old up until being a grown adult. Like finding someone who's maybe a little bit outside of that circle might freshen up the show for what they're going to do next. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Doctor themselves, you know, so now that they've opened it up that that obviously anyone of any gender can play the Doctor, where do you think they should go with the next? I'm very much of the opinion, I think they should continue trying to do this with a woman. They did it once and they fucked it up, I think they should do it again. Um, I think if they do it again, though, like, get a woman to write the show. Like, I think that's like, that's like, to me, an obvious one is like, don't get another white mid 40s showrunner like a white male mid 40s showrunner like you have lots of women at the BBC writing stuff who do great stuff like hire one of them um or someone outside of that whole organization like there's lots and lots of people who could write this who do not look like Chris Chibnall and you know Stephen Moffat and and Russell T Davis and I think you could you could uh, Russell T Davis is not straight I should say but um, you know, you you could make it more diverse, and I think that would rebound to the benefit of the character too. If you're going to make the character more diverse, so I'm I'm really curious what they do with that. It's um, it's a it's a question. I mean, I just I'm so frustrated with the whole experiment, and not the experiment, the way Chibnall did it. I should say yes. because it is it's a it's an era where we had the Doctor become a woman for the first time, and yet. That idea is never explored in the text of his episodes. Um, and I don't think like you need to make it the main thing about the Doctor, because I don't think the Doctor would view it as the main thing about themselves. But like, you know, you're you're in an era in the real world where like transgender rights and identity and and just visibility is such a big topic of the day that to do that with one of your big characters who has like been male for like 50 years of tv i feel like you should maybe bring that into the text to some degree and like do something interesting with it right um and they didn't do anything with it and then made very much like chibnall was only safe if he could write a like white mid-50s male character in there too um which is why i feel like i kind of want to see a mulligan on this whole era and try it again (laughs) yeah no i feel the same way that it's it's something of where like at the very least, you need to, like, you need to do the opposite of what Chris Chibnall did. Because part of what happened was also whether this is, like, you know, sexist writing tendencies or this is just Chris Chibnall being a bad writer. Um, what ended up happening is that the Doctor's new newer characterization under Judy Whittaker kind of plays into some sexist stereotypes with the way that the character became so much more passive um, and she's just sort of very hands-off. She She's, like, very, like, oh, it's, like, not really my responsibility. She's sort of very defensive of the status quo throughout, like, her entire run on the show. And that sense of, like, 
when the doctor was a male character, the doctor was very active in the stories that the character was a part of and like pushed the plot forward. And as soon as the doctor becomes a woman, she becomes a sort of like passive participant that is like on the sidelines of every episode, but doesn't really do anything or change anything actively. Um, and again, I don't know if that is where that comes from um, because Christopher also just like is not good at writing any of the characters on his show. Uh, but it certainly feels sexist when you watch it and you look at what Doctor Who was, look at what Doctor Who became, and you're like, why are you treating it like this? Um, at the very least, like, give her a similar characterization to what came before if you're not interested in exploring the gender aspect. Um, the, like, the worst thing you could do is then to sort of have the gender aspect reflect really regressive, like, stereotypes about women. Yeah. It's just, I... I, you know, I do want to see the Doctor, like, think about this because the Doctor is a thoughtful person and the Doctor would definitely notice that the world would look at them differently, moving through the mm -hmm. world in a different gendered body. Like, there is so much you could do with that. It doesn't have to be the front of mind main thing about the show, but, like, why, why in the first era with a female Doctor were there no stories about that? That's what's weird, right? Like, it's just never really brought up to the level of text. I remember in that Witchfinder one, there's, like, one line about it. And it's like, that's the most I ever saw. And then I, you told me about season 12. It doesn't sound like they did anything with it there. No. Um, yeah. I also want to say, uh, you don't get to brag about doing one, like, standalone multi-part story if it's six episodes. <laughs> yes. Um, that's, like, Russell D. Davis and Stephen Moffat both did, like, four, three or four parters at different points. Like... That's not that's not really like that's not a season of TV. Um, it's a little mini series. That's I don't know the, 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 what the fuck. <laughs> yeah, no, that the, like the news because that was like very quiet because because we knew that there were eight episodes and I think everyone assumed that that was just part of that season and that was like not part of like the main announcement with Christopher all leaving. That was like this extra piece of news that came out also around the same time. That was like oh yeah and actually the season six episodes uh, in twenty twenty one. And then two of those episodes are going to be specials that will air sometime in 2022. Um, so it's just like, okay, yeah, your six episode, like, you're saying that's your one, like, this is a serialized story or however, like, one big story, however they're going to, like, put it together. And we still don't know what that looks like. Um, my big fear with that is that that is an episode count that is small enough that what if Chris Chibnall just is writing all the rest of these episodes and it's not there are no guest writers because that would be the biggest disaster in the history of fucking television i think we know that's not the case i think we have heard from writers let me look this up really quick because i know there was at least one writer from last year who said they were working on this one um uh, maxine alderton who wrote haunting of villa de odati okay um, that was one of the has, okay ones yeah, she's apparently a writer on it. Ed Heim, who wrote It Takes You Away and Orphan 55. Oof. Um, he's on this season. Um, those are the only two we know, though. So, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, you can't have many episodes written by guest writers. Um, because that might... I mean, if that's, like, your two, if that's, like, in the middle, there are two episodes that are guest writer ones that are, like, tangentially connected to the main plot but are a little bit more like standalone episodes. But whatever it is, I mean, a significant portion of the remaining episodes of Doctor Who are certainly going to end up being written by Chris Chibnall because I'm I'm assuming he's going to be writing all three of those specials um because yes. he's done that for all the new year the two new years ones he's done and stuff like that and like as bad as the Chris Chibnall era is 
the worst it is is when he is writing the episode, right? Like it's like occasionally you get a decent one, um, like the the villa one you mentioned. That's the one with uh, 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 all the writers and everything and Frankenstein. Uh, Mary, Mary Shelley, Shelley is in it. Yeah. Um, that episode is like decent and it's probably the best episode they've done in this era entirely because it's mostly just her and you get a very little of the kind of the Chris Chibnall voice in there. Um, so if we're getting a lot of Chris Chibnall episodes of Doctor Who, it'll, it'll only be survivable because they're the last ones. And then after that, <laughs> it's fucking over. And so you can just rip off the goddamn Band-Aid, um, which is you know what I, so I got to say... I really, and I really, really just pray to God that he retcons as much of his own bullshit as uh-huh. he can before he leaves. Because it's not just the the Timeless Child thing. It's like blowing up Gallifrey again and stuff yes. like that. Where yeah. it's like, Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat, I feel like, both left with such an like open-armed approach to like, we have set the table in such a way that you, the next writer, can do anything with this character. Like, I think that's a very, like, big point of, like, the end of the David Tennant era. And then I think Stephen Moffat does it even more self-consciously of, like, the Peter Capaldi era is such a close to, like, Doctor Who as it was. And it ends with Capaldi giving this speech about, like, the sort of core tenets of the Doctor, none of which the next Doctor embodied. Uh And then, like, and then saying goodbye. And, like, the sky was the limit. And if Chris Chimnall is the one who leaves, it's like, I blew up Gallifrey again. And also the Doctor is now not the Doctor and blah 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 and like you just everything's fucked like that is such a selfish like horrible way to end a run and like hand it off to the next generation it would be so frustrating yeah especially after particularly with Stephen Moffat there was such a sense that he took his role as the showrunner to also be effectively like the caretaker for Doctor Who and it's like how much love he clearly had for the show in trying to take the things that Russell T. Davis was very smart and kind of really blowing up a lot of like the expected canon and elements of Doctor Who with like the time war and all of that to bring it back. And that was really effective. But I think Stephen Moffat also recognized that that is not a form of Doctor Who that can continue in perpetuity. You need to restore a certain amount of balance and allow Gallifrey to be a thing that is in play and all that kind of stuff. And maybe reduce some of the grandeur around the character, which he did a little bit through season seven in the Peter Capaldi years. To kind of break down a little bit of that. Everywhere he goes, there are like a thousand myths about how the Doctor is the savior of every single thing in the universe. And kind of shutting down that a little bit. Making it easier to write for the show. Um, And he did so much to kind of like put all the toys back in the toy chest. Um, and say it's like now you can do whatever you want with the show. Yeah, that if Chris Chibnall, if his version of how he leaves the show is basically he, you know, takes a fucking dump on the lawn of Doctor Who and then just doesn't like pick it up and put it back in the fucking trash, um, that would be very frustrating. I think that is probably the best way to describe this era of Doctor Who so far. Um, it sucked. Let's move on. Uh, piece of movie news. I am so fascinated with this, Sean. Mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney because they ripped her off. Yep. And and this is an interesting story. And I want to start. This is an interesting story, not because I am personally invested in how much money Scarlett Johansson has in her bank account. She has enough. What I am invested in here is that Disney, one of the biggest mega corporations on planet Earth, feels like it can just brazenly rip off someone like Scarlett Johansson, which tells you that they feel like they can rip off everyone, Uh right? 
And so that's why this story matters. So what it is, is Johansson this week filed a lawsuit accusing Disney of breaching her Black Widow contract because Black Widow, um, if you haven't seen, came out in theaters in America, but also on Disney+. Plus. You could pay $30 and see it on Disney+. Plus. So it had this simultaneous release. Um, and Black Widow has had a really interesting box office path so far. So it had a really good opening day. And it was estimated to have a pretty good opening weekend. It looked like it was going to open to around $90 million, which would be low among recent Marvel movie openings, but very high for pandemic openings and pretty good considering it was also on streaming and, like, theaters are not at full capacity yet and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Well, then the estimates were adjusted down from $90 million to $80 million, And I have never seen an estimate adjustment that harsh in terms of, like, Saturday night estimates to, like, Monday morning actuals. It was a really heavy... Reworking of that because the movie had a big Friday and then it had a pretty small Saturday and an even smaller Sunday. And that is like, uh, and Friday is usually for Marvel movies the biggest day because of like Thursday night screenings and like fans and all that stuff. But it was like much starker than with any other Marvel movie. And then its second and third weekends have been bad. They've just, it has not done well in theaters since it came out, um, really by any standards, certainly by Marvel standards. But like it had like a 70% drop week to week from week one to two. I think that's the highest Marvel has ever had in all of their mini movies at this point. Um, so it's not doing well. Disney announced that the Premier Access thing had done pretty well. It did in its first weekend at least $60 million over the Premier Access thing. Um, which if you added it up and you said, okay, 80 million plus 60, that would have been a 140 million opening weekend. That's actually totally very, very good for Marvel. That's higher than some, I think that's higher than like Thor Ragnarok or something, if you added it up, which I don't know if you should, but you could. So, okay, seems like it's doing okay, but it's become pretty clear that like Black Widow's box office is very muted. And there are several possible reasons for that, but one of them is probably that it is also out on streaming and I mean, yes, yeah, there's no way that you doing that streaming thing doesn't do anything but hurt what the box office is going to be, right? Because you're right. inevitably you're going to have people, you know, there are going to be some people who saw it on streaming that wouldn't have gone to the theater. Those people exist, but there are also going to be quite a few people who would have gone to the theater, but because you can just stream it at home, the convenience wins out there. Um, like, yes. I don't think there's any way to argue that that didn't hurt those box office numbers. Like, the only way you could argue is like what degree to which it hurt it. And then there's also stuff like on the Disney Plus app, if you don't want to pay for Premier Access, it also tells you when it will be free on Disney Plus. And I think that's in like September. And then also Disney announced over the last week before Johansson's lawsuit that they were going to be releasing the movie on Blu-ray and everything in like August, like in a couple of weeks. So like they completely collapsed the theatrical window. Like this is this movie's getting like maybe 45 days. The typical window for a theatrical release is 90. So this movie is getting a very small theatrical window and that has collapsed its box office. Scarlett Johansson's contract from what we can tell from the lawsuit And this sounds like it's a very, very standard contract for big Hollywood stars, and especially this is how all the Marvel movies have done it with their stars. Robert Downey Jr., all the Chris's, um, everybody has had these kinds of contracts where you get a certain upfront salary, but then you get points on the back end, which means that whatever it makes over like its profit point. So if the movie costs $200 million, once Disney has made $200 million, then the star of the movie shares in the profits. So if you've heard stuff like 
oh my god, Robert Downey Jr. got $50 million for the Avengers. It's not because Disney paid him $50 million up front. They probably paid him around $20 million, and then the Avengers made ungodly amounts of money, and he gets points on the back end, right? And this is very common. The, 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 the star who really innovated this was Jack Nicholson with Batman in 1989. You and I talked about this on the Batman podcast. Mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson especially. I, don't, I actually don't think you even need to adjust for inflation. But if you do, he is still, that is the highest paid any actor has ever been because he got a pretty big back-end package. And then the movie made more money than anyone thought it ever would. And so they had to pay him a lot of money. Um, so anyway, this is pretty standard. The thing about back-end compensation packages is it doesn't work if the movie isn't in theaters long enough. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, these these contracts also typically have language about how long the movie has to play in theaters. A standard theatrical window is 90 days. That's why you usually see a Blu-ray come out three months after a theatrical release because it's a 90-day window. And that obviously you can't put it out on streaming at the same time. So that is why Scarlett Johansson is is suing is because they... Are not. I mean, apparently she just flat out had in her contract that you cannot do a simultaneous streaming release, and I guess they just ignored that clause entirely. But even if that clause doesn't exist, there's also the problem of if you promise someone back-end points and then you cut off the back-end, you have clearly breached the contract in several different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, WB has had to deal with this um, in certain ways. So when Wonder Woman 1989 did its HBO Max release in December... Uh, how they got Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins, who both had back-end profit participation deals, uh, to not sue them is they just gave them a bunch of money. I think they each got like $10 million in exchange for waiving that part of the contract, which makes sense. That's maybe about what they would get from the back-end profit if it made X amount of money, so they just paid them off, basically. Um, Disney did not do that, because Disney thought they could get away with anything, Um And again, why this is disturbing is not so much the Scarlett Johansson of it all. Although, you know, I will note, this is like the second movie that Marvel has made with a female lead. And probably, I I doubt Brie Larson had back-end profit participation. So this is probably the first woman they've given this deal to. Um, Not a great look to rip her off that way. But like you have to think about all the other people who are getting ripped off by this. And part of that goes to theaters. Like, theaters are very angry about this whole thing because they're very clearly being ripped off. Like, they are, they don't get any money from the Disney Plus thing, right? Um, they're just being screwed in every fucking which way. Um, so, yeah, it's bad. Scarlett Johansson filed this lawsuit, and then Disney just went full Brett Kavanaugh on her and, like, started, like, screaming about how Disney were the actual victims here. And they had this whole line about how uh, Scarlett Johansson was showing callous disregard to the pandemic by uh, by not uh, like respecting what a careful situation this all is. And they were like pretending that they did the Disney Plus release like out of the goodness of their hearts because of COVID. Uh, it's it's really fucking gross. Apparently, the Hollywood Reporter has reported that Kevin Feige, the Marvel producer, is also very upset about this because he had been urging Disney behind the scenes. Just don't do the D-plus release. We have a contract with her, and I would really like to not piss off Scarlett Johansson since she's the star of, like, ten of my movies, right? (laughs) So Kevin Feige's mad about this. 
it's bad. You now have Emily Blunt and Emma Stone are also considering similar lawsuits because their Disney movies, Cruella and Jungle Cruise, have gone through the same rigmarole. Um, Paramount is also apparently maybe going to be sued by Emily Blunt because they did a similar thing with A Quiet Place Part 2 where they cut off its theatrical release by doing streaming 45 days in, so they cut the theatrical window by half for that movie. And that movie had been doing phenomenally well in theaters these last couple months. And then because of this streaming release, its box office just died. Um, so I, I am interested in all of this because I have a very strong suspicion that if there are film history textbooks in 50 years, this will be a chapter of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. It is, it is, I think, inevitably going to become like either this case or like this will be the foundation for like, as we're seeing now, like several things coming together that I think are going to set however this plays out, like the standards to go forward with the balance between theatrical and streaming, right? Because like eventually, hopefully we are in a situation where you can't do the Disney thing where you just sort of dangle the pandemic keys in front of everyone's face to be like, no, 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 this is why we did it. And it'll become blatant that like, you know, Disney, Disney profited tremendously by doing what they're doing with the Black Widow thing, not from the theatrical stuff, from the streaming stuff of that. I mean, they get the revenue from selling it that way, but also it makes their platform more attractive, right? And so in the streaming wars that we are in the midst of and everybody is fighting over that subscriber number, like having that content that is like this premium content, um, you know, it's a new movie in like the most successful fucking movie franchise of all time, and and you yeah you can go to the movie theater but what if you just enjoyed it in the comfort of your own living room all you have to do is like you know pay up pay us some money get on the service and then you see oh there's star wars is here oh that ducktales cartoon i think my kids would love that like all that kind of shit right um so they're profiting tremendously from what they've been doing in a number of different ways but in so doing they are blatantly violating their contract um with Scarlett Johansson and just yeah as you say like fucking basically every other person that's a part of that kind of whole theatrical ecosystem uh and just fucking them all over and it is extremely frustrating because it just feels like it's it's just it's so blatant it's so obvious they have absolutely no leg to stand on and you know that they don't because their defense is this very like five-year-old like, why are you getting mad at me? There are bad things. Like, there are worse things happening in the world than us ripping you off. Like, why aren't you going... Like, there's children starving in Africa. Why don't you care about them? All you care about is your money? Like, that's <laughs> basically what they're doing, right? Yes. It's this incredibly childish... Like, there are things in the world that are worse than what's happening... than what we're doing to you. So you're just being all weird about this. Like, if you're on your moral high horse, go do something important. Like, go do stuff about the fucking pandemic. It's like, fuck off, Disney. There's no... That's not a fucking legal argument. It's it's just utterly Right, bizarre. like if you are on trial for murder, you don't get to go, well, Jeffrey Dahmer also fucked the bodies. I didn't do that. And they're like, exactly. okay, good point. You get off. Right, or yeah, or it'd be like if you, yeah, you like killed someone who had a terminal illness. And you're like, oh, it's not murder because they were going to die eventually anyway. It's just like, <laughs> what the fuck? That's not a legal argument. Like you're not making an argument against the thing that you did. You're just like trying to distract people by talking to someone that seems relevant but isn't in any way. Um, yeah. And yeah. I also want to point out, if Disney Plus made $80 million in theaters on Black Widow opening weekend and $60 million on Disney Plus, they pocketed way more from the uh-huh. Disney Plus money. 
because the Disney Plus money is 100% theirs. There might be a little bit that goes to royalties to like Scarlett Johansson and the other people in that movie, but those are royalties, not back-end participation. It's a very, very different level of money, and they don't have to pay anything to theaters or to partners or anyone because they own the movie, they made the movie, they own the platform, they made the platform. That $60 million goes straight in their bank, whereas the $80 million in theaters has to be split among profit participants in the movie, and it has to be split with theaters and all this other stuff, so they see less of that. That's why they want to do this. That's why everyone wants a streaming service is because it's a money printing machine. And part of why it's a money printing machine is that contracts have not yet been updated to reflect the streaming reality so they can more easily cut people out of the money. Mm -hmm. That's why everyone wants a streaming service. Right? Yeah. And, and this is just like hopefully what comes out of this is you know, some sort of settlement that, that creates that groundwork for where movies are going, that, like, if the streaming stuff is, like, going to be a element of, like, the theatrical the way that movies are released now, right? And, and whether it's day and date, there's a streaming version, or a month in, there's a streaming version. However, like, that's going to eventually evolve in the years to come. Um, like, I don't think we're ever putting that genie back in the bottle. Like, I don't think after it becomes a thing where you can have full capacity theaters across America, I don't think that then suddenly all these movie studios are just going to go back to the way things were. Um, I think it's too, way too late for that. And they're seeing a lot of the benefits, as you're saying, to doing this streaming uh, kind of like hybrid release format. Now, hopefully this lays the groundwork to make that a thing that's much more equitable for the people who are not the, like, trillion-dollar companies, you know? Um, and, and, you know, not just Scarlett Johansson, but, like, the other people that put a lot of work and do a lot of stuff that makes that movie what it is. Like, Black Widow would not make anywhere near the amount of money it had if it wasn't Scarlett Johansson. She's one of the most bankable stars in Hollywood. It's like... You know, do I think anybody should have like tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars? No, that's an absurd and disgusting sum of money. But if that money is going to go somewhere, I would rather a lot of it go to Scarlett Johansson than fucking, you know, lining the cop the pockets of the executives at fucking Disney. Yeah, like I hate shit. the argument. I hate the argument you hear sometimes of like, well, they're overpaid anyway. It's like, well, one, if there's contract language, it doesn't really matter what you think. Like it's law. And two, like... If the movie's making, uh, like, I always thought this with Robert Downey Jr. People would be like, oh my god, $45 million for Robert Downey Jr., that's crazy. And I'm like, well, the Avengers made $2 billion. And if you don't think he was worth at least $45 million of that, you're an insane person, right? So, yeah. like, yeah, maybe no one, sh maybe all $2 billion of that Avengers money should go to starving children in Africa. That'd be great. But that's not the world we live in, sadly. So, you know. It's it's it is fascinating. Like, and, and I'm very curious to see where this is going to go because I think this is going to be a pretty long process. Yeah. Um, Disney has very good, very expensive lawyers. So, um, even if even if the arguments they make, at least like in this outset, are fucking unbelievably stupid, they know how to tie <laughs> up the legal process and do all all that kind of shit. So, this will be a long right. ongoing thing. But I think it's going to be very important for the movie business going forward. Absolutely. Two pieces of video game news. First, let's do the easy one. This is an easy, digestible one. Uh -huh. uh, Jason Schreier reported this week in Bloomberg that Sony will be delaying Horizon 1 Dawn. I don't remember its actual name. Forbidden uh, West. 
Horizon Forbidden West. Okay, I just wrote it down as Horizon One Dawn. Um, they'll be delaying that to 2022. This was always seemingly a possibility. They had mm-hmm. wanted it out this fall. They, I mean, at one point they'd wanted it out this summer, I think. Um, it sounds like they were going to formally announce this delay at a September state of play, but Jason Schreier got the scoop on them. Um, and so this game will seemingly be a 2022 game. I guess the reason I find this interesting, shot like game being delayed, especially in the midst of a pandemic, not news. I don't really yeah. like, who cares? Especially like, because they had already kind of like, backed away from a like because that last state of play they were less specific about the release window than they were when they had originally announced the game whenever that happens when they're like yeah we said like whatever it was like fall 2021 whatever it was and then they're like maybe sometime later this year is kind of the way they framed it as soon as you're using that kind of language you're like yeah this is probably not going to come out in fall which is fine like it's you know games get delayed all the time anyways Especially during a pandemic, you know, to delay your game, I want it to be good when it comes out. And so totally. take the time you need. Yeah, I take however much time you need. I'm glad about that. The reason I find this interesting, Sean, is that Horizon One Dawn, we already know, will be a PS4, PS5 cross-gen game. Mm-hmm. They also confirmed that the God of War sequel, which is already pegged to 2022, will be a PS4, PS5 cross-gen game. Which means that in the the third year of the PS5, second full year, we'll still be getting major first-party titles that are cross-gen. And that's pretty late in the game, and it kind of shows an overall feeling we've had, I think, in this generation so far, which is that for a lot of different reasons, some of which are pandemic-related, some of which are just evolving technology, it's been a little slower to kind of, like, rev up the full, like, exclusive engine, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And... Part of that, like, that I find interesting is that if you go back to the PS4, I went and looked this up, and I went up and looked Sony Interactive Entertainment published games. And in 2015, which was the equivalent year for the PS PS4, there was only one SIE published game on the PS3 that year, and it was MLB The Show. Um, they were already fully exclusive to the PS4 by that year, and we're not doing that this year, or this time. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Part of that is the pandemic. Part of that is that there's just a bajillion PS4s in the wild. Part of it is that the architecture of the PS4 and PS5 are way more similar than the PS3 and the PS4, so it's much easier to do this. But it does kind of make me, just having come off of like Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, I'm really kind of wondering like, "Ah, so that means like we're not going to see the Guerrilla Games only PS5 exclusive PS5 game for years now. Like the the God of War, the Sony Santa Monica game, it's going to be... If we ever see it on the PS5, like, this could be a long time. You know, I assume Naughty Dog's next game will be a PS5 exclusive. Like, anyone we haven't heard from yet, like Naughty Dog or whatever um, the the Ghost of Tsushima people, Sucker Punch, wind up making will certainly be a PS5 exclusive. But it is kind of interesting to me. Um, and, and I think it shows just that this... One, I, I am guessing this generation will be longer than the last few generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that it's just it's a little less of a hard break than we've had in the past. Yeah. I think also there's like, there's a good chance that there might be stuff in the pipeline that is PS5 exclusive that we don't know about. Like this isn't necessarily every single game that Sony is going to be. Right. We don't necessarily know every single game they're going to put out, I guess. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is definitely, I'll be, I, I guess like one thing I'll be very curious to see is what is the PS4 versions of some of these games going to look like? Because when at that state of play that they did a month or so ago for Forbidden West, like it was hard to look at it and see the like 
how does this run on PS4? Um, it like it was pushing the envelope in, in ways that I'm curious to see like what does that look like um specifically for i think it's gran turismo is the one that we know they're also going to be doing a ps4 version for but we know that they that's like a thing that they have recently sort of decided to start working on i think just because of the the supply constraint issues they're like we need to fucking make sure that they're like for there's a version of this game that the ps4 can play also um where we know that the horizon thing it has always had a ps4 version in the works but um so I think that it's, it'll be interesting to see what are the kind of like differences between the PS4 versions and the PS5 versions of this and then whatever God of War 2 even is. We haven't seen anything from that game other than a logo. We, we don't even technically know the title yet. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, I think you're right that it's going to be a slow process to getting that sort of whole machine revving up on like true blue full next gen exclusives or current gen exclusives um, at this point. But it is also going to I think be I think we're in for probably like like a maybe 10 year long console cycle at this point. Uh, I think with like how delayed this whole process is with the supply constraints and everything else. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. Because I, you know, you look at something like Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, which definitely could not have been made on the PS4. There's yeah. no version of that that could run on PS4. Um, unless just every Rift you had a three minute loading screen, which would be a bundle of fun. You know, like, I, I already think you're seeing a ton of holes in, like, Xbox's strategy here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that Microsoft Flight Simulator was announced as cross-gen, and then they cut that off, and it's only Series S and X. Um, there's a game out this week on Xbox called The Ascent. It's the cyberpunk game that everyone says is better than Cyberpunk 2077. Um, that looks really good. I actually really do want to play that game. I just haven't picked it up yet. Um, that is on both Xbox One and Xbox Series X. But the Xbox One and Xbox One X versions run like garbage. Like, they can't even hit 30 FPS. They load. It takes, like, like literally, like, Eurogamer did a test on this. It's, like, a 20-second load screen on the Series S and Series X. And it is three minutes on the Xbox God. One. Like, it's stuff like that where, like, okay, clearly these, like... Clearly, like, the power differential between these systems is just too big to be doing, like, cross-gen games as much as we're trying to do it. You know, and like the God of War one is the one that really disappoints me because I just can look at what like what they did with God of War 2018 and go, yes, I want them to do the Ratchet and Clank thing with God of War because it would be so crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, so part of what I'm saying with like, we don't know what like the difference between these cross-gen versions are is it's making me think about the tail end of the cross-gen thing we did with the PS4 generation where you're getting into 2014 was like really the end of that being a major thing um, outside of like your Maddens and as you say, MLB The Show, right. like your sort of annual franchises that would continue to do that. I think FIFA probably still puts out a fucking PS2 version of their game um, every year that's just like, hey, we name, re rename the characters by whoever is like the soccer people that are playing today. Um, but so when you had that tail end of that, you had games like you know, Dragon Age Inquisition had an Xbox 360 and PS3 version. The one I like to think of is Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor had one, but the um, Nemesis system, which was basically what that game was, was not in the 360 PS3 version because the CPU was couldn't handle, like, keeping track of all that stuff and doing all the complex AI shit that you needed to do to have the Nemesis system function. And so that's like... 
basically just a completely neutered version of your game. If you're taking out the marquee system, the thing that everybody that played that game that liked it, or even if I didn't love that game, but that was the cool part about the game, the thing you were marketing it on, the thing you had developers talking about in interviews, clearly the thing like, like is the most innovative, interesting thing in the whole game. If the only way to put that on your Xbox 360 PS3 is to rip that system out of the game entirely, it's like... I did that that to me feels like well then probably the PS4 Xbox One version of that game was not held back that much by the fact that there had to be a cross gen right. version. Um so there's like a decent chance that that is what we're going to end up seeing is here is some like weird version of Horizon um Forbidden West or God of War 2 that is like 720p on a PS4 Pro or some crazy shit like that just to like desperately try to get it to run. Like that's not outside the realm of possibility. Um for where we're going with with like i think just like the practicalities of trying to make these experiences on both hardware platforms and the disparity in power level and the need in a lot of different ways to please the hardcore fan base and to advertise your game effectively to make the shiny version that's on the newer and most powerful console as impressive as it can be because that's the thing that is going to get people to buy that game even if they're buying it on the ps4 they're going to buy it because they saw the fucking trailers that show off the, the gorgeous ps5 version so we're in for just a bunch of cyberpunk 2077 yes. style fraud is what you're saying? Yes. I think that, okay. I, I, I think that that is probably like where we're heading is you're going to get deeply heavily compromised versions of games. Like not just like Sony. I think like the cross-gen games to come, that is going to be my guess. Is you're going to have some very interesting episodes of Digital Foundry looking at <laughs> games that look like if you saw the one that was Ark Survival Evolved on the Switch that like you can't even tell that that's a fucking video game because of how like fucked up it looks i think we might be in for that wonderful yep well speaking of bad shit um blizzard and activision's uh dumpster fire continued this week you had bobby kotick the ceo of activision blizzard issue a yeah that was totally tone deaf where we blamed all of our employees for us mistreating our employees lol sorry about that he did a statement about that this was followed by an open letter from Blizzard uh, Activision employees with 2,600 signees uh, that was followed by a major walkout on Friday where people walked out of the company. More than 1,000 employees participated in that walkout, making demands on, on Blizzard, uh, Activision Blizzard. Employees at Ubisoft also got in on all of this with an open letter uh, and a walkout because um, people are paying attention again and Ubisoft employees were like, hey... This was a thing a year ago here, and literally nothing has been fixed. It's just a bunch of band-aids and nice words. These people suck. So Ubisoft was doing that. There has been a bunch of extra reporting on all of this, um, including a piece on Kotaku about the Cosby suite that God. they would have at um, E3 that just... Heavy trigger warning if you're going to go read that piece. It's awful. Um, there's a lot of bad stuff in there. There was a story about a... Uh, Kotaku also had an interesting story... Uh, that they called Blizzard once slapped with a misogyny tax, which was basically about a contractor they worked with who was uh, very heavily mistreated by people at Blizzard. And so when they when Blizzard next asked to work with them, they gave them a bill, uh, a, a like quote that also included a fifty percent misogyny tax on any bill, business they did with Blizzard um, to like pay back for how Blizzard awful Blizzard was with them. Um, it, it's a long story. It was more than just that, but it is terrible and and like again this has been out there for a while basically 
Um, Fran Townshend, the former Bush torture apologist who now works for uh, Activision Blizzard and gave that first statement blaming all of the employees. Uh, Jason Schreier pointed out on Twitter uh, this morning that she sent out a tweet this week with an article mocking whistleblowers that then Mm. a bunch of Blizzard employees were like talking and like saying, hey, why would you do this? And she just has been blocking them all on Twitter, her own employees. Um, so definitely, like, I think the overall tone of Blizzard right now is active contempt towards its staff, um, and basically just trying to write it out without doing anything, because you just keep getting these statements from executives and people in charge where it's either the Fran Townshend thing where they're using, again, the, um, the, the, the Brett Kavanaugh defense of, like, just screaming and crying and pretending like they're the victim here, or they're doing the thing of like, oh man, this is so bad. I didn't know. It's so, I'm so sorry I didn't know. I love Gloria Steinem. I, please, please forgive me. Um, and they're all liars and they should all quit and be fired. Is my point of view. Yeah, no, it's just, yeah, the, the continuing stream of like of some of the details of things that have been happening. Um, like that Cosby suite is a big one. Um, it's just... You look at it, and you're like, wow, like, what the fuck? Um, it's like, it is, like, some of it really kind of goes beyond the pale of, of, it's hard to fathom how the fuck this shit could go on for so long. Because it truly is, like, just deeply disgusting um, and, like, offensive on a, like, human level to just even contemplate that this is a thing that people were doing and like so many people were doing and actively participant in um yeah it's just it's really awful like it's i i don't think i've seen anything looking like seeing some of the details like i don't think i've seen anything quite like this that is like this extreme and this pervasive it's terrible I want to read a little thing here. Um, this is from a game developer named Mike Selinker. He is the president of Lone Shark Games, an indie studio, but he has also done some contract work with Activision Blizzard in the past. Um, he, he did the tabletop RPG adaptations of Diablo and StarCraft. And he had a Facebook post this week that just sums up so much of this because there's also an intersection with politics here that I think is really important to talk about. And so I just want to read a little bit of his words because he puts this more uh, gracefully than I think I could and with more information. So he says, I want to talk about why I think these problems will not be addressed. Activision Blizzard's hiring record the last couple years is abysmal. I don't mean in the rank and file. I know at least half a dozen people who've joined Blizzard in the last few years and they're top flight. What I'm talking about is the C-suite, which has been so thoroughly polluted with bad people that it needs a complete overhaul. These are people I've been watching damage America as part of the last two Republican administrations and have been horrified to see appear at one of my favorite game companies. If Activision Blizzard wants to change, it needs to start by firing a significant portion of its executive team. When California issued its lawsuit, I was not remotely surprised by Activision Blizzard's response, which can best be described as the Brett Kavanaugh defense. That's what I've been saying, too. It's very Mm -hmm. true. Uh, It was an attempt to scream the problem out of the room. It made perfect sense to me that this leadership team would issue that statement. Let's start with the company's executive VP for corporate affairs, Fran Townshend, who was the Bush administration's third of four Homeland Security advisors. The hurricane, as she was called, was a primary advocate of torture as policy. She was in that job as the Abu Ghraib revolutions came to light, defending the uses of waterboarding, forced nudity, sleep deprivation, and the like. The fact that a torture defender became the chief compliance officer at a game company is staggering. 
The fact that a torture defender is, get this, the executive sponsor of its employee women's network is even worse. And one of the demands of the recent walkout is that she stepped down from this position after she issued a tone-deaf response to the allegations. As bad as Townshend is, Activision Blizzard topped themselves by hiring Trump admin Undersecretary of State and Mike Pompeo sycophant Brian Blatow as its chief administration officer. Before the State Department, he was Pompeo's chief operating officer at the CIA. He was Pompeo's attack dog. The State Department's Inspector General described him as a bully, running the department under a cloud of intimidation. He also showed how Bolatow would report it would repeatedly ignore potential illegalities committed by the state employees. Also under Bolatow, state spending on domestic travel and use of government staff for personal benefit to the secretary went way up. And there's the whole ousting of career ambassadors like Marie Ivanovich, which Bolatow oversaw. But why stop with two Republican admin defenders of the unthinkable? Activision Blizzard's recently acquired chief legal officer, Grant Dixton, was Bush's associate counsel. Dixton was second in command to Alberto Gonzalez, the primary advocate of warrantless surveillance in the Bush admin. Under Gonzalez and Dixton, the White House counsels led the charge for legal authorization of torture. Everything that Fran Townshend defended, Dixton provided the legal underpinnings for. He then parlayed that job to becoming general counsel for our local defense contractor, Boeing. I would not be surprised if Activision Blizzard's ham-fisted statement in response to the California suit was written by Dixton. Finally, as the waves of criticism and employee protest overran Activision Blizzard's corporate suite, the company hired the law firm of Wilmer Hale to investigate. Fantastic news, right? Actually, no. Wilmer Hale is directly connected to Townshend and is particularly known for its expertise in union busting, literally the thing that stops accountability on a corporate level. This is not an independent investigation. It's an investigation to insulate the corporation from consequences. And I would add, me, Jonathan, that Wilmer Hale is also the company that Amazon uses for union busting. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did a tweet when Bobby Kotick did, gave his statement where he said, hey, we're hiring this legal team that you can call, where I tweeted and said, everyone at Blizzard should probably be very wary of that because that is probably a like rat you know, catching like uh, yeah, hotline to Blizzard. Yeah, some fucking Pinkerton like, bullshit, yeah. basically. Exactly. Um, Rat, as Blizzard would see it, not as I would see it. Uh, And then we find out, yeah, the company they hired was Wilmer Hale. I just wanted to read all that because it is it is staggering. Like this is it's it's all the people who have helped ruin America working at Blizzard to torture their employees, basically. Yeah. And and like one of the things that happens is when you have that top like executive and managerial level that is so thoroughly corrupt and disgusting and doesn't give a shit. And it's just like, you know, I mean, the one thing you'll note about all those people is none of them know what the fuck a video game is, right? Like what are they even doing in this goddamn company? They're just sitting there because they are friends with Bobby Kotick or whatever. Like they played golf with some other executive at Activision enough that they're like, Hey, sit over in this chair once every two years and you'll get millions of dollars from our company. Um, but when you have that level of corruption up at the top, it then you get this like, and this is part of where you see with the specific allegations and everything that's been coming out, this like Lord of the Flies-esque quality where the a lot of the people that are awful fucking people that work at that company that would normally like, you wouldn't know how awful they are or like what kind of people they are because enough systems in place keep them in check that they're not acting on their like worst possible impulses when none of those systems are in place and instead you have this like structure that is basically advocating for and encouraging this like deeply misogynistic um predatory behavior 
you're going to get people acting out in that way. Um, and it, it is just this thing that is very hard to look at because it's so sad um, to think about how many people that are working at that company that are good people, that care about their job, that love the games that Activision and the games that Blizzard have made, um, and to have them be treated like objects and tools to be like leered at or harassed or um, joked at or acted against in violent or sexual ways. It's just so deeply fucking upsetting and fucked up. Um, and yeah, it's all those people at the top need to be like fired. I mean, all those people at the top should be in fucking jail, um, actually. Like they should be like, not even for, I mean, for this stuff also, but for the stuff they did before. Uh, yes. Like most of these are people that like, they should have been tried by the fucking Hague and because they're war criminals that have advocated torture and shit like that. Um, you know, anybody who was an insider within the Bush administration shouldn't be outside of a fucking cell. Um, and so the fact that they're instead, you know, they have somehow this like scum has like washed up onto Activision Blizzard shores is very upsetting for all the people, the good people at that company that just want to make cool games and make a StarCraft or make a Call of Duty or whatever and have a good time and, and enjoy like making something that they really care about. I guess I find it so depressing because when I think about what would actually, what would fix this? What would... And, and how do we define fix this? And for me, fix this would be restoring employee trust, right? And that people yeah. feel good going to work, right? Like, as a very, maybe that sounds basic, but like, well, yeah, how else would you just good, like feeling safe. Safe. Like, feeling that's safe. the most basic level. Like, yeah. obviously you want people to be happy and, and excited and feel fulfilled yeah. by going to whatever their job is. But like, the bare minimum is like the legal and moral responsibility of Activision is for their employees to feel safe at their right. fucking job. Okay, so let's say that's the, the, the baseline. What would need to happen? I think you would need to have, and I think this is also true of Ubisoft, I think you need mass executive resignations. I think, like at Ubisoft, you need Yves Guimont gone. I don't think he can be there and have yeah. employees feel safe at this point. Uh, and at, at Activision Blizzard, all the, I think the entire C-suite needs to go. I think many probably of the managers throughout the company need to go. I think you need to have mass executive and managerial resignation. Uh, you had, need to have unionizing. Um and you probably need to have some actual independent investigation, which is actually happening with Blizzard because of the California lawsuit, yes. right? Like, there is a government agency looking into them. Um, Ubisoft, that would have to be through Canadian authorities, and I don't know how all of that works. But, like, you would need to have all of that. Um, and I, other than the, the California thing is actually happening, it's hard for me to see any of the other things happening. Like, mm -hmm. those executives will go... Like when they are dead or when they are pulled kicking and screaming by like the authorities, right? Like that's what will happen to them. And then, you know, clearly like like if if Activision's like first move after hearing this was to hire the union busting team, like they are not going to allow unionizing. Yeah. So I'm very depressed about this entire situation. And I guess I would feel like if you're working at Activision Blizzard and you have any other opportunities, you should probably take them. Yes. Yeah. It is. It is. Like, I think, like, the house has to burn down, right? Like, and either yeah. that happens because you, you know, the thing that, as you say, is almost impossible and I can't imagine happening, which is getting that executive level completely vacated or the house burns down because every, all the employees leave. Um, but, like, I think one of those two needs to happen. Um, yeah, and it, it sucks, you know, it, as, as someone who, like, grew up specifically with, like, the Blizzard side, 
those being many of my favorite games when I was a kid and Blizzard always having this image that obviously is like a, a very PR thing and all that and this very naive thing from that early video game days and me being so young but Blizzard as a company had this image of being like such a cool place they made such interesting innovative games that like they you know they put out their game when it was ready they didn't rush it out like they had that reputation um that I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than than what it seems on the outside but for it to have like decayed so far to like see this just like deeply rotten core for them and and for Activision is it's awful yep I think that says it all for now um not at all there's a lot more you could say but it's what we're gonna say you want to go ahead and talk about something a little more fun yeah let's let's end the sad talk and let's talk about a really good thing uh because it's time Jonathan for us to get back on our Gundam bullshit and finish up talking about mobile suit Gundam Age Gundam Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here, Jonathan, to talk about the end of an age, because we're talking about the end of Mobile Suit Gundam Age. We're talking about uh, either arcs three and four or just arc three. I kind of just think of it as being one big third arc. Um, but we're talking about episodes 29 to 49, which is the ending of Gundam Age. We've, of course, covered the first two arcs, which is episodes 1 to 28 on last week's episode. Or not last week, because this is not a weekly show. Two weeks ago, we talked about that. Um, and then we are also going to touch on the OVA kind of compilation two-part thing they did called uh, Memory of Eden, which kind of compiles together some of the stuff about uh, Asimu and uh, Zayhart's relationship. But we are here to kind of just finish up our discussion on Gundam Age and see how this um, show wrapped up. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'll say, I last week, last time we recorded on Weekly Suit Gundam, I said, you know, I really like Gundam Age. And I used the word like very specifically because I would have said, like, this show has a lot of great stuff. It's very interesting. It's got some weak parts here and there. And so, you know, I don't think it's absolute top shelf Gundam. I don't love it in the way I love original Gundam or, you know, um, Zeta or something like that. But I think it's a good show. And I will say, having now finished it, I will elevate it to love. I love mm. Mobile Suit Gundam Age. I think it is a great show. I think it is an imperfect show. It is not... I still wouldn't put it at, like, the top, like, S-tier Gundam. But I would put it above some shows that I did not think I would have ranked it above when we do our final rankings. And I think it is... A fantastic Gundam series that is easily of everything we've watched by far the most underrated thing in this franchise like it oh, yeah. is like you know because like something like After War Gundam X isn't very well known but I feel like the people who know it like it Gundam Age is one that is actively reviled in some circles and I just think that's stupid I think this show is really deeply special in a lot of ways I think these third and fourth arcs only solidify how much I like it. I think the third arc is really smart and has some of the best stuff in the whole show. I think the fourth arc has a couple of rocky episodes and then builds to, I think, one of the best endings any Gundam show has. I think the final couple episodes of Gundam Age are fucking spectacular. Uh, and overall, I am extremely positive on this show and I am very, ha I'm so pleasantly surprised. There's no other Gundam we've watched where I went in kind of thinking like, I, I was dread. I wasn't dreading Gundam Age, but I knew it had a lesser reputation, and so I thought this one was maybe going to be a little bit more of a chore, and it absolutely was not. This is a diamond in the rough. I love this show. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'm, like, as deeply positive on it, uh, but I really like Gundam Age a lot. Like, I would think I would agree with the stuff that we have watched so far. This is definitely the most deeply underrated Gundam show. It feels like a Gundam show that just never, like, got a fair shake. Um, that I think people sort of saw it as, like, hey, it's just a Gundam for kids. It looks like a Yokai Watch thing or an Inazuma 11 thing, I guess, in, in the context of the time. And they just kind of dismissed it. Um, but it's doing so much stuff that's so interesting. It's got this core premise that I think is just absolute fire, which is having your three Gundam boys covering like a hundred years, basically, of this war between the Earthlings and the Vegans. Um, and I think it has like its messiness, you know, I think particularly Arc 1 um, has some stuff that, that's pretty rocky. Um, and then I think, you know, I think it is a show that inevitably bites off maybe more than it can fully chew in the sense of like, I mean, it has three fucking protagonists. It's a huge story. And so it has some pacing issues, I think, um, as it kind of comes into the home stretch. But it's a great example of a show that like, even if it has some of that messiness in places, it knows where to commit its energy that's most important and it pulls off and like nails absolutely all the major beats it needs to and all the major story arcs all the three main characters flit asamu and kyo all get really great climaxes to their stories that resonate with each other um and yeah i think it's a very very smart show um that i honestly wish it could have had like like looking at the whole run something about like maybe like five to seven maybe eight more episodes and what it has to like flesh out a little bit of that pacing and allow some stuff to breathe um and i think that would maybe for me if it could have done that pushed it into that like absolute like great gundam level um but as it stands it is among the best au shows that we have watched um and i think it is one that if people have not really kind of committed to um and maybe they kind of toss it off or just like thought like uh you watched the first five episodes and didn't like it and, and dropped it there it is one that very much rewards you going through and watching it all the way and it's one that i think is very rewarding on a rewatch um, because it's one i think i enjoy gundam age more on having watched it again particularly that early stuff knowing where the show is going and seeing them build up particularly with flit as a character and the thoughtfulness with which they approach that character from the very beginning um, it is a really smart show. That's a really good time. Absolutely. And this is one I'm excited to revisit one day because one of my overall just theses reactions to it is that this is a show that sets up some very fundamental ideas in episode one, like with mm -hmm. the idea of flit and legacy and the Gundam as a savior and that view. And then in episode 49, the finale, it pays off on those ideas yes. very directly and very fulsomely as beautifully and as perfectly as I could imagine those ideas being paid off on. And I think, and, and maybe that sounds basic, but that is something a lot of shows, including some Gundam shows we really like, have not done perfectly, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of just TV shows that are not Gundam do not manage to do. And I think I am I am willing to forgive bigger pockets of messiness than I think even this show has if you can have an arc that clear-headed that you execute that well, especially with the high concept of this show where that point A to point B is not just Flit, it's two sons, a son and a grandson, who are integral to the continuation of that A to B journey. I think yeah. what this show is doing is extremely smart and soulful, and I really, really what solidified it for me is I think the last three episodes mm -hmm. are stupendous episodes. I think they are like at times like Tomino finale level good in how 
well-directed they are, in how smart they are in bringing all of these themes and characters together, in how clear-headed this show is about its own ideas. You know, it is, it's like the anti-Gundam Seed Destiny in certain places, where it's just like, yes. as messy and like that show did not know what it wanted to be about, Gundam Age has just a sheer clarity to it that I find really invigorating. And again, I can forgive a lot of messiness if you've got that overarching clarity, and I do think this show has it. 100%. And and it ends up with, like, something that I felt coming into it. Like, the main reason I, I was... The thing I was excited about rewatching Gundam Age 4 was I just remember loving the character of Flit specifically so much. Yeah. And coming out of it, he is um, amongst the best Gundam boys. Because he's not just a Gundam boy. He's a Gundam boy and a Gundam man and a Gundam grandpa. Um, <laughs> and, and seeing that journey... And the fullness of that character arc. Um, it's just one of the most rewarding characters in this entire franchise, which is saying a fucking thing, because there are some really brilliant characters across the history of Gundam. And Flit, I think, like stands amongst the best as one of the most interesting characters this franchise has produced. I mean, it is the special thing that Gundam Age has that no other Gundam can lay claim to, which is that it tells the story of a man's life. Yeah. The entire thing. I, I guess you can say that with Amuro. The difference is Amuro, like, dies in his 30s. And Flit does have this full, like, you know, when we end the series, he's a 70-year-old man, right? And we have seen him basically because he, he was born on the day this conflict started. We go from, like, birth to past the, if you go with the epilogue, past the death of this man. And we see this entire lifelong journey. And we see how other generations of his own you know progeny play into it and there's just there's no other Gundam that tries something quite like that and it's it's also just cool to go to like 2011 Gundam's 30 some years old now and it's still doing stuff that it's never done before there's a lot in Gundam Age that is like recapitulating and redoing themes that we've seen in other shows including very recently like like um, Ezel Kant's whole plan is very reminiscent of the Destiny plan in Gundam Seed Destiny, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's a lot of stuff in here that is very similar to Kira in Gundam Seed. But I think they're the things that make this special make it really, really special. Absolutely, 100%. So, yeah. so we already covered all the, the history. Like, there's no, there's no, like, and then secretly halfway through the show, here's the surprise, like, extra history section. I mean, it's all the same stuff. Obviously, it's the same staff, all that, uh, just continuing on. Um, so where do you want to start, Jonathan, with talking about this second half of well, Gundam Age? I have a specific place I want to start. But before that, just on the history point, I do just want to say, it's, it's, you know, this is one forty-nine episode run. There was no break. We added a break, but there was no break while airing. And this is the only full-length Gundam show like this since Zeta that doesn't have a recap special, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Double uh, O doesn't have one either, but Double O aired in season, so it doesn't quite count for that. There is one episode near the beginning of the fourth arc that has several extra-length flashbacks where I very much went, hmm, they, they needed some extra time in this episode, but it does not have a full recap special. And overall, like, I do think there's a little bit of, like, you can tell the animation they, they pull back on in the fourth arc so that they can afford the last three episodes. Uh -huh. But overall, for a 49-episode year-long show with no break, it's a pretty impressive production, I, I think, if you judge it for what it actually is, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think it is one of the smoothest year-long shows that is in the Gundam franchise. I mean, there's a reason yeah. why the franchise, in like, the anime industry in general, has moved away from this structure. Um 
but yeah, absolutely. Like I sus- one thing I'm surprised at honestly is that there isn't a recap episode. Like it feels like you know it ends at 49 episodes, which is like a slightly awkward. Like normally you would go for a like 50 to 52 would be your normal uh, four core or a whole year run. Um, I'm kind of surprised that there isn't just like hey here's between you know the Asamu and Kyo stuff here's a recap episode or something because there's a lot of space to do one of those. Um, but it's kind of nice that they don't because it just makes it easier for me to watch it because it's like oh now i don't have to worry about do i bother sitting through this like is there going to be the one scene that like is like hidden in the recap that is actually vital you know like you know seed and seed dusty both have that problem um this you don't have to worry about it and yeah it is a very uh impressive production for sure yeah but where i want to start because you you asked me where should we start and i want to start with keo who is our third protagonist our third gundam boy and I think Keo is a great character who is absolutely integral to this show working. Mm-hmm. He is, like, if you were to ask me, like, who's your favorite Gundam boy in the series? It's not Keo. I don't think Keo is going to be anyone's answer. But I also think that's by design. And it's something yeah. that I already have seen on Twitter, like, some people saying, like, yeah, but Keo is such a bore or something. And I couldn't disagree more strongly, in part because I think the show knows exactly what it needs from that third character. It knows exactly how to differentiate him from the other two. And I think the stories it allows them to tell are different, which is very important for this like three-tier structure they do. But also, it is he is the key that ultimately unlocks the overall thematic journey of this show. And I think, I think Keo deserves more respect, because I think he is as integral to the tapestry that is Gundam Age as either Flit or Asamu. Uh, and the show, and also like the show doesn't like sell him short. The show does not pull a Shin Asuka with him and just kick him out so that they can finish Flit's arc, right? They, he is as important in the finale as he is when we meet him, if anything, even more so. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think it's that thing where I think that like audiences just, like are occasionally bad at understanding like why a show or a story is working and so it's it's very much i think about this a lot in terms of pirates of the caribbean where they made that choice for the fourth movie where they're like oh we should just make why isn't jack sparrow just the main character like why do we have to have this will turner dude is like the reason why people get to like jack sparrow is because he's not the main character right because if you have your super eccentric main character thing then jack sparrow has all these narrative duties put on that character's shoulders that don't make him interesting anymore um, and, and you then have like the reverse side of it is like, people are like, oh, but this Will Turner guy, he's just a wet rag. So like, he needs to be a wet rag for you to like Jack Sparrow, right? Like, like these <laughs> characters exist in a narrative context, um, that like none of the characters exist on their own. So yeah, like I Orlando agree, like, Bloom walks so Johnny Depp can run, right? Basically. Yeah. Like you need to have that dynamic because if you had him be this like super interesting, weird over the top character, then there's no room. Like they're all, then he's sucking the oxygen that Captain Jack Sparrow needs to be an interesting character in that Pirates movie. Um, And Keo, I think is like, it's a similar thing where Flit and Asimu, particularly Asimu, I think like stand out a lot on their own as like their Gundam boys. And Asimu is the one that gets, I think like the most, drama you know he gets the like the really big personal arc his whole drama with his dad his thing with wolf the love triangle between him romery and zayhart um and so they really build him up to be this like really charismatic really likable character um and then you get keo who's a lot more of like a standard gundam boy like he he's got a lot of uso in him from victory gundam like he's got that innocence he's much younger he reads i think even younger than he's supposed to be 
Um, and so it's not the character that you're going to like, I think it's going to be your absolute fave or whatever. Um, but it is a character that he needs to be like that because he also has to share the stage with his pirate dad and <laughs> fucking grandpa Gundam, right? Like, like yes. he, he has to coexist with those protagonists way more heavily than Asamu has to coexist with Flit in his arc because Kyo then has to share the stage with them in what they call the fourth arc, which is that last 10 episodes um, where they it's the three generations arc or whatever, where it all comes together. But Kyo is still the main protagonist of that arc. They don't switch it to being about all three of them in that way. Um, but that's where they resolve the character arcs for all three characters. But Kyo is your main center throughout the entire second half of this show. And he needs to be a little bit more bland and a little bit more innocent um, for him to be able to fulfill that function. And I think he fulfills that function super well and it allows them to tell really interesting stories because Keo is the only character you could have that you could then take to Vagan and have him be um, on Mars and make his Martian friends, right? And have that whole story arc, which is like the like linchpin of this entire fucking show in many ways. Like you need to be able to build up to that moment and have a character who's able to see the world in such a different way than his father and grandfather that he can so readily and openly accept other people that are so different from him or come from such a different place. Um, and that's what I think is the magic of Keo as a character uh, and what allows them to sort of like really open up the second half of the story and execute on all the narrative themes and the character arcs that they had been building up in the first two pieces. Part of constructing a protagonist in any story is choosing what you want that protagonist to reflect in the story uh -huh. and what you want that story to reflect on the protagonist. And in a show like Gundam Age, where you are doing a three-protagonist structure, you have to be very careful about how each protagonist is going to reflect something different onto this ongoing, continuous story, right? Um, it's, it's, as we say, a very compressed version of, like, Gundam Zeta Double Zeta, where you have yeah. Amuro, Camille, and Judo, who all reflect very different things onto what is one continuous saga and world. Um, Gundam Age just does it in one series. And so you have Flit, who is, he is touched by this war literally from the moment he is born, because he's born on the day the angel falls. He has an anger in him from his most formative experience, which is losing his mother. And he has this belief in the Gundam as savior, and that question that follows him his entire life. Asamu is someone who grows up being Flit, Asuno's son. And he has that hanging him over him his entire life. They're in the midst of this war. He has this chip on his shoulder. All of this stuff. And then you get to Kyo. And what Kyo is for this show is usually the character you'd kind of get on the starting side of it, but we didn't have, which is the innocent, the tabula rasa. He's the one who, like, very clearly, and I think... Like, the third arc um, gets kind of down to business faster than either of the first two. Like, it is... Keo is, like, in the Gundam before, I think, even the act break of his first yeah. episode. So you're right into it. But I think it does a very good job in those first couple episodes of, of like, through action introducing you to Keo and that this is someone who's been pretty sheltered. Uh, his dad was not around, but he grew up on Earth. His grandpa, like, clearly, like, Flit was more present in Keo's life than he was in Asamu's. Yes. And also he grew up during this time where the war is sort of at a standstill and he's very far from it. And so he has a real innocence about him 
that is uh, very different than either Asumu or Flit, where Asumu and Flit have a certain naivety to them when they're young, and Kyo has that, but Kyo has a real, like, like lack of sense of the world that is very childlike and is very real and I think relatable if you're willing to like like open up to the character that way and I think the show is able to use that in a couple of different ways uh, like I found the first couple arcs of uh, episodes of the third arc some of the most disturbing in the whole series uh-huh. because of what it implies about Flit and Keo's relationship where like on one level Flit has been a good granddad to this kid better than he probably was a father to Asamu but he also, much of his, like, love language was training him to be the Gundam pilot in a, like, simulator-esque capacity where he was kind of, like, indoctrinating this boy through his entire boyhood to see war as distant and non-physical and non-tangible and like a video game so that when Keo gets in the Gundam, he's already, like, he's a much better pilot at the start than either Flit or Asamu were. He's a stronger X-rounder. He has a better sense of how to do things. But he also has a sense of it that, like, this is a fucking video game. And so his arc is, like, having that stripped away and then being taken to Vagan and seeing the full reality of it. And it's just a very different arc than either of the other two characters are allowed to have. And it's an arc you have to have if you're going to do the ending this show inevitably has to do, which is someone knocking Flit out of it and trying to use all of his immense intelligence and empathy and knowledge for something other than destruction, which is creation and creating a new future. Um, you can't do that without Keo. Yeah, absolutely. It is... It's the thing where I think the way he contrasts with Flit in particular is so strong because, you know, Asamu is older, right, when we pick him up in arc two than, than Flit or Kyo are. And, but Kyo and, like, young Flit from arc one are clearly, like, about the same age. Um, and it's very, I think, striking how different they are because Flit has already been kind of, like, tainted by this cycle of, like, grief and, and hatred. Uh, that I think is so much about what the show is, right? And you see that in arc three where you then get access to Ezlikant and see that the entire reason why all this happened is happening is because of grief, right? And people lashing out and kind of losing sight of what's important because of this intense grief that they have. Ezlikant from his son flipped from the loss of his mother when he was a little kid. Um, and so having that contrast of Flit in arc one has a lot of those traits that Keo had but he can't embrace them because he's got this hatred in him um, stemming from the loss of his mother that's driving him towards vengeance that prevents him from seeing the world that I think, you know, he knows that he always should be seeing it that way. Um, And yeah, and so having, being able to sort of get this character who is kind of free from a lot of the shackles that his father and his grandfather had um, is so like, it's very liberating, particularly once he gets to Vagan and you see that Keo is the key. Oh, right. He's the guy who can unlock this situation. Um, he's the Gundam boy that we need. Um, yeah, I just think he's a very like rewarding protagonist uh, that just sits so well at the end of this kind of triptych structure to kind of he's the character you need to bring us home to the ultimate conclusion that the show is driving towards. And I think he becomes a very rich character. He mm-hmm. he is a little bland in those opening episodes, as you say, by design. You know, he's the one who, you know, like like there's just less friction for him in getting into this world than for Asamu, right? Because he's got Grandpa's Gundam, as we said last time, maybe the best Gundam episode title ever, Grandpa's Gundam. Um, and 
and, and you know he's got that and he's got these skills and he's right onto the diva with his grandpa and everything's going great for him uh and then i think when they start peeling away the layers it's you know it is not the most revelatory like gundam material ever we have seen the story where someone has like a superior officer who teaches them something and then dies and they are touched by it and they do that with Keo here and that that one uh, woman character I forget Shana her name Lua. Shana Lua which I think is a very good story uh, mm-hmm. and then you have the, you know, the trip to Vegan we have seen stuff like that like I particularly think of like Judo and some of the stuff with like Double Zeta um, in terms of like seeing the enemy but I think because of the context it's in here, it feels like new life is breathed into those stories. And it feels so essential to the overall, as you say, triptych tapestry they're sort of weaving together here in Gundam Age. That Kyo over that third arc, which I think the third arc is really good. I think like Mm -hmm. the second and third arc, like that big middle section are the two like best parts of the show other than I think that last three episode stretch. But like, I think that overall build of like Kyo coming into his own personhood and learning to see the world around him as those eyes that are like clouded by innocence sort of get unclouded is really compelling. And I think those episodes on Vagan are phenomenal. I, they're just great episodes of Gundam. There's, there's like no qualifier there to me. I think they're just great. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they are the thing the show is building to. I mean, it, it was when I got to that point, I, my mind was kind of blown away by the fact that that's like two episodes because in my memory, I'm like, that's like Keo's whole arc on the show, right? Like, I thought that was like, <laughs> I thought he ended up on Vegan in like the third episode or something because in my head, it occupies such a big pace, place for the show because it's such a key emotional center um, because it's, it's you know, it's the obvious thing that the show is building towards. Again, this is not some sort of like revelation that you've never seen media do this, but it, I think the thoughtfulness um, and the steady hand with, with which Gundam Age approaches this um, process of starting in arc one with the Vagans being faceless alien dragon fucking Yu-Gi-Oh motherfuckers, right? As you pointed out on Twitter, they all the Vagan mobile suits look like sick-ass, like, red-eyes black dragons and shit like that um, because they're awesome. Um, but they're totally inaccessible until the very end of arc one. Then arc two, you get a little bit more of them because now you have uh, Zayhart and you have a character that you can sit with on the vegan side and, and get access to their motivation, what they're feeling. And then in this third arc with Keo, you now have a character who gets to actually go to Mars, see what the conditions are, speak with Ezlecon. Like, I mean, he gets access to the real motivation behind the war before even fucking uh, Zayhart does, right? So that process by which you were like slowly pulling, peeling back the layers of this conflict and learning more about what it is to be some like the other right and making them not the other which is what they literally are right they're the ue the unknown enemy originally until now they are not only they're not like even vegans they're humans right they're just humans that live somewhere else and that's it and they're suffering and a lot of their suffering is coming from things that were caused and not at all by their fault and by actually like the government that i'm working for right like those revelations are really important to the show and it's that sort of clarity of vision that Gundam Age has as an entire story to sort of lay out that very steady path that then makes it so satisfying when you get there and you actually go to Mars and you you're like you know I think if you're particularly if you're an adult viewer of the show you're kind of screaming for a lot of shows like please think about the other side like please take one fucking second flit to think about who is sitting in that cockpit that you're blowing up right because flit's never going to do that but you know that that's the key that these people need to sort of start driving towards the the conclusion of the story and ending this war. 
And it's so satisfying when Keo shows up and that's the thing that he can do. Absolutely. And I just think that third arc is super tight. It's 11 mm-hmm. episodes. It's the shortest um, of the ones we've had so far. They kind of get shorter over time. And I do see the third and fourth arcs as as separate just in so much as I think the third arc does tell a story that sort of reaches a natural culmination in Keo getting off of Mars and having had this full experience. And then the fourth arc, has a, there's a little time jump. It's a month. And then you have Keo going out in the Gundam and making this new decision about how he's going to fight. And that's kind of what differentiates the two arcs. You also obviously have a new Gundam in that fourth arc, which I was... The, the, the Gundam FX... The Gundam Age FX is good, but the Age 3 is so such a good fucking mobile suit. I was a yes. little sad to see it go. The Age 3... We'll talk about mobile suits later. I just uh-huh. want to plant my flag right now. The Age 3 slaps fucking ass. It's great. Um, but yeah, I think that third arc is just as as good economic anime storytelling goes. That is 11 tight episodes that tell a really good story and feel... It feels like it's more than 11, as you say. Like with the, with the Vegan part, that's only like the last two or three. Um, but you really do have to have all of that other stuff to get up to that point. And it tells a very big story where in those 11, Keo goes from, ah, who's this new kid in, in my Gundam age to a very compelling character in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. And as we're talking about Keo, um, the actor, I thought this was kind of interesting because it makes a lot of sense with how it contrasts. So the actor who plays Keo is Kazutomi Yamamoto. um, And he's not like a big, big voice actor. And this is like one of like the early, like major roles he had. So when he was cast, he was like pretty unknown because most of the stuff I'm looking at his sort of, uh, you know, CV or whatever. Like, most of this stuff is after Gundam Age. Um, and, and he hasn't had a lot of main roles on shows. And I think there's something you can feel with that in a good way, of that he's got a very freshness to the voice, um, and it kind of reminds me of how Tomino cast Turn A Gundam, and we'll get that again when he begins to get to g that Tomino like, moved into this place where he didn't like to use really established voice actors. Um, it's the same thing he did with Brainpowered. Um, like, I think he he's approaching it, I think, this for the same reasons that Ghibli kind of does this, is that you want this really kind of fresh, more naturalistic style, um, and you get that with him from Keo. Um, and I think it really accentuates that kind of naivete in that innocence of the character. Um, and yeah, it's not like the most striking vocal performance. Like, I don't think it's... I think the best vocal performance to me in the show is um, Toshiki Toyonaga as Young Flit. Like, the moment you get Young Flit again is like this, like, oh my god, this guy was so good on the show. I, um, I tears. That's the moment that yeah. kind of got me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's not the most flashy performance, but it's kind of like everything else with Keo. It's the right choice for the character to accentuate what you need in the show to go with this, like, much younger, very fresh actor. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I find it a pretty striking in that it is, it just sounds so human and like normal uh-huh. and like it's very, it's a very savvy casting choice. I, I agree 100%. Um, so do you want to kind of move through the third arc here a little bit and talk about some relevant episodes and points and story beats through this third arc? Yeah, so so you hit on it a little bit, but like one of the things that is really striking about the first episode in particular is when you so Vegan attacks uh, Earth and it's the big invasion, um, and then Grandpa show Grandpa Flit shows up with a fucking tractor and a Gundam, and he's like, "Geo, get in the Gundam." Um, and Keo gets in the Gundam and he's like, man, this cockpit, it looks just like those video games you brought home for me. And you get this flashback to uh, Grandpa Flit bringing home this like big VR fucking dome thing that he sits in that's basically like a toy version 
of the like training thing that Asumu got in in Arc Two, um, and that's where you get this sense of like it's it's such a vivid like entry into this character's backstory where you don't have spend a lot of time digging into what Kyo's like childhood was like, but that image of like him with Grandpa Flit. And they're so happy and they're having a good time. You see how much, like, Keo loves his grandpa. And clearly Flit, you know, is Flit's retired by the time that Keo is born. Um, so he's has able to spend time with Keo in a way that he never got to spend time with Asamu. And you see that and that love they have, that affection, that time they spend to get together. But you also see how Flit's obsession colors everything in his life to where he has been doing this whole, like, Ender's Game, Last Starfighter thing of like training this kid through video games um, to to be a warrior, right? Like he sees in Kyo that like you are, you know, I kind of fucked up with that awesome kid, but now I've got my like super X rounder, right? I've got my magic psychic boy that I can take and he will be, you know, he will surpass me and be an even better X rounder than I am. And he can be the one to, to, to finish the job even if I can't and get rid of all those damn vegans. And so... I think Flit believes he's doing the right thing, but he is absolutely like training this child to be a soldier from the moment he can basically hold a joystick. Absolutely. I what I love about and I don't think we can talk about this here, the characterization of Grandpa Flit, as we will yes. lovingly call him, I think it does such a good job with that character of embodying the like core contradictions of Flit as a character which is that there is an inherent and innate goodness in this man that was there from when he was a boy. And there's also this inherent and innate like hatred and, and vengeance quest in him, right? And those yeah. two things are sort of always in conflict and they don't neatly separate. They very much coexist. So like part of obviously the whole backstory with this arc is that Asamu disappeared when Kyo was a baby. And we'll talk about where they go with that in uh -huh. a minute. Um, but it very much feels like Flit did the right thing and he stepped up and became and helped be a father figure and probably helped Romery a lot. And like he did his grandpa lead duties in a way he never did with Asamu as a father. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think and I think there's even maybe like an, an implication that like part of maybe why he's not with the like Federation every day is because of that. Like because I assume he could have stayed commander in chief as long as he wanted. Um, and also like the war has reached kind of a, a lapse point as like Vagan is preparing on for their whole Earth invasion. So anyway, he's been a good grandpa and Keo loves him and he's a good guy. But then you see, oh, 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 so much of their bonding has been through these literal war games, right? You know, or I should say figurative war games that are yeah. preparing for literal war. And, and you know, Flit being aware of his own mortality and I think preparing Keo to, like, take up the banner of this cause eventually, you know? And it is disturbing. And I think it's disturbing because there is that mixture of actual genuine love and this, like, I'm training you to kill masses of people, right? Yeah. If it were just one, it wouldn't be disturbing or as disturbing. I think it's because it's both that you get this real like discomfort with it. And I think that discomfort is so key to how Grandpa Flit is portrayed through this entire back half. We're just like, again, this show is a goddamn character design masterpiece. I love how they redo Flit again for this third arc where I like that his blue hair is a little darker. So it's like his version of going gray is that his yeah. hair is now teal instead of blue. And like he's got more lines. And in some ways he looks adorable, especially when he's got the fucking goggles on, right? 
And in some places he looks kind of terrifying because he is like, he like the lines of his face are sometimes just lines, not of age, but of anger. Right. Um, and I think it kind of flits back and forth. And that was not a pun. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the, the actor who plays him, the, the guy from Naruto, as you yeah, tell Kaz- us Yeah, Kazuhiko Inoue. Yes, Kakashi yeah. from Naruto. Everyone's yes. favorite Naruto character. <laughs> He's so good at, like, again, like, bringing the character to this new age and, and like, again, inflecting it with, I think, those two sides of the character. It's a, it's a great and fascinating and, and wonderful characterization and performance. Yeah, because it, it does, I think it, like, embodies those two contrasts so much of, like, he has a little bit of that, like, impish quality to him you want from a good grandpa character that like reflects a little bit of like little kid flit um and you know that's like you have the fucking goggles and he's got like the like (laughs) bun in the back of his hair and all that stuff like he's got his fucking leather jacket right he's clearly been like enjoying being retired in a sense that like he's not like all the time this stuck up hardcore military dude he is in arc two where he's like almost like a robot in arc two he just seems so removed emotionally from everything you get so much more of that warmth and humanity coming through from him um as grandpa but you then also have when the vegan stuff comes up he's even more extreme he's even more adamant right like he's out there like taking fucking basically space nukes to go kill every single vegan on by himself by his own hand um and you get those just like very intense very dark moments where you see how deeply that like hatred has sat in the character um I think it's just a really, I mean, you know, again, Flit's my favorite character in the show and one of my favorite Gundam characters because I think this thing you see here um, is, as you're saying, like these two aspects of Flit kind of coexist. And it's this, you know, really haunting thing of his character is that, like, Flit is a character that has such a powerful love, um, but he also has so much hate in him and he can't divorce the one from the other, right? Like, he can't see his love for his grandson without the lens of his hatred for Vagan, right? Because his love for people is always reflected by his grief from having lost the people he cares about. His mother, Yudin, like then later in Arc 2, Wolf um, and, and, and Grudek. Uh, so all these people he cares about that, that Vagan has taken from him. Part of his motivation is this sense of grief that he never wants to feel again. So all of his love is like refracted through this prism of hatred he has, and it's only gotten like more extreme in his old age. Um, and I think you like just get that so vividly right away from his appearance in in the very first episode of this arc. And like whenever anyone calls him on it, it's it's he's not f- able to even like fully articulate it mm-hmm. beyond what you said there, which is that they they've taken everything. They keep taking. They keep taking. Right. Um, and so his only way to like understand that is to take back and to take from them. Um, and it's very self-defeating as we see and as Keo is, is very much able to see over the course of this arc. Yeah. So yes, like grandpa, grandpa flit and his grandpa Gundam, like just that first episode, (laughs) it's just such a great, like you just hit the ground running. Um, and it just, it gets right to it. And then like, sort of like the next major story arc you get is, um, all the stuff around I've already blanked out of the character's name even though I just said it Shanalua there we go yes. um, the Shanalua stuff so she's played by Gundam veteran Romy Park uh, the voice of Lauren um, rarely not playing a little boy um, I, I like when Romy yes. Park is able to play adult women because it's like she's got such a rich vocal range 
Yes, I'll, also she's you know probably most famous for Edward Elric. Um, yeah, I did not recognize her until you just said it um, because again I don't think I've ever heard Romy Park voice someone who is not a little or adolescent boy. Yes. Um, so there you go. Yes. Yeah, so we've got Lauren, who is our mentor for uh, Keo. You couldn't ask for a better Gundam boy um, turned into adult woman to mentor our new Gundam boy than Lauren from Turn A Gundam, who is the one who has <laughs> best learned the lessons of Gundam and most embodies them. Um, yes. But you have this whole arc, and this is where I think you get a lot of they're pulling from Uso and Victory Gundam. Like his relationship with Shanalua so much feels like Uso's relationship to like the various mother figures he has in that show. Um, that it's like this complex mix of like the kind of motherliness, the sort of there's like some amount of attraction there. Um, there's like this deep affection between both of them, and then Shanalua very much has this very motherly or big sisterly attitude towards Kyo. Um, and of course, that's all building to the revelation that she is spying on the Federation for the Vegans because they her sister is sick and they're giving her money. Um, but it's it's your kind of first instance of you getting that of Keo getting this war is complicated it's not there are good guys and there are bad guys it's a lot more fucking complicated than that because immediately you have the one character who is the person on the crew that cares the most for Keo also is the person who's working technically for the enemy right um and I think that that like sort of four or five initial episodes there that kind of plays out that arc while it's also doing a whole like sort of like Jabro callback right with all the mobile suits landing in the the jungle and all that shit like I think that that's a really strong stretch of the show as well also the only stretch of the show on earth this is uh, a this is by far the most space-bound Gundam if I'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. at least of what we've seen so far I don't know about the future but this this is the only show that only has a couple episodes on earth yep yeah um but anyway, yeah, and, and there is, so the, the, yeah, I think you're totally right about the Victory Gundam comparison, because even the name, like, Chandelua, that sounds like she would be, like, one of the women on Victory Gundam. Like, that yeah. name just sounds Victory Gundam-esque to me. And there's a really startling moment where I, that I think of as kind of, like, the kickoff to this whole arc, which is where Keo comes in from having, like, fought a bunch of mobile suits, and he's like, did you see I got, like, four of them or something, and he's really excited. And she is just horrified for a second, going, those were people. And I think yeah. what's so disturbing about that moment is you see that Keo has been so sort of effectively sheltered by Grandpa Flit that that never occurred to him. Like, mm-hmm. that was not, like, like like Flit had very much built this, like, mental wall there for him that is something we know happens in the real world with child soldiers, right? Yeah. Of trying to make it so that, like, dehumanizing and and making it feel like a video game and, like, you're getting your score and all of that. And Chandelier is the one who's like, what the hell are you talking about, kid? And it's one of the only moments she, like, reprimands him, right? And it's a very startling moment for him. Um, and then you get into all the stuff with with her being a, a technically a traitor. And the way everyone views it, there's this, you know... For, for a show that is aimed at kids, this show is very frank about death in the way you want Gundam to be, I think. And throughout that whole thing, you know, Keo is trying to go save her because it's like, to him, she's our ally. That's yeah. you can't like reconcile these things, and people on the ship keep telling him like, even if we save her kid, they're going to execute her, and it's such a stark thing. And I think one of the most disturbing moments is all of it is when she dies. Flit, you know, Keo comes back to the ship, and there's this moment where he's standing kind of at the like, by the window looking out, and Flit, Grandpa Flit comes in and tries to comfort him, and what he says is, Keo, even if she had come back, we would have executed her, uh-huh. and it's like. What the hell is wrong with you, Grandpa? I, Keo doesn't say that, but there's this feeling of like 
Flit is so far fucking gone that he, like, why couldn't he have said, like, yeah, maybe, you know, I am Flit Asano. Maybe I could have done something for her. Like, that doesn't even enter his head, you know? Yeah, because as, she, as soon as she, like, is a traitor, he's like, oh, she's a vegan. Like, she's yeah. one of them. Like, we gotta, like, it's like, I mean, I'm eventually gonna kill all of them anyways. We might as well kill her now, right? Like, get this yeah. part over with. Like, yeah, he's his mindset is so set in stone, and he's just can't understand at all Kyo's feelings and perspective. Yeah, it's a really striking scene. I also really love the moment there with Shanalua where once she flees um, because she's like going to be found out and all that stuff and she leaves in the middle of that battle. Um, one of like the rare times, it's been a long time since we had the classic someone steals a mobile suit from the bay of the ship. Everyone's like, who's in that mobile suit? Hey, someone shut down the store. What's going on? The, the, the ship, someone, what's going on? And then someone just launches the mobile suit. And you're like, are there, do they not like have a magna lock? Are there not like keys to these things you could put in a locker somewhere? Like, man, these mobile suits are sure, sure easy to steal. It made me very nostalgic when I, when we got one of those, because you just don't get them as much in, in these days. That's, you know, what I want someday is, like, the next big Gundam show. I want it to start very kind of classic opening with a boy, you know, getting in the Gundam to save the day. And then I want him to, like, go to turn it on and it be, like, inner password. And him yeah. be like, oh, fuck. And, like, just there be some basic protection. And then, like, the Gundam blows up and it's a one-episode thing and there's just no story. I think we yeah. need the, the OVA where they do that version of it. Yeah, where they're just, like, someone's just like, I'm just fed up of all these fucking children stealing our goddamn mobile seats. It used to happen every episode. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but Shanalu, she, she steals the mobile suit, she leaves the ship, and then you have this scene just from her perspective as she's in the middle of this battle, and everyone is just trying to kill her, right? The Vegan mobile suits are trying to shoot her, the Earth Federation mobile suits are trying to shoot her, and it's, it's a, the moment that I feel like you just didn't, don't get much in Gundam Age, where you're like, totally removed from the protagonist's POV, and that just sense of like, sheer desperation and tragedy, because I think that's where it like, as a viewer, it sinks in, where there's nowhere for this character to go. Like, there's no way for this story to resolve, like, this story arc to resolve in any way that is not Shanalua dying. Um, and Keo doesn't really know that yet, but you, the viewer, like, it really viscerally puts a point on it that's like, there's nothing else that can happen for her. Like, the choices she has made at this point, just kind of been coerced into making, have led her to a point where she cannot possibly escape this battle alive because there's nowhere for her to go, even if she escaped. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's in the midst of sort of the biggest action set piece of the entire Earth arc here, mm -hmm. which is where Zayhart is trying mm -hmm. to blow up the basically the the Jabro equivalent, um, and they have this bomb that they've like planted in all of the different mobile suits down there. Um, and but Azel Kant has very oddly told them to give him half an hour, um, yeah. which Zayhart does, even though he knows it's very bad military strategy because inevitably uh, Keo and friends disable all of them. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a memorable little section, especially because of the Shauna Lewis stuff. But I think some of the overall action choreography around there, as we say, this show generally bats above average on its action stuff. Some of it's yeah. not great, but, but overall it's pretty good. Yeah. And I think this sequence is very strong and I think it's, I just like, I think it's very successful at like echoing a lot of like different pieces of Tomino Gundam in this way that, that, you yeah. know, you know, obviously is like you know, a hardcore Gundam fan. It's just very fun because it's not, it's not this like kind of cloying nostalgia pull or anything. It's a very smart, we're taking these bits and pieces from victory and different areas of mobile suit Gundam. Cause even that whole thing of like the bombs in the mobile suits and all that just feels like that's like, you know, I mean, that's, 
they don't have actual bombs in the like like turning the mobile suits into bombs in the Jabra stuff in Mobile Suit Gundam, but they do the whole thing where Shard goes in and tries to blow up the GMs and stuff like yeah. that. Um, so so they're they're echoing a lot of those plot dynamics in a way that I thought was was really fun. It's a very after war Gundam X kind of sensation of uh-huh. taking some of these like Tomino archetypes and playing with them in a very smart way, not like the Gundam Wing will have a guy with a cool voice put on a mask and you know then he's Char now. <laughs> Right? Yes. <laughs> which, um, which to be fair, Gundam Age does... Zayhart is a Shark clone as well, I guess. But Zayhart is, like, such a fulsome character within his uh-huh. own right that, like, it's a fun, like, little extra. It's not the point of the character, right? Yeah, no. They're not trying to... They're not doing a Gundam Wing where they're like, we just have to make this character basically just Char and do the entire Char storyline. They're they're doing the... Like, this the way that Tomino used the Shark clone thing where he's like, eh, just put a mask on this fucker. Um, right. Exactly. Like, and that'll satisfy the fan base. Um, and then we just get to do make our own character with them. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so we have the Shanna Lewis stuff. Then we get into space. Should we talk about what happened to Keo's dad? Yes. So this is where we get a thing that like I had to be very careful not to try to hint at at all because I knew you would be so excited when this happened. <laughs> uh, because yes, at the very beginning of this arc, you find out that Asimu uh, has been missing. Um, basically since the day that Kyo was born um, and that you have this one scene where you have um, like this middle point of Asamu. He's not Captain Ash. He's not an adult yet, um, but he's also not a little kid and he's still voiced by Egeji Takia there. I think it's like interesting what they do with the voice actors here and, and how they kind of handle this like baton pass between the two actors that play the character very elegantly. Um, so you have that scene and then you find out that Asamu never came back um, and now we're out in this space and and they just did the thing I love here. They don't try to play coy with this at all. It's just immediately, this is awesome, right? A yes. pirate ship shows up. There's a dude with blonde hair there, um, and you get a scene with him that basically like directly intimates that he is um, awesome. Like you get from the audience from his perspective that this is who this guy is, and then very soon in the episode, um, the rest of the clue crew figures it out. Flit senses it. They get a message from him. Um, and this is Captain Ash, also known as Asamu Asano, who is the leader of the Basidian Space Pirates, and they are on a big fuck-off spaceship that kind of looks like a naval ship um, that also has a big skull and crossbones on it. And uh, Asamu has uh, revamped the Gundam Age 2 into the Gundam Age 2 Dark Hound, which is basically their crossbone Gundam sort of love letter, because this is the Gundam Age 2, but it's all black, and it's got a skull and crossbones on it, and fucking hooks, and it's got a big drill, and it's got a fucking Gundam eye patch, and it's just a sick fucking pirate Gundam, because pirate Gundams are cool. This was the point where I just officially lost any ability to empathize with people who don't like Gundam Age. Where I look at this, and I go... Okay, I can't understand it. At one point, you know, there's some of the, like, the level 5 designs are a little off. The, you know, the Vegan mobile suits I've come to like, but they are a little off-putting at first. They're very different for Gundam. You know, it is a little more child-oriented. The first arc is a little rough. Like, okay, maybe people didn't make it all the way through to see the big shift over when it be... No. This show does a full-blown crossbone Gundam homage. It is the most crossbone Gundam we've had in Gundam anime it does it fucking beautifully. It takes Asamu, the coolest character, and makes him a fucking pirate for you. What more do you want? How else could this show make you try to love it? Like, that is just mean that you would look this gift horse in the mouth and then just walk away. What the fuck is wrong with you if you don't like Gundam Age? That's my reaction 
to seeing Pirate Captain Ash and absolutely the best mobile suit on this fucking show, the Dark Hound, is incredible. And, like, all the action stuff they're able to do with it is so cool and just makes me salivate over the concept of them one day doing Crossbone Gundam in anime. Please, God, because if they could do it this well with just the one Dark Hound in Gundam Age and all the cool stuff they do with the hooks and the various ways it moves... Oh my god, we need a Crossbone Gundam OVA. Please, please do that one day. But for now, we have Gundam Age, and it's it's enough for me for now. It is damn good. How can you not love this show? Come on! Yeah, so so I, I you know, I love Pirate Gundam. I'm not, like, you know, it's the, the Dark Hound is not my favorite mobile suit on the show. Um, I, I like it a lot. But you're definitely, like, I, I, I have known since we started doing this podcast, it's like, eventually <laughs> we're going to get to Gundam Age and Jonathan's going to lose his shit over the Pirate Gundams um, in Gundam Age. Um, because, yeah, it's it's so cool. It's such just, like, a savvy thing to do. They, they very much, um, his, so the whole design and what they do is a callback to a very classic manga series, the space captain Harlock, um, which is like a whole space pirate show. Um, and they very much kind of like design adult Asamu to sort of look like that. And it's, and it's, yeah, I, I love how quickly they get to it. I love that they're not, they don't tease it out or anything. They're not no, trying to pretend yeah. that the character is not Asamu. They're, they're, there's such an efficiency to how they're handling it. And they're like, we're, we're doing our first arc on earth then we're getting into space, and then you're getting Asamu right away. Um, because if they tried to sort of tease it out or sort of do, you know, play a longer game on that reveal, uh, they wouldn't have had any time to do anything with it. So I love the efficiency of just like, no, fuck it, he's right here, he's a pirate, um, and <laughs> and yeah, and and they don't even like give you all the reasoning yet about why, like, what has happened, why he's abandoned his kind of family. Like, like, how did he get into this whole thing? Uh, but you as an audience, even if they don't tell you, you know, it's fucking awesome. He probably had a really good reason and he's probably doing the right thing. Exactly. Um, but I just, I want to go back to this. Like, don't take it for granted. He's a fucking pirate. And they just say that over and over again. They yes. use the word Kaizoku. Like, they, he just will say, like, I'm a pirate now. Just, like, unblinking. The show stares you in the eye and goes, yeah, he's a space pirate. And they don't fucking blink. And that is a that is what feels like, honestly, most Crossbone Gundam about it. Which is, like, Crossbone Gundam is so unapologetic about we are just doing pirates in space. I mean, Crossbone Gundam goes further. You've got fucking Parrot Haro on the captain's yes. shoulder. The ship has, like, full sails and everything. They go with more of, as you say, kind of like a submarine or like naval like vessel kind of thing, like a Greyhound sort of look for the ship that they have, um, the the battle carrier Greyhound kind of thing, right? Um, and it, I love all of that, but I also just love that Asamu went a little loopy out in space. Uh -huh. He went a little crazy, not full crazy. He's still got most of his faculties, but he's a little crazy. He sits in a fucking pirate ship with a skull on his, like, fucking throne in the pirate uh -huh. room. He goes around calling himself a space pirate. He's got a whole organization name. Um, he talks about treasure all the fucking time. <laughs> That's my that's my favorite thing is he's talking about buried treasure and like when he sees his son is like you're the real treasure out here in space and he's got like is my one disappointment like big disappointment with Gundam Age is is and we'll talk about this more with the fourth arc is I kind of wish like once Asamu had given them the res rev revelation about the ExaDB that had had gone in kind of a unicorn Gundam direction and been sort of a treasure hunt sort of thing going and looking for the exit DB that that's like such a great direction that they don't mm -hmm. do but even that he's just like all of it he just like is so committed to the pirate aesthetic 
And it's just like, I guess it's how he keeps himself entertained on this long voyage away from his family out in space. And I love that he just, he went a little loopy and it's fucking great. Yeah. And I love his crew on his ship. Um, yes. Like, cause you have like the guy who's like his like secondhand guy or something. Who's this very good big beard, like fucking like, he, you know, looks like fucking Bluto from Popeye. Um, just with like <laughs> yes, a, a gray beard basically. Uh, but then everyone else on the ship, it's just this, like, great sort of, like, they don't, they're not really characters, they don't have much in the way of dialogue or anything, but they have these very eccentric designs that it looks like you are looking at the cast from a different Gundam show, um, that is, like, the pirate Gundam show you have stumbled into, and then on that show, they would all be, like, you know, crew-level characters that you'd have that level of familiarity you, you have with, like, any of the people who are in the background of the crew of, like, the White Base or any of the other, uh, ships in, in a Gundam series, and I just love that they're all these, like, weirdos. Like, they just... All all their character designs stand out because they're not in military uniforms or anything. So they all have to look like very, like, distinct individuals that don't have that um, sort of uniform appearance you can get from the crew of just random battle cruisers in a Gundam show. And so the the full commitment, the, the fact that they sit in super dark red lighting on their ship all the time <laughs> is great. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a full theatrical thing. He understands that part of being a pirate is you've got to just commit to it because, you know, it's it's the, the part of the act is part of what makes you intimidating and effective as, as a pirate. If you don't paint a giant skull and crossbones on your ship, you're not going to intimidate anybody to give them your their booty. <laughs> it's so good. I just, Sean, if you had, because I did, I did know the story detail that Asamu would disappear because um, I had whatever I had seen, like Kyo, something I had seen about him being more raised by his grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not know the pirate thing until it happened. And if you had put a gun to my head at the end of last week's episode, Sean, and said, okay, Asamu disappears, what happens to him? I, You would have shot me before I got to. Uh, he becomes a pirate, and they basically do their version of Crossbone Gundam. Um, and I am so happy. I'm so joyous. I love that even other Gundam shows know that Crossbone Gundam should have an anime. It's great. Yes. Yeah. And we just to address the question before we get them. Yes, one day we will do a Crossbone Gundam episode. We haven't had the time yet. We've both read the manga. We love it. Um, we should do definitely of the, like the original six volume run. It's it's very special, and we should do an episode on it one day. But for now, we get to talk about Captain Ash and his wonderful uh, pirate crew and and all of the treasure he finds out in space, and it's great. Yes, and and so with Captain Ash, I do want to talk about it. So they 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 sort of do a, a changeover with the voice actor for full adult Asamu, um, which I don't know if they really needed to do, because I do think that Egechi Takia, who plays Asamu in arc two, like has the range that he could have nailed it. But if they, but with the decision to recast, they they pick the perfect person. So they pick Kosuke Todayumi, who if you play Genshin Impact, you'll know as uh, Gaia or Kaya uh, from Genshin Impact. He, I mean, he's in a, like fucking everything. Like you'll definitely recognize the voice, but it's such perfect casting because like he just sounds like Eguchi Takia only like 20 years older like they right. have such a similar quality to voice um that it's, it's it's such a smooth transition that like I think you could very easily convince people that it's just the same actor because the quality of the voice is so similar the way they play the character is is similar I mean obviously it's a character who is older but it feels like it's the same like idea behind how you you play Asamu and kind of what the character is informing both of them. Um, I think it's just one of the most smooth transitions between two voice actors playing the character I've honestly ever seen. 
I didn't notice, uh, and I didn't look it up, and I didn't really notice until I went to watch the OVA that we'll talk about later in Memory of Eden, and then you have young Asamu again, and I went, that's a different voice, isn't it? And and that was when I finally noticed it was like flipping back and forth. Um, but yeah, I didn't notice it in the moment, and it is a, it's a really good performance. Yeah, it's just like, I was very surprised, because in my memory, it was just the same actor playing the whole way through, and then when I heard the voice, I think it was like the Genshin Impact connection that it made me... I immediately pegged on like, wait, that's not this. That's not Igushitaki. That's 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 Gaia from fucking Genshin, and I was like, this is so smooth. What a good, like, elegant way to to sort of transition that role between those two actors. I think particularly, I I'm guessing that they probably put a lot of energy into that one little scene you have where Igushitaki plays an older Asamu before he leaves to go on that mission to like try to like make a vocal bridge between these two versions of the character and does this just a really well done kind of production uh, choice they make there absolutely so then obviously the the ending of the third arc um is well actually before we go on to the ending of the third arc let's just talk about it here why Asamu leaves and like the whole backstory yes. of why he becomes a pirate and all of that um, is obviously we have he encounters the exit DB. I do I I never it never quite sat right with me all of the exposition behind why Asamu like left and became a pirate. Like I don't know if they ever gave me the full explanation where I felt like it totally mm-hmm. made sense to me. Because what it is is while he found the exit DB, it's really that he he was like saved by these pirates and then decided that the way he would try to keep the peace in the war is that with the pirates, he would go around and try to keep a rough balance of power so that there could be sort of this long stalemate. And I kind of expected, like, for several episodes there, the revelation to be that he'd been looking for the XADB all these years. And they that's not what they do. And I, I don't know. It, it's not a bad mark on the show for me or anything. I just don't know if it, like, fully satisfied me. Yeah, I think I do think that there's should there needs to be something in there I think to better justify that he has like abandoned his infant son and his his young yes. wife um because it is it is like it's it's not enough but I do think the the implication I think is that the reason why you have had this long peacetime in between in within this gap is partially because he has been out there with the space pirates managing that and that's like one of the reasons why Keo has been able to like live this like relatively peaceful childhood is because the war has not managed to escalate for such a long time because he's tra- he's been out there keeping the balance. Like I think that's what the show is trying to imply. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I think the pro- part of the problem is that th- that's like there are like two or three different spaces where they give you exposition dumps that kind of about that gap with Asamu. And I don't think any of them are quite enough, and they're far enough away from each other that they don't build on each other effectively. Um, that I think is one of the areas where, um, like I said at like the beginning of this full discussion, like I think one of the issues with Gundam Age in this stretch is it has a little bit more than it can meaningfully chew through because it has so much stuff it's dealing with now three full protagonists it has to execute on. And I think this is one of the areas where like some corners kind of get cut to try to justify where the show is going yeah i agree and i think the explanation you just gave is sort of how i had like talked through it to myself and i think if you asked the creators of the show that's probably what they intended and like wrote i just as you say i don't think it fully comes through i think we needed like a good flashback somewhere that like had a montage or something Mm -hmm. to show like Keo growing up and asamu doing the pirate shit just to fully justify for us that like this was not him selfishly going off and playing pirate right yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Although there is a, there is one scene I really love here where it's in the it's in the the first episode of arc four, so I think that's episode forty, where you have Asamu and Kyo sort of talking for the first time, like in person, out of mobile suits, and and Kyo, I love how Kyo reacts to seeing his dad again, where he is primarily happy, or not just seeing his dad again, seeing his dad for the first time, basically, yeah. right? He is primarily happy, and then he has this disappointment, but it's not anger. Like, Kyo is mostly just like, like, why weren't you around? Like, this makes me very sad. And Asamu, like, tries something like, I had my reasons, but, like, anything I tell you won't be good enough, basically. And and Kyo has this line that I found just very simple but powerful, where he says, like, well, whatever the reason, I just, I wish you could have come and seen us. And then they kind of, like, have this little hug. And I found that very powerful. I thought that was, like, a real sense of, like, how well the show knows its characters that that mm-hmm. felt very true to how Kyo would react to that and how Asamu like Asamu doesn't fully try to justify himself because he's like he knows Kyo's pain matters more than his in that moment right yeah definitely yeah I really so, love that moment and it's and that's where like you know I think Gundam Age while it can't like do everything that it needs to do to do like to like perfectly execute on its ideas it's it's the fact that it commits to moments like that and identifies that like that interaction is much more important to nail than it is to give you like the fully satisfying backstory that like shores up every kind of hole about why Asamu has not gone home. Um, it's more important to pay off like the emotional bond between those two characters than committing a lot of like time to something they don't have enough time to commit to um, to give you like the fully detailed ba- uh, backstory and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then let's talk about the end of this third arc, which is where Kyo uh, gets kidnapped in the in the Gundam, um, and he winds up on Vagan and meeting Ezelkant and all of this stuff. And it is definitely, I think, I think like this and the final episodes of the show, are, I think, are probably the strongest episodes of the whole series. I think there's some really great stuff here. Yeah, like I said, it's, it, it's this thing where in my memory, this was like a bigger stretch of the show because it, it's like... I mean, so much happens in the space of, like, two to three episodes here, um, where, yeah, you end up on at Second Moon, which is the Vagan, like, giant space colony that's uh, in orbiting around Mars. You, This is where you meet Ezelkant for the first time, really, that's not just, like, a floating hologram man, but as a character. You get all the backstory about Ezelkant's son. You see, for the first time, the effect that the Mars rays has on people, which I do love that, like, ultimately a huge part of the Gundam Age plot comes down to this very, like, Silver Age comic book ass. They're just... <laughs> Cosmic rays, you know, it's the same thing that gave the Fantastic Four superpowers. Um, if the Fantastic Four were on Mars, they would have been hit by the Mars rays. Some, so there's just something weird on Mars that makes them Mars rays that kills people. Um, but you, you know, you see the sickness um, that has is killing so many of the Martians. And then the key is then Keo um, goes and he makes friends with with a young Martian boy and a little Martian girl, and and you have. Like one of Gundam Age's like most effective tools, which is the flashback or not the flashback, the montage that takes place over the course of like a month or something of time. Um, it's very much like designed to be, I think, a mirror of the flit uh, montage with uh, Yudin and where you kind of really establish their relationship. Um, but you just get this real vivid sense of what life on Mars is like, what the vegans have had to deal with. And then I think in many ways, most importantly, like 
who is Ezlecant and like why is this war happening and where does this all come from and the fact that they're able to move through all that and was basically two episodes of a TV show and and then also have Keo escape from that situation within that span like that's pretty fucking crazy like that's a that's a like original mobile suit Gundam level of like um plot efficiency and like narrative construction they're able to do so much in such a small amount of time while still having it breathe and like yes. fully work and like absolutely I, I agree 100% Azelkant here really surprised me because I totally expected the twist to with him to be that he is like and I guess it is true that the twist is that he's not fully just trying to help the vegans but I expected it to be much more callous that like this entire thing was like a very selfish plan from him using the vegans using humanity to advance some larger goal kind of like Durandal in Seed Destiny or something mm -hmm. right that like this was all sort of a lie because we just hadn't seen him and ultimately, he's actually a very earnest person who knows much of what he is doing is wrong and has just been so sort of ensconced in grief that this is the conclusion he's come to as the only way he can see a world without that grief. And I think doing that through Keo's eyes also allows you to see all of that so much more strongly than you would if it were Flit confronting him or Asamu confronting him. And ultimately he, like, like you know, Gundam Age does not have a lot of narrative surprises to me. Maybe Pirate Thing is something of a narrative surprise. But yeah. like, the fact that, and I don't mean that as a bad thing. Stories do not need to surprise you to be good. A good story does not have to be a brand new story that you've never seen before. But Aesil Kant was a different kind of antagonist than I expected him to be, and I think that is absolutely for the show's better, because it really helps set up for the final episodes that, like, the battles that matter in Gundam Age are not between mobile suits. There is not one ultimate antagonist that if they shoot and blow up, they will win the war. That is not the kind of show this is. It is much more of a dialogue, and it is a lot more sort of heady and philosophical than that. Not that the show is heady and philosophical, but like the ultimate conflict, I think, is much more internal and emotional. And I think Ezelkant being this kind of villain, and that the ending of the show is him and Keo talking and him admitting Keo was right... Um, is something that makes this show so special. Yeah, and I think it is really effective what they do with Esselkan here because they do a good job of, I think, drawing a good mirror between Flit and Esselkan, right? As these two old men whose lives have been defined by grief and they have taken that grief and they are hiding from it and like using it as a way to lash out against the world and like under this like guise of it's like for the best of everybody right so flit lost his mother and then you know yudin and all the other characters we've seen creating that grief that he has then used to um lash out with this justification of if i just kill all the vegans the world will be perfect like if we just exterminate all those motherfuckers it would just be great we'd be living in like a paradise i mean it's basically he doesn't use the words eden but he's trying to drive towards his vision of a similar thing of like, Earth will be a paradise and the Earth sphere will be a paradise if we just got rid of these damn fucking Martians. Um, and Ezlikon's whole thing is he lost his son from sickness at a young, when his son was like very young, was Kia's age. And that grief is something he used in, to fuel this whole war where his motivation of this lashing out against the senselessness that these all these people on mars are dying like animals right his obsession that that he wants to build eden which is a place where people can be people which is kind of a phrase they start repeating a lot in this uh section which um then uh at the in the climax asimu very much turns on zehart 
but this this sense of that the people on Mars are dying these deaths that they shouldn't have to because the Earth Federation tried this whole plan to colonize Mars and it fucked up and then they just tried to bury it, right? And and they and the Earth Federation just pretends that it never happened, that they don't exist, and they bury that information successfully. Um and so Ezlikant's taking that sense of like we have been left here to die well like dogs, and he's using that with his whole like now like you find out his Ubermanch plan, right? He wants to create a race of humans that will like transcend war, that will transcend these tragedies, that there won't be grief anymore because we will create a superior breed of human that won't make the mistakes that we have been making all along, and that that will be a world where humans can live like humans. And that's what he's saying. But I think the most powerful thing is that you know the whole time with the way that they characterize him, his relationship with Keo, everything with his wife, who's also, a, I think, a really like kind of vivid character that's present here. Um, is that all he's doing is grieving for his child and he can't like sort of face that, right? That he's just so deeply running away from the fact that he's sad about his losing his son and he can't face up to that, right? That, that he's, he can't incorporate or deal with that grief in any way. And so how he deals with it is in this crazy fucking plan he's trying to put together to like save humanity from his perspective. And, you know, you say that the show sort of sets him and Grandpa Flit up as sort of like mirrors of each other. And I think part of that is that the show never lets you forget down the home stretch that what Flit wants to do is every fucking inch as monstrous as what we're seeing at yes. Camp Plan. Like, because it's not just like that one time at the end of arc two where Flit says, I want to exterminate all of them. He doubles down. He says uh -huh. over and over in the third and fourth arc that like, no, I don't want to defeat them. I don't want a treaty. I don't want any of that. I want to kill every single one of them. He wants to do a genocide, right? Yes. And Ezlikant wants to do this, like, big eugenics project. And they are both, like, monstrous, horrible things. And so this is what I mean by the show, ultimately. It's not like... Like, that conflict cannot... Like, literally, by definition, cannot be resolved by one of them beating the other. Right? Uh -huh. Because what they both want to do is monstrous. There is no good ending between the two of them. So it is much more about ideas clashing than people. You know, like, I, I had a conversation with someone on Twitter last night about, like... Some people are disappointed in age because, like, oh, why does Zayhart have to die in the penultimate episode? And then, like, you don't have a big conflict. It's like, because Zayhart actually isn't relevant to that conflict. Yeah. Like, Zayhart has to die on this term because he's part of, like, a slightly different story. The actual ending is not them beating one antagonist. The actual ending is, like, resolving these ideas. And the ending being that Flit ultimately backs down from his idea. And then Ezelkant is able to admit to Keo that his idea was wrong. And Keo is the boy in the middle who, like, got them both to agree to this. That's what the show is building towards. That's the conflict. And when I say this show has clarity that makes me plenty happy to overlook any little moments of messiness, that's what I mean. That's real narrative clarity. Yeah, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons also I think we keep on calling the show so smart is that what it's doing here with this story is it is, I think, very accessible to a younger audience because it's not about, like, the political nature of war. It's about right. the emotional nature of the people who wage war in this show, right? So it's so much about, like, the internal emotional reasoning of these characters. Um, and so it makes that accessible in a way that, like, if it was about trade tariffs or something like that and, like, the economic reasons why war comes about, that would not be particularly accessible to an eight-year-old, right? Uh, but, yeah, like this is like Gundam Double O is an example of like that's a that's a politics heavy like 
show about those ideas and this is going for a different kind of thing and i think gundam 00 is the better show between the two of these but i don't think gundam age like suffers by comparison it's going for something different right yeah and i think the thing also that then works really well for it is that while that thing is the way it's looking at war is one is through a lens that is more accessible to a younger audience but it's not sacrificing character complexity to do that and that's why i think the show still works for audiences of all ages right like like why we both can watch it and really appreciate it and why it's not just like a a dumb show you put on for kids to that things explode and they can enjoy it but not you don't you're not going to sit there and be entertained by it is that i think the like emotional texture of ezelkant and then especially flick because you've been with him the whole time but even ezelkant it's such a rich characterization and and when you have that moment um, like after Kyo is leaving Mars and then he and Ezekant fight in their Gundams and Ezekant is like so insistent on Kyo not leaving and then you get this one big emotional burst from him where you know you've had these flashbacks about his son and his son saying if I'm reborn I want to be reborn on earth and I want to be with you and then the son dies right and that's the memory that Ezekant is left with that gives him this idea it's like we have to go to earth because you know, he's like, I need to save humanity. The reason why he wants to go to Earth is he wants to see his son, even though obviously he logically knows that that's not a thing that's ever going to happen. But that's actually why he wants to settle on Earth is because this is he misses his son and he's so sad. And so when he's fighting Keo and Keo's trying to leave and he's like, why are you trying to leave? Like, why don't you understand? And then he says, if you really are my son reborn, why can't you understand what I'm trying to do? And like, that's the one time that Ezlikon is like, honest right that you you break through those cracks that it's like it's not about any of that shit like the reason why he doesn't want Keo to leave is that he sees his son in Keo, right it's not about executing the big plan it's not really about the eden shit it's all ezekant trying to justify things to himself and i think those the way that Keo is able to poke those cracks in ezekant um gives you such a rich sense of like the interiority of this character that also very similar to the way that he pokes holes in flit right that whenever Flit does his whole, we need to exterminate all the vegans, and then Keo walks the corner and he sees Keo, Flit always has this reaction that is like so much like a deer in the headlights where he realizes deep down he understands that what he's saying is wrong because he sees it reflected in this child that he loves and cares about. And that allows, and that pokes that hole in all of his bullshit justification. Because really, all that Flit wants is to be happy with his family and for his the people he cares about to be safe. Um, but the way he can only express that is through hatred. The only way that Ezlikant can express his grief about his son is through executing this plan to try to reunite with his son on Earth in some kind of spiritual sense. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's you know this is what I said last time about the sort of level five of it all. There are kind of two kinds of stories for kids. There's the one mm-hmm. that talk down and pander and just put out shit because they think anyone will watch it. And then I think there are the storytellers who are very invested in the idea of telling meaningful stories to kids in a meaningful way, you know? And there's all sorts of those throughout history, you know, like like Jim Henson and the Muppets or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think level five is very clearly like the reason why you would run a company like level five is you are invested in that idea, Right. That you can, like, tell stories and entertain kids in a meaningful way that they will get something out of. Studio Ghibli. I don't know why I didn't say that. Hayao Miyazaki is, like, the patron saint of that idea, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, like, that's that's the level five touch here. And, like, it's like, you can really feel like, oh, okay, this is, like, this is Gundam Age cracking something Gundam has never been able to do. Which is actually aim a show at 
children, right? Uh-huh. Um, and it's like, it's because this is kind of like what this group of storytellers does, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, man, like all that stuff with Esselkan, it's just so good. Like It's, it's so it's, good. It, because as you say, the Gundam Age is not a show, particularly if you're an, like an older viewer, like is not going to like pull a bunch of really surprising twists. But I think the thing that like is surprising about this back half of the show is the elegance with which they pull off some of this like characterization. Um, that feels yes. like it's just so deft. Um, I also think the stuff on Mars uh, on uh, Second Moon where he's with Dean and Lou, the boy mm-hmm. and girl, um, is really great. It's again, it's not like something we've never seen in Gundam before but I think it's a very good version of it and I think Keo is such a sweet character and I think the the things I like about him as a character come through so strongly here they have that beautiful montage as you say with the insert song that's great there's just a lot of good moments in it and I think the overall build to they're going to take Lou out for a day because uh, uh, Keo has gotten her this medicine from Azel Kant um, which boy, that's a striking moment when he uh-huh. gives the Gundam info. Azel Kant gives him the medicine, and then he says, "Arigato, Ezelkant san," and yeah. calls him like, "Thank you, Mister Ezelkant." Just like it's not disrespectful; it's actually very respectful, but not treating him as a lord or a king, but as someone who did something nice for him. And how much that pierces Ezelkant when you talk about yeah. like vibrant characters, like that's part of it. But then you have that whole day where they take Lou out, and it's beautiful. And there's such striking visual stuff there. Um, the moment when they like get to the top of like the slums where they live, and they look out over the colony, um, it's lovely. There's a really striking moment at the end of that episode where Keo has Lou's sketchbook, and she mm-hmm. has all these sketches in it. Oh, and as God. he's flying, as he's flying away from the colony, you have this moment where you'll go from the sketch. And it'll cut to a fully colored, like, animated version of it. And it, basically, what it looks like to me is, like, anime storyboards going to full finished animation. But they do it with Lou's voiceover and going from, like, the dream to reality. And now, of course, those dreams will only ever be dreams because she's dead. It's beautiful stuff. Really well done. And striking as a production and a directorial choice, too, I think. Yeah, that whole sequence where, I mean, it's it's just a real kick in the emotional nuts of the, of, <laughs> like... Lou, you know, you know that she's going to die. She, you know, has been affected by the Mars rays. Um, and you know that that's going to happen. And she has this diary and it's just so effectively set up where she writes about that that date with Keo, right? That's like, I want to go show you around the city. And, but she like writes it as like from the past tense. Like I walked around the city with, with Keo and we went to my favorite part, which is at the top of this junk pile. And we looked out over the whole colony. And it's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And we held hands, right? And then after she dies, Dean gives Keo the diary. And she had written out like, weeks and months of them being together and like being friends in this like future that she didn't get to to have it's like man that that whole sequence just very striking very powerful um because because i think it just drives home so much the tragedy of what is happening in this place where there are all these people dying for no good reason and they're they're children right like it's these people who are living lives like where like the slimmest hope is like the greatest thing that they can have, right? This like this little vision she has of having a normal life um, that she can't really have because of this disease, and you know because the, the disease impairs her so much, and then also eventually it takes her life. Um, and having that illustrated literally for you through this whole diary she makes of, of the life that she didn't get to live 
Um, like that's just such a powerful motivator moving into that last arc um, with Keo, where you, I think as a viewer are 100% on the same page with him now, where it's like, you cannot possibly look at the Vegans as being enemies when you've had that experience and you've seen what it is that they are fighting for. And that, especially from, I think Keo's perspective, like their motivation is way starker and more powerful than the Earth motivation, which is very passive and very defensive because they're just trying to defend Earth, right? They just don't want the Vegans to end up on Earth. Um, and that's it. Uh, whereas the Vegans are like, we need to survive. We are dying here. Um, like our children are dying. We need to get out of here. And so Keo's decision from that point forward to not kill anybody and to just disable mobile suits, like I think that whole moment with Lou just so epitomizes that feeling of we cannot see these people as enemies because they are suffering tragedies equal to, if not greater than the tragedies that we on Earth are suffering. And, and you experience that so um, concisely. Yeah, you have just immense buy-in from that. Mm -hmm. Like, be, because they they don't try to like show you every factor of this society. They focus in on Dean and Lou and this one family as like the synecdoche for. There's a million of these, right? Like all mm -hmm. the pain that Keo felt there. There are a million other people going through that, and it is what this like. And you also think of like what the psychic scars of that would be on a society, right? Mm -hmm. Is very horrifying to think about, right? Um, and so, of course, any like. Anything less than I will never kill one of these people again would be a weird reaction to that. You know, it's just yeah. it would be impossible to hate the society as a whole for something the military might do to you afterwards, you know? Yeah. And I also love this that whole sequence on on Mars for the um the the juxtaposition. The show doesn't point this out very directly, but I think there is a very clear juxtaposition between Ezelkant and the normal people living on Mars, right? And this, like, I think before you find out Ezelkant's whole plan, that, like, it's not about saving the Vegans, it's this much bigger, higher, weird, abstract idea about creating a superior human race. And I think they set that up very clearly by, like, if Ezelkant really cared about the people on Mars, he could help them out a whole lot more than what he's doing. Because you have these, like, extensive slums of people living in just abject poverty, um, you see that they're like practically starving, right? Like the food that Lou and Dean has and, and you have um, uh, Keo is like joins them for dinner and they have like a, a like slice of bread basically is what you have for dinner. And then in the next scene, he's in Ezlikan's dining hall and Keo's refusing to eat and it's this like massive feast in front of him and the sense of like Ezlikan, if he actually cared about these people, there's so much he could do with his tremendous wealth and power that he's not doing. Um, and and the show's not like putting a very like fine um, lens on it, but it is, uh, I think it's like very clearly in like the minds of the storytellers that this is part of this characterization as well. That that you are showing very vividly that Ezlikant's motivations are not like humanitarian in any way, because if they were, there's so much he could do to help the people on Mars that he is just like not doing. It doesn't seem like it would even occur to him to give up his massive castle and the medicine he's using to heal himself that other people are not getting access to and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So transitioning into the fourth arc, mm -hmm. uh, I think that first episode, episode 40 is fantastic where you have Keo kind of going out for the first time in the age FX 
which you learn is called the Age FX Four X Rounder, which is the dumbest and best. No, acronym. it's it's better than that. It's the Follow X Rounder because follow it, right Follow X Rounder. It follows your X Rounder abilities. Um, so dumb. that's I one of it. those areas where you know English to a, a native Japanese speaker, English sounding very cool does not mean for an English speaker that that same use of English would would sound cool. <laughs> Sometimes there's a good matchup of like what sounds cool to English cool to a Japanese speaker also sounds English cool to an English speaker. The phrase follow X rounder is not one of those things. That is no. one of the lamest collections of English language syllables I have ever heard in my entire fucking life. But you have that. You have a series of flashbacks kind of getting us back up to speed on what's been going on. You get a big chunk of Asamu's backstory here. You get that scene with Asamu and Flit together that we t- or, and Kyo together that we talked about earlier. Very good. I do think the fourth arc is pretty messy after that point yes. for a little bit. I think the, the whole like four or five episodes on the moon where they're trying to get the base just kind of sag for me and I feel like it's fairly directionless again I think it snaps into place I think the final episodes are fantastic but I do think there's just a sense of directionlessness there um, at least through that that like what I would roughly call like the Gerard Spriggan arc uh-huh. and then I think after that when you get into like the exit DB stuff and Sid and like Zayhart and like those last four or five are very tight and I think those last three in particular are great but I do think this first stretch it's rough narratively, and you can also just... It's one of the most stark examples in all of Gundam I can see of, like, we are saving budget here so we can uh-huh. spend more money here because the stuff on the moon looks cheap as shit and is the worst action in the series. And then the final three episodes look like they spent a movie budget on them. They look so fucking good, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think one of the problems is that, the like, I don't think Gundam Age, like, really knows how to reconcile the two, like, ongoing elements it needs to resolve um which is the exit db stuff and just like the conflict with between earth and vegans and i think the problem is i think with the gerard spriggan section is i think they end up committing too much energy in the wrong direction i think they need to spend more time on the exit db stuff and have like some battles between earth and vegan be like montage like or something because you need to have the war progress in a certain way you can't go immediately at the beginning of the arc four to this is the final confrontation. There needs to be some other confrontation between Earth and the Vegans. Um, but but you also don't want it to be here's like a giant battle and Exit DB's just in the middle. Like I think it's just kind of like these different narrative pieces they have are kind of hard to fully put together. I think they make a little bit the wrong choice there um, with how they handle it. Uh, but then once you kind of lock in for that final stretch, and I do think like the like convenience at which the exit db stuff is discovered and the like the sid thing kind of coming out of nowhere all that is like messy but once you've kind of cleared out some of that narrative messiness and things are locked into place then gundam age is like on fire for that last three or four episodes yes i i totally agree with that analysis i think you know the exit db is we haven't talked about yet i think it's a great concept it's very turn a like yes. is is and we didn't really talk about this last time but the whole backstory of gundam age is very turn a the whole idea that like there was a essentially a universal century in this world like not exactly like we saw it but something like that humanity moved past it roughly with a lot of like sins like the vegan stuff right um and then they put all of their knowledge of warfare into this thing and sent it off into space i love that idea and i do think what i would have liked to see as like the start of this arc was because i think part of it is that keo has this big decision to make 
and he makes the decision that he's not going to kill anymore. He's going to use the power that he has as an X-Rounder and that the Gundam Age FX will give him as an X-Rounder to just disable mobile suits while fighting. But he doesn't do anything bigger, like, structural to, like, make that choice. Yeah. And what I kind of expected was that he was going to fly off and just, like, go looking for the exit DB or something. Or, like, he and Asamu would, like, go on a voyage and, like, maybe Flit is back home waging the war while Asamu and Kyo try to do something to, like, actually change the course of the war. And I think something like that, if you had, like, a five-episode arc at the beginning here and then linked it up with what where they ultimately go, I think you could square that circle. Um, and I just think, as you say, there's kind of like two warring ideas here, or at least plot ideas here, and they wind up going with more of the Vegan Earth conflict. And at that point, it's like, I don't... I don't really need to see more of it. I think Gerard Spriggan, as fucking wonderful as that name is, and mm -hmm. it's an A-plus S-tier Gundam name, she doesn't like do anything more that we have not done on this show yet. There's nothing new thematically introduced here. Um, and again, because the budget just can't... like They are clearly cutting corners so that they have the money later on, and those episodes just don't really play that well either. Yeah, I, I agree that it's just it, the... Like, the, some of this kind of feels like a vision of if you had had the original 50-episode plan for the original Mobile Suit Gundam, where they're going to be like, here's, like, the three Chaliable episodes. That's kind of what the Dread Fruit Spriggan stuff feels like, where it's like, you know, Mobile Suit Gundam has this one-off episode where Chaliable shows up from Jupiter. He's like, I'm I'm the new type Chaliable. I'm the title of this episode. I'm a cool new type man. And then he just gets fucked up immediately and dies, and, and you move on to something different in the next episode. Um, and that works well for Mobile Suit Gundam, but there's going to be a lot more with that whole thing. And this feels like that, where it's like, well, this is the character that is kind of a throwaway character, really deep in the run of this show, that you end up, like, dedicating basically, like, three episodes around here, kind of. You know, it's, you have, like, the main episode, which is the centerpiece for her, which is the just the episode titled Gerard Spriggan. But the episode before that one and the episode after that one are heavily about her as well. It's like, that's a lot of time to commit to this one X-Rounder type character that could be anybody, right? Like, it could be, you could use a character we already know, like Fram for this, or Zayhart or something to do something similar and get a little bit of, like, some more of this war or whatever. Or if you want to have a scene that has Flit and Asimu and Kyo team up, which is what they do um, in episode 43 to, to deal with that, there are way more elegant ways to go about that than, than I think the, the path they ultimately took. Yeah, I think outside some of the early rockiness in, in arc one, this is probably the worst little stretch of the show. Mm -hmm. It doesn't derail the show. It's not a fatal flaw, nothing like that. It's just this is probably the messiest thing the show does, at least in this stretch of episodes we're talking about today. Yeah, and then you, you that leads into episode 45, which is Sid the Destroyer, um, which is about the the guardian of the Exodip, which we've conveniently never heard about uh, before this point. Uh, which is the mobile suit that uh, de defeated Asimu and fucked him up so bad um, that you know he had to he was like recovering for months on the pirate ship and Zayhart goes and decides to fight it to challenge it so he can master the Gundam. I like every time I try to say this in English, it just sounds like I'm saying Gundam Legolas. So I'm just going to call it the Gundam Legolas because I don't know how <laughs> you're supposed to pronounce it in English. Um, so the Legolas Gundam, um, which he inherited from Zayhart, right? And, does and, not have a bow and arrow, sadly. No, it does not. I mean, it's a sick ass Gundam. We'll we'll save the mobile suit talk for later. But I I love this fucking design. I it's think a good it's so, one. It's so great. Um, but I do think there's a little bit of awkwardness with this episode and where we go later, where it just feels like 
a little bit out of step with where they take Zayhart, which I think like what they do with Zayhart in the climax is perfect and what you needed to do with the character. But it feels weird to like so quickly go from Zayhart triumphant over the Sid and him mastering the Gundam Legolas to him being like going space mad and he's like space Macbeth, um, which is great. And again, is the perfect direction for the character. But I feel like this episode 45 is kind of awkward. Like it doesn't quite do everything that it needs to do with the Zayhart character or with Asimu. Um, and and some of it just feels like it kind of comes a bit out of nowhere with this like magical destroyer in space that is guarding the exit DB. I just feel like there's like more that they could flesh out around that concept. That feels like our idea of if you had a whole exit DB arc here, you could do that a lot more elegantly than just kind of shoving all this in one episode before the last battle. Yeah, that's what I meant. I, I think if I, I really do think if you split the cast up here a little bit and had Kyo with Asimu for a couple episodes doing something related to the XADB, you more fully explored that Zayhart headspace and get him from point A to B, and B being Space Macbeth, which is mwah, wonderful, um, that I think you could do a lot of this. And I, I like the idea of Sid the Destroyer. I think it's a cool idea that there's this like thing out in space and there's a robot that self-evolves to fight. That's awesome! Yeah. It's, like, it's very Macross in a certain way, um, and I like it a lot. I think the look of it is cool. This is... This stretch of episodes is like one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the first times we have a lot of like CGI mobile suits in Gundam. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't, Double O didn't really do it, did it? No. No. So yeah, like like obviously we've had a lot more of that later with stuff like The Origin and then Hathaway. Um, but it's cool to see it and I think they're able to do like, what I like about how they use CGI in this series is that they use it for mobile suits that you just couldn't do by hand. Like the the Sid or a lot of the Vegan stuff they do, there's no way you could hand draw like that idea. And so I think it's cool. I think that the overall action sequence they kind of put together with Sid versus Zayhart and um, um, Awesome has some has some good beats in it, and I think is good. But yeah, it's it's it feels very fragmentary as an episode on its own. Down to like it ends with like Asamu destroying the Exa DB, but he didn't really, and then it comes back in the end. Like I again, it just feels like get rid of the Gerard Spriggan episodes, extend this out, and we're good to go. All the ideas are here. It's just the execution that's a little off. Yes. But after that point, then you're just like, you know, full steam ahead with the final battle um, at Space Fortress Legramis, which is not Space Fortress Abawaku, I swear. It's a different <laughs> Space Fortress, right? Uh, I mean, it's very intentionally, it's the same exact same episode title structure as, as the ending of Gundam. Um, but yeah, so you have our last battle here. Um, and this is where you like really are pulling together like every single thread in Gundam Age. And there's like a lot. So this last four episodes has to resolve Flit's whole narrative arc from the very beginning of the show, right? It has to do all the savior stuff and deal with him. It has to resolve Asimu's character arc and his relationship with Zayhart. It has to resolve Zayhart. It has to resolve Kyo's entire arc on the show. It has to resolve the war in general and Ezekon's arc. And then all the little side characters along the way, like Fran, who we haven't talked about some of them, like there's the, I forget what his name is, but there's the other general that's kind of opposed to Zayhart and he's been kind of plotting. Yeah, in the background, you have to resolve all of that. You have the exit DB. You have this like mysterious clone boy that Ezlecant has made um, that is like 
for whatever like it's just basically kid boo there's just something about like the way that he works in the story that feels like this is the kid boo this is like the all reason is gone out of this this is like war and like violence right. incarnate and we have to fight it like there's you have multiple side characters on the diva who have yes. sort of the end of their arc including like the multiple deaths and things like that that are really great there's some great character moments with all of that yeah, yeah it's so it's lot. it is a lot on Gundam Age's plate, and it's very much like I feel like this finale is in like you know in that kind of Tomino space with like a Zeta Gundam or something where you get there and you're like, how the fuck are they going to resolve all of this shit in the episode count they have? And then you watch the episodes, you're like, I don't know how they did it, but they fucking did it. Like I don't think it's like as effective as like the ending to Zeta Gundam. I think there's a little bit of messiness here and there. I think one of like the things that never fully feels right is like Dean's whole role that he has somehow gotten involved in like the military with Vagan and he gets killed. Like I think him getting killed in this battle and like that confrontation with Keo is important, but it's not set up very well. So there's some messiness here and there, but by and large, all the major stuff they do, particularly the main character arcs for our three main characters. Um, I just think like Gundam age absolutely nails basically all those things I just listed out. Honestly, four main characters if you include Zayhart, because yes. he gets just as much of a focus here, and his <laughs> his ending is phenomenal. So, like, yeah, I mean, it's I remember going into that third, the final, final episode forty nine, and we so we would have just seen Zayhart die, and I was just in my head doing the checklist of everything we have to catch up with. We have to finish Keo's arc, we have to finish Flit's arc, we have to do something with Ezelkant because he's still out there. We have to end the war. The Exadb is still floating out there, and we have Clone Boy, and I was like. How do we do that in 20 minutes? And it's pretty masterful. Like, as you say, I don't think it's at the absolute level of like peak Tomino, end of Gundam, end of Zeta Gundam, something like that. Um, but it's closer than any non Tomino show has a right to be, frankly. Like, uh -huh. it's really good. Like, I have not had this specific feeling with like an AU Gundam because. Something like Double O is just much more sane about how it bases the story. Uh, yes. It's like you don't go into the finale of Double O going, "How are they going to wrap this up?" It feels pretty like relatively sanely paced. This is very much going for that Tomino style. Everything will be resolved through action in the heat of the moment, you know. And that is a really hard line to walk, and they walk it really beautifully. And and at sometimes just utterly masterfully. Like I think yeah. everything they do with with Flit is just. I don't think you could do it better. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yes, it's a, it's a great, great Gundam finale. So where do you want to start kind of breaking down? Because I feel like we just need to kind of pick the different <laughs> narrative threads because there's so much that's going on in these last four episodes. Because all of this stuff, this is like one big battle. It's like basically a massive action scene with a bunch of different phases spread out across these last four episodes. Yeah. Can we just talk about some of the smaller character deaths that we get? Okay. So, you know, like we do get the death of um, Obright uh, here at the end. Oh. and. His death Man. scene is so good. Like, if you look at that scene, it's... I mean, one, it's... As I said, the animation here just gets pretty off the charts. There's some amazing <laughs> stuff. And I tweeted out, if you look at my Twitter timeline, I when I finished the show, I did a couple of videos, like, videos I, I took from the show. And one of them was O'Bright's final thing, where he's the one who does the final blow against Fram. Yeah. And he has this thing where he... He's fighting because his mobile suit is nowhere near what Fram is able to do, but he's just so experienced. And there's this one cut where it's Fram like bangs into him. He's clearly like gonna be die of shrapnel at that moment, right? And then he lifts the the arm of the mobile suit, spins the like hand around, and comes back down and like just 
pulls the like light uh, the light lightsaber kind of thing into her and it is a incredible piece of animation it's so good and then his death is he's looking at like the screen and Keo's face is there saying you have to live and he and and he tells or no sorry he says to them like you guys have to live and then his like hand falls and just blood streaks down the like window of the mobile suit and he blows up um holy crap obright got a good death he does call out remy there at the end he says i'll finally see you again great scene it's yeah. a small character in the show but he's great and it's a great scene where like you know because earlier i think this is in arc three right he's uh obright is on the deck with Keo and he's doing his whole thing where he's cleaning the deck and he repeats I wanted the to thing talk about that that yeah. Remy told him about like this is where we live and you treat it like your home it's like yeah you could clean it automatically but like you have to clean it by hand and like show it the respect I think there's something with the, his dying moments the way that shot works is he Keo's face comes up on the monitor he reaches up his hand and presses this bloody hand against where Keo's face is and he says you guys have to live and Keo's face disappears and the hand falls and then behind it is the diva because what he was looking at wasn't really really Keo he was looking at the diva which was his home right yeah like that framing and the direction of that moment I think like really hits really hard for Obright, who is like not a major major character like he's been in the background for part two and part three um, but you know, I think especially because Remy's death is so memorable in part two, like, I think you're like really, you know, you're looking at Oprah a lot and remembering him and caring about him and just like saving this special little moment for that character's death. Uh, yeah, it works really well. Honestly, if I had to pick one moment in this entire show as just a tiny little cynic doke of how smart the writing on this show is, it would be Obright on the deck talking to Keo, quoting what Remy told him. Mm-hmm. And just like what that scene said, because it's a nice scene when Remy does it, but the way it, it, what it reflects about the show and the generational aspect and the way it uses like the progress of time and, and all of that, that is just, again, that is a kind of moment no other Gundam show could do because it doesn't have this premise of like taking place over a century. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Obright, great character, great death. I also think someone who gets a great death is Sarek, who is one of the, he's like the new wolf in the, in the generation yeah. three team. The I think Holmes he's really... of the battlefield, as he's called at the beginning of part three. And I, I really love Sarek in his whole, like, he's you great. Know, his whole attitude. He's, he's a great character. I love Sarek. He's really good. He has a relationship sort of with the uh, captain in this arc who we haven't talked about yet, but I like, I like Captain Anus. That is her <laughs> name. It is Anus. I, it's it's A-I-N-U-S, but it is just in Japanese. It's just Anus. Her name is Captain Anus. What are you laughing at? It's like fucking Uranus. It's a planet. What are we laughing about? Yeah, no, Captain Anus, which is just the funniest name ever. <laughs> um, yes, uh, yeah. So you have... You know, her whole story arc throughout this whole part three and part four of her, you know, starting as this captain who just gets the diva shoved onto her because the military dude is not happy about Flit, like, throwing his weight around even though Flit's retired from the military. So he's like, oh, let's just give this, like, green person, like, just straight out of basically officer school who's never, like, really served a meaningful day in her life yet, um, give her command of this entire ship and her going from that to being this great captain um, and that whole death of where, you know, she has to make the decision to fire the, the main cannon at the ship that Sarek's, uh, mobile suit is like basically stranded on. Um, and she decides to make that call and shoots the cannon and she starts crying. 
and then uh, Flit turns to her and says, I know it's hard, but we need to fight. And then, like, he's about to tell her, it's like, but we need to trudge on, blah, 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 and give his whole Flit speech. And she immediately just, like, cuts him off. And even while she's still, like, crying and tears are streaming down her face, she continues giving, like, commands to the rest of the crew. Like, that whole sort of slow burn arc of her and the, like, misfit crew of the, the diva for this third generation, um, I do really like a lot. I love it. Like, this show shouldn't have time for that. Uh It shouldn't have time to have... Her and Sarek are, like, very clearly, like, the bone of it, and it's why their climaxes are very tied together. Like, that's the big last moment for both of them. But I love that whole Misfit crew. I even... I thought I was going to hate the guy who's, like, at the computer eating all the time, and I'm like, oh, is this just a funny fat dude? I hate that fucking archetype. But you know what I love about that guy? He eats at his desk all the time, and he's good at his job. Yes. I like it. I Like, if you're going to do that archetype, I like that they kind of undercut it by, like, and he is good at his job, and no one makes fun of him for it. Because you know what? If he wants to eat a hot dog while saving the day, he'll eat that fucking hot dog, and he will save the fucking day. It's great. Exactly. And, uh... And then, and then Captain Anus herself, I just have to shout out the voice, right? It's very hard to say that name. Um, you know, Sean, but- I just love in recent weeks, we've talked about the French Revolution in the context of The Dark Knight Rises. And we've talked about, like, the Iraq War and the modern problems of, like, of like you know, terrorism and warfare in the Gundam 00 episodes. And now we get to talk about Captain Anus and how funny it is because her name sounds like a butthole. It's great. I mean, it is. It is. You couldn't come up with a more funny sort of, like, sophomoric name for a character than Captain Anus. Like, it just sounds like it should be, like, a straight-to-DVD National Lampoon movie, right? <laughs> National Lampoon's Captain Anus. Um, in the modern era of, you know, the superhero craze, this is, this is like, this is what we need is the straight-to-DVD bargain bin Captain Anus film. Um, but Captain Anus in Gundam Age, spelled E-I-N-U-S, um, is voiced by an actress I really love, Rina Sato. Um, she is Yula in Genshin Impact, who has been my main in Genshin Impact for uh, a while now since that character came out. Um, she's also... Um, the main character in Railgun, a certain scientific Railgun. Um, and then she's also Candy Shop, who's my favorite character in No Known Beauty, which is one of my favorite shows. She's a lady who runs a candy, candy shop and everyone just calls her Candy Shop, basically. Um, but it's a great actress. She's not like an anthropomorphic Candy Shop? No, that would also be very good. Um, but yeah, so she, she plays uh, Captain Anus in the show and she does a great job. And like I think that arc is very... like striking from her being this very like nervous inexperienced young captain to being like the most competent person on the bridge um it's just a it's a very memorable character it's just i really do love that in the midst of kind of having to do like three gundam shows in one gundam show they actually commit to like having three crews and having three captains and doing these different stories i think you know like i think in the second arc the second crew comes across the least strongly of uh-huh. any of the three crews. But they're still there, and they're still given some attention. And in this third arc, there's there's just a lot of good stuff there. I like the crew. I like Sarek. He gets great moments. His last action beat, like, what winds up killing him is he's fighting that big yellow mobile armor that has, like, the drill on it. Uh-huh. And him killing that thing is a phenomenal action beat. And then it winds up, he gets hit by the ship. And then he has to, you know, he and, and Captain Anus have their final moment together. And it's just a... It's a, it's a great culmination to those characters who add so much color and life to the show around it. And also, I love that this is not a show that's afraid of killing characters. Like, it's uh-huh. very brutal at the end here. And thank God there's no age destiny where they bring them all back to life. Um, you know, because Gundam Seed did the same thing. But I don't remember that Gundam Seed did it because they brought all those characters back to life. Yes. Um, and then they did a whole show where no one could die from nuclear explosions. It was a, it was a weird choice. 
Um, but it definitely leaves an impact there, and it let it makes this final battle have the weight it needs. You know, absolutely. Speaking of characters who die, let's talk about Zayhart. We'll bring Asamu in here, but I think this will. You know, Zayhart basically gets the penultimate episode, and mm-hmm. like. I guess what baffled me when I heard from someone yesterday on Twitter that, like, some people don't like that Zayhart is taken out early is, like, Zayhart gets a fucking episode. Like, Zayhart yeah. gets the royal treatment from this show in terms of a, a big, like, final arc. He becomes Space Macbeth. It's phenomenal. It's Shakespearean. It's And then Asamu gets pulled into it, and you get a great ending for Asamu's arc because Asamu doesn't quite have a role in that final episode the way Keo and Flit do. And, like, how could he? He's a little removed from it. And I think they're able to bring it all to a close beautifully. I, I think the conclusion to Zayhart's stuff is A-plus material. Yeah, I think in particular, like, this is... I think Zayhart's probably the best example of how strong the characterization is in this show. Where that, you know... what I think is very self-consciously a Shakespearean tragedy, like, tragic hero thing they're doing with him. Like, down to him having ghostly visions, which is a pretty common trope in Elizabethan tragedies. Um, and... So his whole thing where he's, you know, I mean, he's there from like day one, the invasion of Earth for part three, right? So he's been around in this whole section, but he's been very much in the background. He has this sort of uh, subordinate Fram, who is the younger brother of the Kinjiro Suda character from part two. Dole. Or it's not a younger sister, yeah, than Dole from part two. And she's you know, kind of testing him to see, like, are you worthy of kind of carrying on the legacies of all the people who have died under your command? And you see in that early part of part three that that Zayhart very much is, right? He's that character we know from part two, this very idealistic young man who has been given this mission that he is dedicated to bringing about, which is the savior, like the survival of his uh, people, bringing them to Earth, like executing what he thinks Project Eden is. And, you know, you have that one scene that I think is very defining of his character where, you know, the, there's a mission that happens and, and Keo kills a couple of, of vegan mobile suits on the mission. Um, and then Fran reports the results of that mission to Zayhart and Zayhart asks her, do you remember the names of the, of the pilots that died in that battle? And she says no. And then he just lists them off off the top of his head. And that, that so much is defining of who Zayhart is at his best. This guy who understands that there's going to be sacrifices in this battle, but that he needs to respect and honor them and carry them with him. And where it becomes tragic is then when he learns that Ezlecan's plan is not what he thought it was. That Ezlecan's plan is not about saving the vegan people, but it's this very abstract, ubermanch, superior human race thing that is not at all, I think, what Zayhart actually believes in. But Zayhart is then faced with this awful, impossible choice of do you abandon Ezelkant's plan, do you abandon what Project Eden actually is to continue on the thing that you believed in, like your principles and the principles and the things that the people who served under you who have lost their, gave their lives believed in, or do you continue to follow Ezelkant? Like, what is the right path to take? He takes the wrong one, right? He decides to abandon his principles and ideals to continue with like what Ezlecant tells him Project Eden actually is. And he's like, well, this is what we've been doing. We've been fighting for Project Eden. I have to bring it to its conclusion. And that's the point at which he's made, you know, that's his, his Macbethian choice. That's basically the equivalent of Macbeth killing the king, right? Is he has now, he is now killing people not out of what he believes is right, but out of what like he feels he has to do because he no longer has a choice. 
right? Um, and so he is, he basically almost quotes a line from Macbeth at some point near the finale where he says he's, the line from Macbeth is like, I have waited in blood so deep that were I to turn back, I'd have to go through as much as if I were to trudge on, which is like, I've killed so many people that to reverse the things I've done would be to do as bad as to just continue on the path I'm trekking on and eventually get killed. Um, and so Zayhart's whole tragic downfall there of him abandoning his ideals um, abandoning what made him special as a character, I mean, special as, like, a person in the hopes of, like, maybe somehow this Project Eden thing will work out and that obviously then ultimately leading to Zayhart having to die. Um, it's very sad, but I think it's a very sharp way to characterize the cost of what Ezlecant is doing and the cost of manipulating people and, and like, waging this very kind of, like, dishonest war that is not motivated by anything proper or just or like justifiable um and ultimately like the cost of that is the death of someone like Zayhart, who is like probably the most noble good character in the entire fucking show yeah and i love that they treat it as tragic i love that they give it the the sort of attention it deserves even though like from a purely like mercenary plot standpoint Zayhart's relevance to the final sort of conflict of the show is somewhat minimal because he's a little bit outside of that main ideological debate you know which is why he can't be there for the finale like yeah. from a plot standpoint you have to get rid of him in the penultimate episode um, both for just the reasons of like that's going to help bring the war to an end and get us to the point we need to be but also because he's not he's stuck in between these poles that is what the finale is dealing with right but I think, you know, there are there are several Gundam shows where I feel like the the Zayhart equivalent, the Char clone or the Ace rival or something like that, winds up feeling kind of vestigial at the end. And their ending feels a little sort of like, I don't know, like offhand. It's not really important. It doesn't feel fully satisfying. Zayhart feels fully satisfying. Yes. Like they really, really give it the attention it deserves and make this character's ending a fulsome part of the thematic tapestry of what Gundam Age is. And it's fantastic. And I think just an all-time great Gundam sequence is him ordering Fram to go get in the line of fire of their big space laser and draw the Gundam in. So he makes... That's that's his, like, point of... Not even... He's already past the point of no return. Yeah. But that's, like, his lock-in to, like, he's going to be the evil that he needs to be to get this done. And he knows it's bad. And he tells Fram, I need you to go lure the Gundam into the line of the laser and stay there and we'll destroy the Gundam and the Diva. And he believes this will be the end of the war because he'll get rid of all the most powerful stuff on the field and it will be worth the sacrifice of his, someone he called his beloved subordinate uh, in a previous episode. That's what he, he says, you are my, you know, be not beloved. He says very, he says like, you know, um, Shinsets, they're not. Yeah, Taisets and Abuka. Taisetsu. Yeah. Yeah, Taisets and Abuka. And it's, it's, uh, it, that's a powerful moment on its own because I think that sums up, that is how he sees people beneath yeah. him, right? That they're very important. And then he's willing to sacrifice her in a very sort of callous way where he's just turning off his emotions and she gets it. Um, and then you have this big battle with Fram. This is also where Obright dies, um, and Fram and Lael, another person on their team, are there. Um, and luckily, Asamu and everyone are able to plan in time to get out of the way. This is also where you empty out the diva, and we say goodbye to the diva, which is a, a really beautiful moment. This is this is the, definitely the ship I feel like I've had the most relationship to since like uh -huh. the Argama or something, right? Yeah. Um, because it just it, it lived for so long, seventy years as a ship. It's a it's a very good ship. But really what that sequence is ultimately about is Zayhart just going past a point he can never come back from. 
yeah, to to continue on the Macbeth comparison because again, like I think it is very consciously like modeling itself off of that. Yes, like this this is in Macbeth. He starts by killing the king, and then later he ends up killing Banquo, who is his friend, because there's a prophecy that Banquo's like children will become kings, and so he's afraid that that will then end up coming back and killing him. So he has his friend Banquo killed. Um, and he also orders the death of Banquo's son, but the son escapes. And so it's a very similar thing of like, you have now, now what you're doing is like, you are betraying someone who's really close to you um, for like this goal. And even doing that, the goal isn't actually achieved, right? And that's like, in many ways, the most tragic thing of all is that Macbeth, because the son gets away, he doesn't even achieve, he doesn't get the thing that he really wanted and actually most cared about. And the same thing with Zehart, he takes this extre- incredibly extreme step um, and in this sense of desperation, where he's like, "I just have to kill the Gundams, no matter the cost," um, and he can't even kill the Gundams. But like, it's like the dramatic irony of it is like, of course, because if you're not caring about the cost, if you're not caring about the people and the situation and what's actually happening, there's no way you're ever going to be able to beat the Gundams that way, right? And that's basically what the the final confirmation with Asimut comes down to is that. In order for Zehart to continue on the path he's going on, he's had to lose the thing that made him powerful in the first place, which was his empathy for people um, and the fact that he really cared about people. And that's what made him an effective military commander, an effective fighter, like an effective warrior, is he carried himself with honor and respect and love and care. And he's lost all of that. And so that final confrontation with Asimu, where Asimu says... Like, isn't the whole point where 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 Zehart says to Asimu, like, I've abandoned my human feelings a long time ago. Like, I've abandoned my human emotions to get to this point. And Asimu just says, like, isn't the whole point of this Eden thing so that human beings can be human beings? And Zehart has this look of shock on his face. And then Asimu completely takes him to pieces. And I really love um, in the original TV version, because they changed, this is where you did a lot of different stuff with the OVA, which we'll talk about. But in the TV version, Asimu just takes apart Zayhart in about like 30 seconds at that point. Like, it's not even much of a fight. And I like the way that it's framed that way, because at that point, Zayhart's got nothing. Like, there's nothing right. behind his actions. So, of course, Asimu's just going to rip him completely to pieces, um, because there's nothing behind Zayhart anymore. He's already lost He's already given up the thing that made him what he was. Um, and so that, you know, tragic downfall there, I think, is just very affecting. Yeah, the fight in the OVA is a great piece of animation, and it looks really cool. It doesn't hold a candle, I think, to how it all plays out in the show. Because yeah. we'll get to the OVA. It, it makes a lot of changes here that I think just missed the point of the scene entirely. Uh-huh. Um, but... I love, so you have that, that very brief fight where Asimu just tears him apart. Also, I, I will make my argument later, I think Asimu is like Loki, the best pilot in this universe. Oh, yes. Um, he's, Definitely. He's fucking, because he doesn't have any X-Rounder abilities and he makes up for it with just being better than everyone. He's a super um, pilot. He's a super pilot. And then, but then, so once he's defeated Zayhart, Zayhart has this line. I have all the like pictures here because I just, what I do with Gundam shows now when I'm watching and I want to remember dialogue is I just screenshot over and over again and fill up my camera roll. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, it works. Um, where, where Zayhart says, everything is slipping through my fingers. Why can't I grasp it? And, and says something about his humanity. And, and uh, Osamu comes back and says, there are things we can't grasp because we're human. 
Um, you saved me many times when I was your enemy. Before you were a warrior, you were a human being. I love that line. I think that's mm-hmm. a beautiful, beautiful line. Um, and I love that that's sort of one of the things that gets through to Zayhart here. And then he tar- starts talking about the mobile suit club and remembering that he was content and that he felt jealous of Asamu for being more in touch with his humanity there, sort of. Yeah. Um, and, and specifically, I love, I, like, the way that Zayhart says it in Japanese is he basically says, like, that's the only time in his life he felt fulfilled was yeah. the time that he was on in that mobile suit club. It's, like, the only time that he felt, like, satisfied, basically. Um, and it's it's so beautiful. And I love that... And this is, this is one of the main things. I'll just say the OVA version give Zayhart a much bigger speech that's like much more of like a soliloquy I think it, it it misses the point in several ways that we'll get to but one of the things it does is it makes it very pat where Zayhart gets to like give a clean explanation to everything and Asamu gets to give him a clean explanation back and then they're just able to kind of leave off as friends and that's not the point the point of the scene is that it's fucking it hurts it's a tragedy there is no way to fully like make sense of it I like that in the TV screenplay it is not resolved fully. Like mm-hmm. it's, there's just a lot of messiness in what they're saying. And Asamu has a lot of complicated feelings and they are sort of able to leave as friends and say like nice things at the very end, but it's brutal and it hurts. And there is like, Zayhart does not die having figured life out because it's a tragedy and that's how it has to go, you know? Yeah. And I think it, it's very effective then at setting up where like the the final episode goes with like the Esselcon stuff of like a big piece of the like I think kind of like the thesis of the show is that like you I mean there's a couple of things there of that like you can't be fixated on like the perfect right it's a kind of a perfect is the enemy of the good but this like idea that like we need to create the perfect human race or we need to create this paradise that we have to make this world where nothing bad happens because I felt this terrible pain and I can't let this pain happen to me or anyone else ever again, is not a sane way to react to living your life, right? That, that, that is, you are just trying to run away from what you're experiencing rather than trying to face up to it. And that's, I think, part of what Awesome is saying here is like, you need to be human. Like you can't, you need to just live your life. Like you can't be fixated on these ideals that are so larger than anything that any person could possibly accomplish. And these like, abstract ideas when all those abstract ideas are trying to accomplish is you seeing the world that's right been right in front of you the entire time so just see it just live that life do the things you want to do and be the person you want to be um and and you you can't let the pain and the grief and the loss you've suffered cause you to abandon all those things that made that grief important to you in the first place um, and that's then that becomes a much more sort of finer argument once it's like goes through Keo and Ezelkan, but it's setting up those ideas here. And I think that's one of like the reasons why you need to have this scene where it is, is it is you resolving these two characters' story arc in this very like personal way that then is good sets up, I think, the slightly bigger like conclusion that that then Eslikon and Keo have taking this idea to this kind of bigger more philosophical perspective that those characters relationship reflects yeah and I just man I really love that piece of writing where he says to him before you were a warrior you were a human being there's something about the like poetry of that line and like the just that underlying idea of exactly what you said of like underneath all of that you are the thing you're running from and trying to fight like you are human and 
you can't get rid of yourself. You can't like get your humanity out of the world. It's it's a part of it. It's an indelible part of this thing that we're all running from in this war. Um, great stuff. And man, what a what a great performance by what's the name of the actor? Zayhart. Uh oh, Hiroshi Kamiya. Yeah, the yeah. fucking he's great. I yeah. I don't even sense that Zayhart takes like a full fifty percent of his abilities as an actor. But fuck it, he knocks it out of the park. He's just so good. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. And 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 the last note on on this whole sequence is that that line you're pointing out about the uh, before you were warrior, you were human is also a nice callback to the end of part two, where the end of that is Asimu or is Zayhart recognizing Asimu as a warrior, right? And that's like the note they leave off on is he says like like you two are fighting for the things that you care about um like you and you're doing this like you i recognize you as a warrior i think coming that bringing that full circle um and asimu showing the way that zehart has been stuck and asimu has grown right and like zehart has literally been stuck right because he was frozen he was like cryogenically frozen after the conclusion of part two he's like the same age basically in part three he was um, i think he's like supposed to be like a little bit older um but he has not been able to grow and learn in the way that Asimu has been able to grow and learn. Because because the other line, because that whole sequence, the writing's so good, because the other line Zayhart has that is also heartbreaking is he says, I wanted to like be able to fall in love and have a family and a child like you, right? Because that's something else that, Zay, that Ezlikant's whole thing with Zayhart has robbed him of that life. Because Zayhart's life is in fits and starts because when he's not necessary for the plan, he's put into fucking cold sleep. So he's never been able to have those relationships with people. The, that whole part of who he is has been taken from him by Ezekiel. Yes. There is a cool moment in the OVA where you go, how they make the shift from the second to third arc is they just stay in Zayhart's POV. Mm-hmm. And so you see him go into cryosleep and then come out and it's 25 years later and it's back to business. That's a nice little point of view to get there of like reminding you like, right, there was no big gap here where like Asamu lived a life and Keo is born and and Flit became a grandpa and all that stuff for Zayhart none of that happened yeah yeah so then you have the final episode where they have a lot of plot to deal with and the way we kind of square it all is we have the um, Vagan gear come out which I went to look that mobile suit design up the other day and I realized when you type in Vagan gear into Google they think that's vegan gear and they try to show you a bunch of like vegan stuff um, and it took me a while to find an actual picture of the mobile suit the vegan gear the vague the vegan the vegan sorry, gear vegan gear which basically looks like the red eyes black metal dragon from Yu-Gi-Oh uh-huh. it's very cool and you have that piloted by the clone and this winds up like melding with the exit db sid stuff and causing this fucking chain reaction on second moon that threatens to destroy it flit takes this opportunity with his big nuke thing i forget what he calls it the like the plasma the, diver or something like the that. plasma diver and this is the perfect opportunity he can literally nuke second moon into nothing and kill every last vegan in existence and he is ready to pull the trigger and then keo gets between him and the nuke um and this is the culmination of the show. And I, I found it very impressive how gracefully they're able to take all of those narrative pieces and make it into one focused story for this final episode, which is basically Flit is the antagonist kind of here. Mm-hmm. It's that, that's what, what really needs to be defeated at this moment is whatever's going on in Flit's heart that you know, prevents him from moving beyond the hatred. Yeah, and then this is where you have... The best scene in the show where you you have Keo is convincing Flit and telling him you have to stand down. And he's like, no, I need to become a savior. I need to kill them all. 
and in Keo calls him out on his bullshit is like what kind of savior is that like that's no savior that I could possibly recognize and then you get this flash into Flit's head where you have little kid Flit who we have not seen in a very long time um, and Toshiyuki Toyonaga playing him which is like if that actor did not just do did such a phenomenal job playing Flit when he was a kid and like making that voice in that character so memorable I don't think the scene would hit nearly as hard as it does, but because he just nailed it so hard in the early section of the show, when you see Flit and he's in the cockpit, but like the rest of the mechanism is gone and it's like in this sort of spectral forest and he's there and he's holding the trigger and you now have little kid Flit talking about it. I mean, it did like, I started to tear up a little bit because I think there's... It's unbelievably powerful. Yeah, it's, it is... I- Definitely, I think being a teacher in particular has like made some of these like Gundam Boy stories like hit in a way that feels weird. And this one in particular, like revisiting this little boy and seeing how much this boy has been trapped in this, you know, old man body that we have not like been able to see him for so long. But he's always been buried down there. And, and that being all stripped away here uh, in this scene is so powerful. It's beautifully animated. It's unbelievably beautifully acted also by Yurin who comes yes. in here and has several beautiful it basically becomes a dialogue between him and Yurin and him mm-hmm. saying I mean some of the dialogue here is great I love that in his head as young Flit he's immediately able to he says I know they're suffering too but they took you from me I couldn't save you I couldn't do anything and what am I supposed to do with that and then Yurin turns to him and says thank you my gentle Flit and that's what she calls him and tell and begs him basically to forgive. She says, "Forgive them, forgive everyone, and then forgive yourself." And over all of this, you have a really beautiful insert song playing. With it's the same that, insert song that was the montage right. from their scene together in okay. Act One. Yeah. That's what I thought, but I didn't remember. But I mean, you recognize the song. Mm-hmm. You obviously recognize Flit's voice. You recognize Yurin's voice. I, the amount of like sadness that that actor puts into Flit's voice and that you what I love is that it's it's young Flit's voice but it's old Flit's words it's like uh-huh. it's it's it is old Flit having these thoughts and they've been there with him his entire life and I love that in his head he absolutely knows this is fucked up of course of course that kid that little Flit knows this is fucked up right yeah. and it's just so hard to let go of it um and having that be the linchpin of the episode and then we come back and he becomes the absolute best version of himself, mm-hmm. where he is able to rally everyone on both sides and say, "Hey, there's this colony full of people, full of city, full of you know civilians, and we've got to take out these things. Everybody, stop fighting. Vegans, save your people. Earthers, let's help save these innocent civilians. Let's do it." And you see the shot of him like in the in the Gundam Age, his original Gundam Age, like directing everyone, like go here, go here, and you cut back and to Keo who fires the plasma diver up into the air and uses that explosion as like the call to like, hey, everyone, like yeah. come to me and let's do this. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you cut back to Keo saying, Grandpa finally did it. He became a true savior who saves everyone. And you fade from an image of Keo to an image of the Gundam over those words. Yes. Um that that broke me a little mm-hmm. bit. That is again like you, you you start with the word savior in episode one. The, the episode one is called the Savior Gundam, and you have Flit saying, "I'm going to become a savior" as a little kid, and he doesn't really understand what that means. And you go and you complicate that idea, and you complicate that idea, and it it hardens in him until he thinks being a savior means doing a fucking genocide. 
and then you come out on the other end and what being a savior is is using the gundam to rally as a symbol as it is kind of in the real world now as as a piece of media right to rally everyone together to do this beautiful thing of saving this entire civilization of people and extending this humanity to your enemy and being bigger and better than the ones who hurt him um and that's what being a savior means that's the answer this is a great show this yeah. is that you can start from that point and end that point and build on that line i don't care if there's a couple of messy gerard spriggan episodes there are shows with you know fewer like problems like fewer gerard spriggan shows that don't reach a moment like Keo become yeah. like Flip becoming the savior. This is a special show. Yeah, it's a, it is a incredibly powerful moment that is just like you see just so much of the weight of time that because you, that you have spent in the show and that like has passed over the course of the show weighing on Flit and how much that just the sadness has like steeped so deeply into him that even though he instinctually knows right that this is wrong and you and you and that's where you see the little kid it's like it's why it has to be little kid flit because you know that that kid would not have done these things like you know i mean because he spared Dessel's life right like back in part one like when it came down to it he didn't kill the little kid that killed yudi because he couldn't bring himself to do it because he knew deep in himself that it was wrong to do um but that part got shaved down and he pressed it down so much as he got older. But it's always there deep inside of him that he has a fundamental warmth and kindness. And the thing that was sad is that it's that warmth and kindness. And like we said earlier, it's like that love he has is what makes his hate and his pain as strong as it is. And it's like him having to learn to let some of that go. And, and as Union says, to like forgive people and to forgive himself. And... You just have to let it go. You can't hold on to it like that because it poisons you. Um, and the way that, you know, that she calls him gentle or kind, um, like my gentle flit, is that like recognition that is like the all of the awful things he's been doing and things he's been saying about into the vegans comes fundamentally from this warmth and kindness and gentleness he felt towards Yudin and the other people he cared about, like his mother. Um, and seeing that's like these emotions in these things we do are not isolated but they're all part of like the same human being that you are and that you have to face up to that and not run away from it um i think it's just a really beautiful message that's really beautifully put across and then having it culminate in you get to be finally you get to be fully on grandpa flit's side and you're like yes like this is the person you were born to be this is who you were supposed to be this is the the potential that like the viewer and every like every adult in young flit's life saw in this little kid back in part one and this is part of what watching the show uh, twice does is you can see oh this is where they're planting all these flags of the way that people respond to flit and see him in this little kid eventually he finds that again and is able to be that thing that they hoped that he would be you know like back when we're talking about don voyage and those characters this is what they saw in him and the fact that he gets to finally become it right at the end of the show um as you say it it is it is a thing that other shows have less mess to them but very few shows have the kind of grandeur of storytelling that this is able to pull off with this moment and Keo here is such a great part of the show because mm -hmm. what Keo kind of winds up being in that moment is the audience surrogate, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I love that that Keo gets to embody the joy that we all feel there, right? Yeah. And Keo gets to say, "You've become the savior. I'm so proud you're my grandpa," right? Because he he loves Flit. Flit's his grandpa's grandpa's Gundam, all that stuff, right? Yeah. He loves this man, and he was so terrified by the idea that he might not see through him. You know, I obviously this was not on the mind of the creators of this show, but I could not help but Anna, you know, analogize for myself that there's several moments where he says. I, he says like to Asumu and other people I can't get through to Grandpa He won't listen He's on this tirade And I couldn't help but think about like People in America right now Who have mm-hmm. relatives Who are screaming about the vaccine Or saying the election was stolen Or saying Heil Trump Or whatever else they're doing And how those relationships are broken And how great it would feel If those people came back from that edge Right? Yeah um, and that that's something that happens here, and it's a it's a it's a absolutely stunningly beautiful moment. And you know, I knew that this show would end this way, right? Like, yes, I've, of I'm 28. I've seen other stories. I said this on the last podcast that this is going to have to end with some big heel rede- or flit redemption moment. I knew that it was going to end with flit having the choice to either do the vague extermination or not, and then having to be called by his better angels, right? Like, of mm-hmm. course, it was going to end this way. The test of Gundam Age as a show was not, is it going to surprise me there? The test is, how well do they do that moment that is, that moment is the reason the show exists. That is the reason to tell this story. How do you do that moment? And I don't think they could have done that moment any better. And that is the test of this show. And that's ultimately why I feel like this is a show I love and think is a great part of the Gundam canon. Absolutely, yeah. Then... So so then they you know they save the day they fight the the evil the vegan gear or the vegan gear depending on which one you want. Um, the vegan they, gear the the destruction of the vegan gear is very good because you get Keo going full Super Saiyan in the mobile suit and basically quoting the end of the Piccolo Daimao uh-huh. arc where he just flies through its center which is great. But also I love that Keo saves the clone. Yes, like that's just a little touch they didn't have to do it. But I love that Keo stays true to his. Once Kyo decides he won't kill anyone, he never does. And he does it all the way up to protecting the life of this clone that you could argue isn't even fully human, and yet Kyo does it. And like that's a very strong moment of Kyo, I think, being his own person. And I love that they keep that detail in there. It's it's powerful to me. Yeah, it's the last like it's the, the last real moment of tension in the show. Because after Flit says we need to save them. I think, like, at that point, like, even though they technically, they still have to fight the Vagan Gear, then they have to cut all the things that are connected to Second Moon that are draining its power. Um, th- even though there's that stuff that has to be done, you don't feel any tension, because I think you're like, they're gonna fucking do this. Like, and you're not supposed right. to narratively experience tension. Like, you, they're so successful. They're like, of course, everything's come together that they're going to accomplish this goal. The last real moment of tension is, can Keo resolve this battle without taking a life? And and I love the way they play it, where they you you know kind of feel like, oh, did he actually have to kill him? And then he opens up the hands of the Gundam, and you see the clone boy in there, in the look of relief on Keo's face. Um, and, and I like that that is, like, really the ending of the show, is Keo sparing that life and, like, being able to resolve this without killing this person. Um, and then you get the narration from uh, Kazuhiko Inoue, who has been our narrator the whole time, even when you were a little kid, Flit, and he wasn't playing a character yet. He was still our narrator, talking about this is the end of the war. It's been 100 years, uh, and you have your end credits epilogue uh, to Asumu and Kyo as old men. Um, 
and they're standing there and there's a statue of Grandpa Flit um, and, and he, he was the savior uh, and, and got a big statue in his name which is well deserved Keo's not really old yet. He's only... It's because he would be, like, in his 40s, I guess. He's got lines um, on his face, which means he's true. an old man. Like, they, you, <laughs> you put those two lines around the cheeks, and that's anime code for this is, as you would say in Japanese, this is an Oji-san. Yes. So this ends... Um, yeah, it ends 100 years from the day the angel fell, yeah. from basically Flit's birth. So Flit is obviously dead at that point. Um, and you have the statue. I love that the statue that they're looking at is Old Man Flit. Yes. I love that it's it's the guy who saved the day. He's got his goggles on. It's kind of the best version of Flit. Um, you've got a little statue of the Gundam there. I like that this. The, it's a very short scene, but the uh, the mm-hmm. the implication that Asamu and and Kyo went on and had a great relationship as father and son that's meaningful to me. I like that. Yeah. Um, One you know, thing I was I, pretty disappointed by with that epilogue is that we didn't have a little kid walk up that looks exactly like Windy. Um, so we, like we just continue the trope of like oh the Asano family like the male genes they just really fucking weak because boy Keo sure just looks like a little boy version of Romery huh I will say I do I kind of wish they were able to like run five minutes longer on this episode and do like a final montage of like Kyo and some of the other characters after the war through mm-hmm. the years scored to like Asue the first theme song I feel like that would have been a great way to end things um, it, I don't think the show suffers for not having that. I will say the, the final narration explains that they were able to, with the ExaDB stuff, nullify the Mars rays, and then the Vegans were able to go live on Mars again. And I was a little bit like, but did they want to? I just seemed like they didn't like Mars that much. Like, why didn't she just give them Australia or something? Like, come on. Because then, then we would start the Gundam Age Australian chapter. That's that's the manga spinoff. Um, is all the wars in the outback. Um. With, with yeah, you know, it worked for all those British suits. prisoners a couple hundred years ago, and you know, yes. eventually we got Hugh Jackman out of it. I mean, if there's Good anything deal. we've learned from the 20th century on Earth, Jonathan, is that if you just take uh, land from people and give it to other people, it just works great. You know, <laughs> nobody has a problem with it. You don't have, you know, decades long wars and conflicts that spring up from the decision of just saying, "Hey, what if we just had all of you people live where these people were living?" Okay, I guess it makes sense that they got Mars back, but, you know, still. I, I think the overall focus of the ending, obviously, is that they, they worked together and found a solution, yes. which is all we needed to know. So it works. It's good. Um, it's a great ending. I, you know, I've, I saw the complaint also that people thought, like, the, the Vagan gear came out of left field. And this, it's like, I don't, I, I guess, kind of, but I don't care because that's the, that thing is there in the finale as a MacGuffin to get yes. us to the actual plot. It doesn't matter, and frankly, it looks fucking cool, and there's some good action around it, so all the better for it. I don't... It's fine. Yeah, like, it's, it's. I think, the clone thing and the vegan gear, like, it could be better. Like, it is It is very much a, we need to have a last fight at the end of this show, and for the reasons we've already said, it can't be Zayhart. I mean, for a million reasons, it would not make any plot sense at all for that fight to be with Zayhart. Um, and so, you know, and that's why I said, like, it, it reminds me of Kid Boo. In the sense of it feels like it's less of a character and more of just a symbol for conflict. Um, because Kid Boo at the end of the Boo arc, they've like they've defeated Boo, the character, and then now they have this sort of like raging child that is incredibly powerful that they have to put a stop to. Um, you know, all we're missing is, you know, uh Asimu looking at Keo fighting uh the Vegan Gear and going and reminiscing about all the moments he's been with Keo, which is like two because he's kind of a, a, a bad absentee father, and saying, Keo, you are really number one. 
Um, that's all we need to do to have our full Kid Buu arc here with the Vegan Gear. Um, Who's Mr. Satan in this situation, like, rallying the people of Earth? Uh, Grandpa Flip. Okay, there we go. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, yes, I, I like your comparison. I think it's a good comparison. I like any Dragon Ball analogy, yes. so so I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, I had one other thing I wanted to say about say. Oh, Ezelkant. I love that Ezelkant yes. and Kyo have a final moment where Ezelkant is just fully able to kind of admit that Kyo was right and say, like, and I entrust the future of humanity to you. Like, not literally, you're going to rule Earth, but, like, you know, I trust it to your way of seeing things. That would be a very different epilogue is, like, God Emperor Kyo on his throne. <laughs> just go Dune all of a sudden? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very different ending. They, that would have to be a hell of a 30-second uh, tag at the end to uh-huh. pull that off. No, but but I like that Ezelkant is able to do that, and then he passes away. You know, there's a very, like, like Moses-esque quality to Ezelkant, who's this mm-hmm. guy who is, like, leading his people to, like, the promised land, but will never see it himself, and he knows that. It's a little different, because Moses wasn't also planning to, like, kill half of his people. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it's it, it roughly... It, 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 it's a better analogy than any of the, like, Christian shit in Evangelion. So, yes. you know, it works. Yeah, no, yeah, that last moment is really effective. Um, and again, it's just that, you know, that characterization of Ezekiel where he, that moment, he's, like, able to recognize that, like, so much of his motivation was misguided and came from this, like, the loss of his son and, and all those things we talked about with that character. Yeah, then just bringing yeah. all that kind of more fully into the text and passing passing it all off onto Keo and the rest of the human race. Um, who are going to go be humans, you know? We're just going to go do human shit. Um, and now uh, most of us don't have to worry about the Mars rays either. Yes, exactly. So it's a good ending. So let's clean up a couple of other pieces of business here. Um, we got to talk about the mobile suits, but first let's talk about theme songs really quick. This is uh, exactly like the, the first half of the show where two of the, 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 fr- the arc, arc three opening and ending, I love. I think they're fucking great. Um, and then I thought the arc four opening and ending were kind of, they're fine. They just didn't love them. Like, I'm going to be honest, like, I don't really like, I mean, I don't dislike them, but I'm not like a big fan of really any of the openings or endings in the second half of the show. Like, they're not bad. They're all very like standard. Uh, oh, I like, I like real a lot. I think that one has a cool, like vocal, like syncopation to it that I really like. And then I think I just I think White Justice is a really good ending. It's, it's its name is a little uncomfortable. I don't really love saying I like a song called White Justice, but please understand this is from Japan and they're talking about the color of the Gundam. It's not a race thing. Um, I do like that one. And then the other two, like I thought they were fine. I just don't just they're not my favorites or anything. That like honestly, actually, out of those four songs, I think probably Aurora, the in the opening for the last arc, is probably my favorite because they just kind of sound like anime songs to me. Like none of them, yeah. none of those four really stand out in the way that Asue um, particularly stood out to me in in part right. one, and then My World, which is not quite as good, but is also very good by Spire. Um, I think none of them, like especially if you're if you're going by the, our standard of like you know the the standard bearer is Double O Gundam for modern. Um, era Gundam theme songs like none of these like approach the quality of what that show was dealing with other than no Asue. not really I, I Asue I would put up there yes, but Asue um, um, but like yeah it's, it's not on that I, I'll say like I it's I liked it better than like Seed or Seed Destiny which like there's a lot of like really bad ones there the, to be fair Seed would, also has like one of the best songs ever as its yeah. first ending so 
I would um, honestly put most of these like sort of in. I would I like them more than the seed ones, mostly because I just like the genre more because they're a bit more J rock. Um, than the seed had that has that weird like early two thousands like it's a little bit too electronica and but not like good electronica. Um, but they have this very standard feel to me. And I think it might just be because I've watched way too much fucking anime that, like, I have heard a million songs that sound exactly like those songs. And if they don't do something that stands out, they just kind of blur together for me. Totally fair. My my real my only real, like, gauge here is how much have I listened to it outside of the show. And Asue and My World the most. But then yes. those, the, the ARC 3 songs I have several times, and, and I do like those as well. So um, it's fine. Uh, not certainly not a drag on the show in any way. There is no century color in this show, so no. that's we'll call that a victory. Um, but then, yeah, mobile suits. I I I came around to by the end thinking this show has quite a good assemblage of mobile suits in it. Yeah, I think I think the second half in particular has a lot of really great mobile suit yeah. designs. Um, so you've got the Gundam Age Three itself, which is obviously a, a pull off of the Double Zeta. Um, but it's so good. It's really great. Yeah, you I, get your I think big it's, boy Gundam. It's a big boy Gundam, but like I think it's the best of the the Gundams in this show, at least of the like the age, the four age models we get. I think the age three is the best. I could put in an argument for the age two with the like what is its big the power bullet. up? The double the age two double bullet is pretty fucking good, mm-hmm. but I just think the age three. I love how I, like I think the size of a double Zeta style Gundam with the sort of like blocky bold color quality of Age's designs just works perfectly. I think it's a really striking mobile suit and I loved looking at it and I was a little disappointed when we went to the HFX which is cool. I like its funnels. Its funnels are really cool but overall I, I wasn't feeling it nearly as much as the H3. Yeah, I like the HFX in the sense of like it's it's pulling obvious design elements from the new Gundam like its legs and its shoulders and then obviously the fact that it then has uh, fin funnels is very new Gundam-esque but yes, I think the Gundam H3 I think for me specifically it's the Gundam H3 Fortress, which is the it's one he so uses good. on the land that kind of hovers, and it has these big cannons on the arms and on the back. I used that um, a lot in Gundam Breaker 3 when I played that like five or six years ago at this point, uh, because it was it looks fucking sick, and that game is also very useful because you can just use them as cannons. Uh, but in this show, that is just, it's one of the best mobile shoots suits in this show, um, and from kind of this year of Gundam to me, I, I really like the Gundam H3 Fortress in particular. Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, then we have, we talked already kind of a lot about the Gundam H2 Darkhound, uh, it's sick as fuck, you know, in particular, I like the, I like how it's weird armaments, like the light onto the chest and the hooks and all of that play into Asamu's like really kind of eccentric fighting style. Um, That's what I was going to yeah. say. Like he, I, I love how much it becomes an extension of his character, which the Age 2, they did that a lot as well. But I think they're able to do it even more with the Dark Hound because it's so tailored to him. And there are just some very striking action sequences that come out of it where like the hooks are not just a silly pirate gimmick. They actually make it into an action thing on the show. And it's, it's very cool. Yes. Um, and then for me, like the other major mobile suit that I really like, that this might actually be my favorite mobile suit from the show is the Gundam Legolas. Um, just there's something about a Gundam with gold highlights that that it just stands out really well. I love. I mean, the way it first pops out and it has like it's a Gundam, but then it has like the weird visor thing that the Vegan mobile suits have. I think looks really cool. And then I like when later, um, when it's like full powered or whatever, then that visor pops open and you have the Gundam eyes underneath it, kind of like a, the Unicorn Gundam and how that kind of unfolds and turns into a more traditional Gundam look. 
Um, I think the Legolas Gundam looks pretty fucking cool. I agree. It's it's fantastic. I think of the like, I guess the the Dark Hound I kind of put in a different category because it's yeah. all black and pirate shit. But like of the main line, like five Gundams we have on the show, the Age One, Two, Three, FX, and the the Legolas Gundam. I think I would go Age Three Legolas. Uh, as the top two and and those are then yeah it's a really cool Gundam I like that it's the one like Zayhart gets to pilot a Gundam mm-hmm. and that's cool the OVA replaces the Gundam Legolas with like a different like it's like red mobile suit that's more like his other ones and it is cool I like it's a nice design but no I want him in the Gundam Legolas that thing's fucking awesome yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sick, sick-ass design. And then you continue to have, like, I don't think any of the individual vegan mobile suits stand out to me a huge amount, but I do just like the design philosophy. It's in a similar way that, like, I just like the mobile suits from Victory Gundam that the enemies have, just because they're different. Like, yeah. you have so many mobile suits that it's like, this is just kind of like a worse version of a Zaku. Um, and you see, like, five or six bad versions of Zakus, and it's like, give me the weird bug mobile suit or the crazy dragon mobile suit because at least I can look at it and be like, this is a this is from fucking Gundam Age. It looks different. It has its own design philosophy, its own unique identity, um, and I, I enjoy those. I agree 100%. I think it's great. The The Vagan gear, I think, is really cool. I, mm-hmm. The Vagan gear would be like a dark horse for me maybe on my top 10 next year. Maybe that would be an honorable mention or slip in at the bottom depending on what all we have. It is a... I love that it is, like, that one is just the most blatant, like, it's a Yu-Gi-Oh card. It is just, like, I did some tweets on this. It's the Red Eyes Black Metal Dragon. That's totally what it is. But it's all CGI. It moves in such, like, a weird, like, fluid way. It's very, like, sinewy and thin. I think it's a a cool design. And obviously it does not get a ton of time on the show, but it is a cool thing. I think the Sid mobile suit is an interesting thing. And again, I like the little experiments they're doing with CGI here because they're able to do some mobile suits that you would not have been able to do before. And I like that. It's fun. Yeah. So overall, I the this show is easy on the eyes when it comes to mobile suits. There's a lot of good stuff. Yes, and particularly I think the second half, you got a lot of really good designs. Um, some other things to clean up, like this is just I just want to mention this because I find it very funny. I think we d- didn't mention him in part two, but there is a character Algreus, um, who is sort of uh, uh, Flit's secondhand man who ends up becoming leader of the Federation in part three. I just want to mention him because he's voiced by an actor we have now seen. Uh, twice in major roles in Gundam he's been in small roles in like I think two or three other Gundams too but Takahito uh, Koyasu who's Zex in Gundam Wing and is Mula Flaga in Gundam Seed and Gundam Seed Destiny is here again uh, to play Algreus and I just find it funny uh, that he's like the dude just really likes fucking Gundam so it's like when, when an opportunity comes up he's like yes. let me be in a Gundam because he also plays small roles in Gundam F91 he's a very small role in Victory Gundam um, the guy just, he, you know, he likes, he's in, I think, some Gundam stuff that we haven't even seen yet, too. So That's awesome. You know, he's great, and I, I like Algreus. I kind of love yeah. when you get him in the third era, and he's got, like, the mustache and everything, and he's uh-huh. older. And just how much, like, he's been putting up with Flit for a long time. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, you know, he's a little annoyed by it, but he also knows that Flit is smarter than him, so he just kind of goes with it. It's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, And then one thing I also want to say, like, uh, because this is a criticism we talked about last time, but I think in many ways it's it's still my biggest issue with the show, is I am, like, very frustrated with how underused the female cast is. And I think in particular part three and part four, you have one scene with Romery, um, and that's it, uh, where she sees Asamu again and is like, I'm alive. And it's like, yay. 
And then, and then I maybe I'll see you again sometime. I don't know. Anyways, I'm gonna go be a space pirate again. Um, you don't have any scenes with Emily. Um, you have Unua, who's uh, Asami's sister. She's on the ship, so she gets a little bit of time, um, but not much. And then you have Wendy, who is there, right? She's just like, it feels like they realized they didn't have to actually invest in Wendy as much as a character as they had to do with the other heroines in parts one and two, because this is the last one, so you don't have to have her have a kid. So like, well, she'll be there to suggest the fact that, you know, eventually that the, the Osno line will continue with a Wendy-esque child in the future. Um, but they don't really do much with her as a character in any way. And it just is kind of frustrating the way the show kind of continually sets up characters like Emily in particular in part one, Romery less so, but it's still interesting. And these interesting female characters and then invest in them. And then as soon as the time jump, they're basically nowhere to be seen. It is, it is frustrating. It's frustratingly heteronormative. In my head canon, because there's nothing to, to say this is wrong, well, I'll just say Keo's gay. Keo's the gay one. And maybe, maybe what, um, his fr- what Wendy is, is she's like the surrogate at some point to, his, <laughs> to him and his partner when they decide to have a baby. And that's how the Asano line continues. But um, no, we'll just, you know, just in my head canon, we don't see his partner in the future. So fuck it. Keo, Keo gets to, to be queer. That, we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah, it's also just something where, you know, I just think there's like a lot of space to have some interesting scenes, like a scene between Keo and Emily, right? His grandmother in talking about Flit or something. Just some of those perspectives of these are characters that have seen so much and experienced so much in this world and you just don't visit them again ever. Like we don't ever find out how does Romery feel about Zayhart? now that she's older right like you get in the ova they have one five second scene of her on earth like looking up at the night sky um even the ova doesn't commit to having an actual scene with her um so like that kind of stuff is feels like it's by far like the biggest missed opportunity um i think gundam age has but you know it's also a pattern i think we've seen in au gundam i think there's a lot of non-tomino gundam shows that are just very bad with their female characters Mm -hmm. um in general, like the, the pattern still continues that by and large, there are very few female pilots outside of the Tomino shows. Yeah. And you'll like where you'll have women in military power in the AU shows is usually as captain. And that's kind of where they, we've fallen. But like it's, you'll sometimes have enemy pilots be women, but it's pretty rare you'll have one of the hero pilots be a woman. Even, even Double O falls into this. Yes. Um, and it's, it's a little depressing because I, I don't. The Tomino shows have never really had that hang up. That's you, you have Sela doing piloting in the first show. It's never been a problem, but mm-hmm. it is in a lot of the AU stuff. So, oh well. Yeah. So I think the last thing to to wrap up then is is we did watch the OVA series on Memory of Eden. So these were two basically 60, 70 minute long OVAs made a year after Gundam Age was over. Um, and I watched them and they are, that's two compilation movies of Gundam Age. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really kind of like come away with much from, from that experience. So, I mean, the reason we did it is because I had several people recommend it and, um, like I had heard from some people who, who like it. So I just thought it would be interesting. It is, you know, we, we, we haven't talked about it a ton, but there are other, OVAs from the yes. last couple shows like Seed, Seed, Destiny, and Double O did compilation OVAs in lieu of compilation movies but I had never heard of there being too much different in those like Seed does have those but then they're they take the different stuff and they work it into the HD yeah. version of the show so that's where we talked about that what Memory of Eden is is a very weird thing because it's not the full show it is just 
the second and third, not even the third arc, it skips the third arc entirely. It's the second and fourth arc, but from Zayhart in particular and a little bit of Asamu's perspective, it's interesting because the first part does redo almost everything on the colony between Asamu and Zayhart. It, um, it's, all, it's either all new scenes or redone versions of old scenes. Um, and I do think there's some really good scenes there. The did scratch and itch I, I maybe had from those episodes where I just wanted a little more of that stuff. Um, like there's this scene where Asamu and Zayhart and Romery are out like on this the colony like looking out at it before graduation. That's a very lovely scene. Um, there's some other moments like that that are nice. They reframe some scenes like um, Asamu and Zayhart's sort of confrontation at the end of the colony portion where it was just in sort of a normal natural part of the colony in the show and then it's in sort of a fiery like um, destroyed part of the colony in the OVA. And then in part two... You can skip the first half hour of part two because it's just a recompilation of the end of arc two and I don't even know why it's there really. There's no new animation. I just skipped, I've scrubbed through it. Um, and then you, the most of part two is Zayhart focused and they add in several more of the space Macbeth scenes and I think some of those are really good. There's some new fight scenes that are very good. I would definitely, if you're a fan of this show, look up the, the new fight between Zayhart and Asamu that's in the OVA. I don't think it's a, like, I wouldn't put it in the TV show because I think it kind of misses the point of that moment, but it is a very cool piece of action choreography and animation and direction and everything. Um, so there's a lot of good, like, new little scenes there, but there's a couple of things they change that I really don't like. Like, for one, they redo all of the stuff with Fram to make it explicitly romantic mm -hmm. between Zayhart and Fram, which to me just utterly misses the point of that relationship which is that Zayhart treated Fram like he does all of his subordinates which yeah. is he treasures all of them and then her, him betraying her is a symbol of him betraying all of them not this one special romance and then they redo Zayhart and Asamu's final conversation together um, and I think kind of the, the dialogue there misses the point of that it like makes it too pat and simple and like gives him like, it, it stops it from being a tragedy almost because it makes his motivation sound too noble. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I just generally have a problem. This is, I just typically do not like compilation type stuff. Kind of a lot for this reason of where some of, like, the new stuff is kind of interesting on its own in a vacuum. But you're not being presented it in a vacuum. You're being presented it in this, like, very awful version of the story you had from the TV show, right? Right. So it's, like, all the stuff where you do have some new material with Romery and Zehart and Asimu in that first part of the first Memory of Eden thing. But you also have, like, most of the material that was there in the TV show isn't there in the OVA. So, like, you lose things that are, I think, critical pieces of characterization that would make those moments stand out a lot more like that final that confrontation between Zehar and Asimu on the colony in the first OVA where he finds out that Zehar is a vegan like the reason why that scene works in the TV show is it's directly juxtaposed with the graduation scene where Asimu shows how deeply he trusts Zehar publicly in front of the whole school that it doesn't even occur to him that like there's even a millimeter of a chance that this man could possibly be a traitor or a vegan or whatever and so while the flaming background is cool in the OVA, all the narrative context around it in the experience of watching the OVA is like so neutered from what you got watching the TV show that this is like the tweet I made last night after I watched it was like the experience of watching this kind of compilation movie feels like if the only way you could watch the deleted scenes on a DVD was by watching a really bad like 70 minute cut of the three hour movie you watched. 
on because it's like sometimes I just want to watch the clip of Luke Skywalker making his green lightsaber. I don't want to watch a bad edit of the Star Wars movies in order to see that one scene. I just want to see that one scene. So that's what I would recommend for people if you have not seen Memory of Eden but you're interested in it is look it up on YouTube and see if people have cut together what the new stuff is because I think when you watch it in context of the OVAs, it's honestly worse than if you watched it totally out of context and you're just able to give it mentally the context of as if it was in the TV show with your like assumptions about the characterization and dramatic like impulse and stuff like that that the TV show had. Yeah. The, the, the thing I said about it is it almost feels like this was made purely in the hopes that there would one uh-huh. day be like a special edition of the TV show where they could edit in some of these scenes. And I would. I do think some of these scenes would be a boon to the show as it exists. Um, there's a new final like Space Macbeth scene with Zayhart where he's like in a pool of blood and there's all these arms coming out that's very visually cool. There's a couple of those scenes on the colony early on. There's also some scenes I wouldn't include as I said. But, you know... Yeah, skip if you have it, skip through it to the new stuff. Yes, and if you can find online like uh, an edit of it together, then totally go for that. Um, if you're a diehard fan, there's some cool stuff in there. Um, probably not worth two and a half hours of your time, no. but maybe maybe worth forty minutes of the new stuff. I don't know, but you know, it's more Gundam Age stuff. Probably the last we'll ever get. So there you go. I'm not sure why it was made. I'm very confused at the like overall project of it and who it was for, but there you go. So I well, I mean, one of the reasons why it's made is it's just a very cheap way to extend some of the revenue you have, right? Because right. You're, you're using a huge amount of material from the original show. Um, I think one of the reasons it was made, and this is something that will connect um, to a show we'll do in a while, um, but eventually once we get to Gundam Build Fighters Try, we will come back around to a man named uh, Shinya Watada, who is the director of this OVA series, which I believe this is the first project that, that that he directed at Sunrise. And then when you get to Build Fighters Try, they have him direct that show. And then he's also the director on the Gundam Build Divers and Build Divers Rerise shows. So, so I think that's one of the reasons why some of those projects happen is to give someone who's been like a unit director or an episode director and give them a project that has slightly higher level responsibilities that is a very low like risk kind of project that's like hey cut your teeth on this a little bit to manage a bigger staff um and then then eventually you get to make your own tv show later i think that's one of the reasons probably why they did it looking at some of the people that they put on the staff specifically that are just on the the ova version interesting yeah well the more you know sean should we tell the people what we're going to be doing next time yes because next time on weekly suit gundam it's not going to be weekly suit gundam because next time on Weekly Suit Gundam, it's going to be Weekly Genesis Evangelion. Because we are going back, Jonathan, and revisiting the most controversial episode we have ever done in the history of podcasting. Which was the two episodes we did looking at Neon Genesis Evangelion. Where we, you know, aren't huge fans of uh, that show overall. Though, you know, Eva does a lot of really interesting... People projects. have twisted that into us hating yes. that show. I That is not an accurate claim of either of our positions i do not hate evangelion no it's a show we both have complicated feelings on that i think like there's a lot of bad shit in that show but there's also a lot of really good shit in evangelion but there have been a series of movies uh evangelion movies called the rebuild movies that have been coming out for like 15 years basically Um, for as long as you and i have known each other yes um and uh we said on that podcast that when all four of the evangelion rebuild movies would be available in the west that we would do a podcast talking about those films and the day is coming jonathan because in two weeks on amazon prime there will be i believe it's all of them correct that will be up on amazon prime at that point 
So I'm not sure. They've said they're going to have all four, but they have not said when the other three are coming. All okay. we know is part the fourth movie, which is called 3.0 plus 1.0, because of course it is. That is coming Friday, August 13th. Um, you and I are going to probably start watching before then. I have the other three movies, yes, so I so don't do I. need the Amazon Prime versions. But that's it'll premiere for the public on Amazon Prime on August 13th. Uh, that's a Friday, our Monday podcast that week. So two weeks from now, so keeping up our kind of bi-weekly, weekly suit Gundam schedule. So that will be our episode for Monday, the 16th of August, will be part three of Weekly Genesis Evangelion as we look at those rebuild movies, which I've been super excited to watch. I'm really curious to see because at a, I, my knowledge of it is that the first movie is based on TV show stuff. And then from that point on, it's pretty much just yes. a new Evangelion story. And I like Hideaki Anno, and I am always rooting for him. So I am curious to see these movies and what I feel. Everything I've heard about the fourth movie is that it's fantastic. So I am curious about that. Yeah, so yeah, I'm very excited to watch these as well because I have the same sense um, as you do about them. And I, and I'm, I think they're going to be pretty interesting. So that will be two weeks from now. We'll talk about all four of the Rebuild movies. Um, 1.0 through to Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a time. Um, we'll get to make fun of a lot of very weird, bad subtitles because all these movies have ridiculous subtitles. Have you looked up the, the last movie's title in Japanese? Um, no. Uh, so in Japanese, it, they don't do that 1.0, 2.0 stuff. They're they're basically they're they're like new. They're called like new Evangelion. Yeah, Sheen Evangelion. The, I see it here. Right. The fourth movie is Sheen Evangelion, and then it's like an abstract symbol, and that's the name of the movie. Yes, it's Sheen Evangelion, like Gekijoban, which basically means movie version, which you put in front of like everything that's basically movie in Japanese. Uh, yes, and then it's like a, a thin vertical line and a slightly thicker vertical line that I thought was just like a like artifact on this Wikipedia page, but that's just actually something that you can type somehow. Interesting. Yep. So, so yeah. there you go. So we'll, we'll be talking about all those movies, including Sheen Evangelion, Gekijoban, Line Line, um, two weeks from now. If you're someone who's not into Eva, just to put it on your radar, if you're waiting for our Gundam thing, um, after Evangelion, we'll be moving on to Gundam Build Fighters, which is the next Gundam show. So if you're you're looking forward to that, but you're not an Eva person, that's where we'll be going in the future past Eva. But in the, the near term, we're going to be taking a, a step back, back in time, forward in time, sideways in time, all manners of time and whatever the fuck is going to happen in these Evangelion movies. Because I think uh, next time we do a podcast, Jonathan, we're going to have to talk about some crazy fucking shit on this show. 